for it. Well, good morning, good afternoon, uh, good day, wherever you may be, because I know <laughs> we have we have folks from Australia to the west coast of the U.S. to the east coast to um, to Europe. So. Um, First of all, thank you to everyone that's participating in all the odd time zones and, 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 and using this new technology that's actually allowing us to have these kinds of conversations as much as we'd like to be in person. This is really kind of cool that we're able to, to get everyone engaged like this across the country. So uh, this is absolutely fantastic. Uh, for those of you who do not know me, I'm Dan Dumbacher, the executive director for AIAA. Uh, and Ken and Madhu asked me to do a little intro and I was more than happy to do it because it's always fun to work with the Los Angeles, Las Vegas section uh, and particularly on a topic that's near and dear to my heart. I, I come to AIAA for those of you who do not know after 33 years at NASA, uh, starting off on shuttle before STS-1 and then ending up as the deputy AA for exploration systems uh, until I went to go teach it some university in Indiana with an engineering school in 2014. Uh, and then AIAA called. So uh, what you guys are, are, what the conversations today are extremely, extremely important. Uh, as we look as a species to, as I say it, extend the human neighborhood to low earth orbit and even beyond and extend the human neighborhood to, to the moon and to eventually to deep space, the, the kind of forward thinking that uh, this architecture, thinking ahead, be creative, is really helped setting the stage for uh, what the future will look like uh, and how we can best serve uh, society in general and the human species. So uh, yeah, I find this, these kinds of, uh, of discussions are very, very engaging and very, very important. Because if you don't know what you're aiming for, it's kind of hard to get there. And uh, we keep, at AIAA, we're working hard to, uh, as we say in the Ascend world, we talk in terms of building our off-world future, and that's what this is all about. And uh, so I just want to, don't want to take a lot of time, because you guys have some great stuff to go talk, and you don't need to hear from me. But I just want to say, again, thank you to everyone for participating, everyone around the globe uh, on this topic to some people that might seem a little far out, but we need that target. We need to know where we're aiming for. And you guys are helping uh, define what that is. Uh, and also congratulations to uh, Ken and Madhu and the entire LA Las Vegas section for pulling all of this together. You guys are, you have quite a, a series of speakers here. Uh, and it's uh, rather impressive, and I'm looking forward to uh, to hearing from you guys and and uh, seeing what kind of visions you have because uh, I just want to know where we're going to go and how we're going to get there and what it looks like. And the sooner we get there, the better. So, Madhu, I'll turn it over to you, and uh, looking forward to the to, to the discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Okay, it's so nice to have um, Dan come in and, uh, and uh, open the session for us. All I had to do, do uh, was send in a little note and said, hey, Dan, look at our program. Uh, would you like to join us? 
And boy, boy, he gave me a, a happy thumbs up. And I'm so glad uh, uh, you're with us, Dan. Um, uh, um, AIAA is very special. And uh, uh, it's done so many things for the community. It's done so many things for me. I used to be the education chair, Dan, um, some years ago. Do you remember Bob Brodsky? Yeah, he was my... <laughs> he was my uh, my mentor in many ways, and then uh, Eberhard Rechten, uh, the one who started the um, systems architecting program at USC. He was my mentor, and uh, he used to tell me stories uh, from the aerospace days and how we got uh, the DSM running. Um, and so, when we have Australians on board, they need to know. Um, we have contacts there. We've done some magical things right there in your home country. Um, now I'm going to go uh, share my screen. <clears throat> yes, everybody remembers Bob Brodsky. Can give me a minute. Ken, what do you see on the screen now? Uh, it's still your face. Oh, okay. <laughs> I try the green button. I'm not on the green button, wait. <clears throat> now what do you see? Mm, still your face. Still my face, okay, good. Yeah, I gotta see. Oh, it's coming up. Good. Great. Okay. Uh, we are two minutes ahead of schedule, but I'm going to run because usually I have, I'm accused of running late on my slides. So welcome all to the, uh, to this wonderful program. Um, I give uh, all the credit to Ken and thank you to Dan for opening uh, uh, the event. So happy that uh, people are joining us. I, I teach some crazy classes in the School of uh, Engineering and in the School of Architecture. My education and training are in both fields. Welcome all. <laughs> this is the third session of the Space Architecture Group. It's international because people have dreams all over the world. And I'm glad some of you are here. So the moon and Mars is waiting for architects. Before I start, I must mention that USC has a very unique angle on astronautics. It's a very specific program. We also have an aerospace engineering program. So once you fly out the bounds of Earth and into space, our astronautical engineers come to play. Neil Armstrong, landed on the moon while he was doing the mission. He, he was assigned to the moon mission while uh, he was doing his master's here at USC. And uh, uh, the story is that uh, he, uh, the dean asked him, 
what his difficulty was. He told him he had a mission to the moon. Uh, the dean, uh, without even flinching, said, no problems, just bring back the report and you'll be fine. So that's how the story goes. Now, uh, the program has grown. It's growing every, uh, every year. So within this program is my studio. It's called the ASTE 527 Studio. And uh, we are focused only on one, one, one thing alone. Can you imagine? Can you dream? Can you bring something to me at the end of the term? I don't care what the um, agency or the industry thinks. I want your mind. Can you do that for me? And you know what? Every single time we have ideas and we don't really care whether it, it, it goes with this person's idea, this agency's idea, the expert's idea. No, we want them to think originally and it helps them. It's all about imagination and creativity. This is my class and we have some very special friends. Hello, Lapa. We've got a few people watching in too. Um, I think you all know this man from the t-shirt he's wearing. And Bus said he will tune in today. If he comes in, can give him a minute. But we have a wonderful class. Now in the architecture school, which happens to be the other semester that I teach, they ask some damned hard questions. They want to know what are we doing for humanity? A lot of us are thinking, most of us are thinking how to keep people alive in space, in the extraterrestrial surfaces, and how to do this uh, in a responsible and um, safety critical manner. We come back home and talk to the architects. They're impressed, but they want to know what are we doing to help the billions of people on planet Earth? So between the two, I get um, quite a few questions and we have a great discussion. Architects want to know questions about how space architecture can impact life on Earth. This is our textbook. It's a timeless book. Uh, the first edition appeared before the turn of the century, the second edition in 2007, and we are going to do the third edition. We are working on it. It should be out next year. And we call it timeless because every time there is news in the papers, the magazines, the trade journals, and the literature, we go back in our book and say, hmm, somebody is thinking about it. So it's a great book. Buzz Aldrin wrote the foreword, and I hope Buzz is tuned in. Um, uh, he is um, he's a national hero, and he's a champion for human space flight. He has a new uh, initiative called the Human Space, Space Flight Institute that we are all pushing for. He wants all the universities to come together and compete with designs and collaborate in finally selected ideas. He wants the whole world to do that. I don't have to mention that space architecture involves engineering and architecture and all imaginable professions. I've met people, artists, I've met lawyers, doctors, some of them sit in our studio. Now, what is space architecture about? It's about habitats and space for people to live in. It is alien, as you can see, we are looking at Apollo, Apollo 17 image here, I think, yes. And that is probably um, Harrison Schmidt who took that picture. 
is looking out and seeing the lunar surface. Uh, no, this is the Apollo 11 picture, that's right. Anyhow, um, it's highly interdisciplinary. And I want you to look at our archives of those who have not yet to see what we do. It's been around for a long time. And we started keeping curating it only in 1999. I remember starting it in 19, early 1990. And uh, we do a lot of interesting things and we talk about it. And every time NASA comes up with a new idea, it's already somewhere in here, including the title and the moniker and everything. So take a look at it. I love to draw. Anybody, anybody who says they are a space architect and can't take a pen and put it down on paper quickly, quickly, they're not a space architect. Sorry, buddies, learn to draw. So uh, I drew these things and then I first did it before a, a bunch of uh, engineers they all shocked themselves and said, that guy in the corner is doing something really out of this world. He's crazy. But you know what? It went on to become my work, graduated me, and uh, we went on to think about something that is coming of age now. The idea that we can build massive things in orbit around the earth. Space station is already there, and now we think because of all the satellites going up, we have to be careful with this environment. These are parts from my work. And now we think we can build these things using the space station. Why not? And here you see our lunar craft about to land on the moon. Students in the class talk about orbiting space stations, different kinds of uh, orbiting moon stations. And we think, we think it's already happening. The Earth orbit is the next entry for any nation that wants to have an immediate impact on what we are going to do next. So I welcome all the space architects to be thinking about what to do in Earth orbit to extend us to the moon and Mars and beyond. We talk about ideas about putting uh, sampling surfaces and shooting samples into orbit where they can be picked up. Uh, the Moon Village Association is a new idea. Somebody will talk about it. I think the vice president is with us. Uh, their first payload is already being studied. And the idea is to put a telescope on the moon, looking back to earth 24 seven and let all the people of the earth look at how beautiful, how fragile planet earth is. Our um, it, um, uh, team talks about going back to the moon, going back to the Apollo site and examining Apollo and also looking at uh, uh, the uh, uh, scientific aspects of, uh, uh, of things like the skylight that you see here. It's called the Tranquilitati Spit. We think about rovers. We think about building the structures using robots on the moon. This is a project that was done at USC. Uh, you will hear more about it today, um, about constructing shelters using robots. Ideas that have, that have originated at USC and the professor is with us today. I'm so happy you will hear more about it. Landing pads are important. We talk about that. My own favorite thing is to send thousands of people to the moon for a holiday, 
to let them take a train and go around and see how beautiful planet Earth is looking from what Buzz Aldrin calls uh, the uh, grand desolation. Planetary defense could use structures on the moon. Here you see a high power laser shooting down meteorites coming not only to impact Earth, but also to hit places um, exposed assets on the moon. We're going to put telescopes, we're going to put habitats, and they all need to be protected. Here you see a laser doing the job for us. Uh, my own thinking is that we should get all the nations together, put up structures on the moon so they can visit, spend some time, come back, have a, a beer garden party, and, and, and there is no there's no reason why we should not brag about looking up at the skies and say, you know, it's fantastic to fly from here to here, take a train from here to here, and see all the beautiful structures on the moon. We have people looking at um, doing Olympics on the moon, um, sporting activities. Uh, I send this to, uh, I believe, the Clinton administration to suggest that the presidential library should have a spot on the moon. And... Um, President Clinton wrote me a handwritten letter. That brings us to today's event, um, which is, uh, thank you, Dan. Am I on time? Guess, oh gosh, oh, I'm sorry about this. Okay, we are ready to go on to uh, um, Professor Sandra Musburger. Ken? Yes. Are you with us? Yeah, Sandra is here. Okay, you should have stopped me. Uh, <laughs> go for it. We are ready for the next. Oh, yeah. We want to catch up, but uh, can I was hoping you would stop me. <laughs> okay, good. Good timing. Don't worry. Um, she's here, so I just asked her to start the video. Yeah, she's here. Hello, shall I share my screen? Yeah, go ahead. Thank you. All right. Can you see it? Yes. Great. So, good evening. Uh, or good morning, whatever, where are you coming from? Thank you for this invitation. And um, today I would also thank you for showing your book, Madhu. I have to say that your book, The Moon, was one of the most favorite books when I started to work on space architecture. It's really timeless. I love it. <laughs> So today I would like to present some recent research that it's just being published on my side. Uh, many of you know that I have worked in habitability research with the focus on the relationship between space and humans for many years also myself now. So as architects, we all know how important habitability is. In space so far, unfortunately, it was seen as nice to have. 
But as space architects, we know it will be vital for mission success, especially in the near future, when more and more people will travel to more and more places. So habitability and its integration to design is also an important topic in the work with my students. Unfortunately, the Springer books are not freely accessible, but all the space architecture products from our students. So I invite you to look at this link and look at the projects from the studio. I'm talking today about my latest endeavor. The last four years, I had the great pleasure to work closely with the space, psycholo space psychologist, Dr. Shara Bishop. Together, we share a common passion on the relationship about space and humans. And both of us have approached this from different angles. So Cheryl has always been hunting for the answer to the questions, what constitutes the best fit person to live happily in extraterrestrial environments? And I myself have been chasing after uh, what constitutes the best fit space to live happily in extraterrestrial environments? And the past five years, four years, through a lot of discussions, we have come up with a real synergetic achievement towards the design of living spaces in extreme environments. And I would like to give you a little insight to this research now. In 1963, the authors of the paper Habitability in Space Stations started with the question, what does habitability mean? And further, but uh, what does it really mean? So interestingly, support and evidence for the need of habitability integration today can be found in every decade. So one large part of the research and the book is to lay open the various and also varying concepts of habitability. Habitability is an umbrella term it is for a concept that has evolved over time. It has evolved from habitability as location to habitability as living space today or in the future. It is used by different professions by, with a variety of underlying talking. And Cheryl and me have been arguing that the habitability model shall be centered around the inhabitant experience of space as central core. As such, habitability describes the suitability and value of a built habitat for its inhabitants in a specific environment over time. Together, we trace this evolution from space to place in history, and we give examples from relevant research. It is clear that today there is no perfect analog for extraterrestrial habitats. This is because each isolated and confined environment has its own strengths, but also its own limitations. So knowledge transfer from one environment to the other has been tricky and is even sometimes not a good idea. So how are we to evaluate and prove effectiveness of habitation factors? when we lack true analogs for extraterrestrial conditions. 
The space station Skylab is a good historical example for learning of an environment we don't know about. It is by experience. Its long duration missions and large open volume provided for the very first time the opportunity to learn about movement in microgravity. We have to remember that the first study on the neutral body position comes from these three missions. And when we say that Sky, and when we, uh, we can say that Skylab was the first testbed in space, the first analog, the first experimental space station. It featured a number of innovative and experimental designs, a deployable shower, private crew quarters, a toilet mounted on the wall, and men involved in keeping the house clean and tidy was also not commonly seen at that time. Some things worked and some did not. A lot of restraints, for example, that the Skylab astronauts experimented with are not used anymore. And also there was a big fight on the inclusion of the large wardroom window by uh, Raymond Levy. It was actually closed most of the time because there was nothing to see. The windows in the multi in the multi-docking adapter proved to be of much better use because they provided a 360 degree view. In addition to experiencing, how can we approach habitability design integration from a scientific point of view? Uh, well, given the premise that extraterrestrial environments share a core set of limiting characteristics and human habitation and such places share common challenges like isolation, confinement, and restricted access to others, Cheryl and me started to look at the commonalities across the experiences people made in ISIS and their habitats. And this makes the second main part of our research a review of studies and the architecture of habitability missions. As our research is a co-project, combining on the one hand side the psychology of a person living in extreme environment, and on the other side, the socio-spatial dynamics of the group living in extreme environments, we choose examples from missions that involve living over a period of time in a habitat that serves as protection from extreme environment. We did not include expeditions or camps, otherwise it uh, would help to explain the concept. So this is the group we were looking at and for the presentation of the floor plans and sections uh, that we show and that we compared, uh, we're using a color code that is aligned to human activities to make identification and comparison easier. So the first group is chamber research facilities. Initially, experimental research on habitability factors was conducted in these highly controlled habitats, laboratories or capsule research. The Moscow Institute of Biomedical Problems has had an isolation facility in operation already since 1967. However, the, famous, the most famous one is the most recent one, Mars 500, 
the 520 day mission in 2011. Overall, CHAMPA research facilities are full-scale habitat with the control of laboratory conditions. They lack true risk and isolation uh, conducted in the safety of larger facilities, but despite of, they have been critical testbeds for technology and process development and validation. In situ research facilities, Overall, the use of them has provided a bridge between the overly controlled laboratory and capsule habitats with all the extraneous controlled elements and the conditions of the real environment. So they provide greater risk and also provide greater demands for crew autonomy. And of course, not to forget the experience from the real space environment. A number of habitability studies and experiences from astronauts, cosmonauts, and taikonauts serve today as a resource for detailing future habitation. But still, so far, most of the know-how and experience comes from lowest orbit. So, can we build the perfect habitat? Hmm. All existing habitats and many of the concepts, even envisioned for the near future, we have to say, are impoverished places to live in. We really have to realize that as soon as the perspective shifts to long-term missions, further away from us, less than ideal conditions will not be viable uh, anymore. Complicate matters even further. Many of the Earth's inherent natural conditions must be provided through technology. But some of these subconditions may not be viable alternatives for the entirety of conditions that they seek to mimic. So, for example, does a picture of a forest on the wall adequately compensate for never interacting with actual plants? Therefore, we thought it is critical to first identify if and which factors related to our natural conditions are needed for, well, for human well-being. And then, if so, what are the characteristics and dimensions of those that need to be surrogated? And finally, which technologies and socio-spatial strategies are available to do so? You will notice here that the first two questions are most important. For any proposed solution to a problem and proposed design, it is of great importance to understand the underlying socio-spatial relation. Only then we think it is possible to come up with a solution that deserves the name habitability design solution. The good news is here that there is not just one possible solution to a problem, but a myriad. And we can make use of this large pool of ideas. So in the concluding work that Cheryl and me did, we have summarized major overarching habitability issues in relation to their underlying social-spatial relationships. Um, one example is the principle of we all know of making the most of all resources. But the fact that 
uh, it will be a considerable span of time before we have communities in the size, let's say, of McMurdo of Earth, the negative impact of limited group size will be with us. In literature and uh, science, it has been shown that team members in longer missions spend less social time together than during shorter missions. So the implications from the trends for space architects have direct impact on the design. For instance, the propensity to spend less social time together as duration increases means we need to provide the capability to create more social space to limit social distances over time. And at the same time, provide more private space to meet growing psychology needs. So, living with others is not easy. We all have experienced that in the best of circumstances. But remove the opportunity to get away in a small space and limit the opportunity to interact with others. The simple act of being alone becomes a huge challenge in an ice habitat. Little interpersonal difficulties can become big problems. The design of such a habitat shall take this inevitability of interpersonal conflicts into account. So there would be preventive measures, such as we clearly define personal spaces and the ability to have control over it. And there would be mitigation measures, such as opportunities for social engagement, sports and leisure. Design features could address multiple needs. To plan for multiple routes throughout base, include modification possibilities depending on different needs, and function allocation of activities, for example, a typical design task for a space architect. Another example is to understand the psychological dynamics of living in a small and confined space. The psychological experience of too, of too little volume, for example, is associated with feelings of crowdedness. The interesting part here is that this is not only a question of the actual size of the space. So feelings of crowding are also related to visual complexity and extreme artificiality. One important aspect is to include the life cycle of a habitat. And during the design process, all space modules have looked efficient and spacious, as can be seen in the left picture, uh, on the top right picture. And yet, all of them have turned into cluttered spaces without exception. And this is even valued for simulation facilities on Earth. Other impacts to be integrated include visual complexity and spatial perception. So I would like to conclude with a statement by Dr. Weiss, a psychologist uh, with relevant work on spatial habitability. He said, it's not how large you make it, it's how you make it large. And I thank you very much for your attention and again for the invitation thank you madhu
Thank you so much, Sandra. That is a beautiful introduction to today's uh, uh, events. You know, we will take questions uh, in the end, Sandra. In the, um, you know, I want you all to be using the chat room. I think uh, Ken will be monitoring it. I will be too. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll have dialogues in between. Thank you so much. What a beautiful, what a beautiful uh, beginning. Thank you. My next speaker is Vittorio. And uh, Vittorio is coming to us uh, from, uh, um, I think from Italy uh, or from, uh, uh, are you from, are you here in the U US now, Vittorio? Uh, I'm always a bit everywhere. <laughs> in this moment, I'm in Europe, but uh, lately I'm based uh, in Houston. Um, okay. Yeah. Great, go for it. Okay. Thank you, Mado, for the invitation, first of all, and thank you, Sandra, for your beautiful presentation. I share my screen. Uh, ah, I have to, uh, Sandra, I think that you have to stop sharing be before I can start sharing. Okay. Uh, I hope can, can you see my screen, right? Yes, we can. Okay, uh, thank you everybody. Um, today I will talk about uh, a research that it's more than a single research. It's like a, a group of research that uh, lately characterize my, um, basically my research focus. And it's the human-robot collaboration um, as an enabler for a scalable human presence space. A research that I started at SIXA uh, uh, in Houston, at the Sasakawa International Center of Space Architecture. Um, so uh, I'll try to be uh, fast because I, I have uh, a lot of things to say. <laughs> but when I started uh, my journey in space architecture, uh, I had a really clear idea what, uh, what space architecture was. And uh, now after five years, I'm not so sure again. Um, because um, I, I got to know all the different aspects that uh, um, space architects they need, they, they need to address in the projects. And so space architects, they need to be um, a bit engineers, a bit uh, uh, robotic experts and planetary scientists and astronomers and many other things. Um, so it's, it's really difficult sometimes to uh, understand what uh, really space architecture uh, is. So I think that it's up to us to define it and define the way in which we uh, we decide to impact the space architecture field. Um, so I'm currently, just to present a, a very briefly myself, uh, I have a, a bachelor and a master uh, in architecture from uh, UAB in Venice. And after I, I finishing my master in space architecture at SIXA in Houston, but I already started a PhD in aerospace engineering and science at the Polytechnic Code Bari. At the same time, I, uh, I worked as a consultant for CERCH last year on the project Olympus, and I currently project manager of Eco Robotics, that is like a drone company. Uh, and I'm a registered uh, system engineer at Incus. This is just like a part of the things that actually uh, make my uh, professional lives. Um, 
So uh, my vision that I developed during uh, these years is that really to enable like a um, large scale application for uh, human space exploration, we really need to focus on automation uh, because automation, it's a great enabler for, um, uh, for a, a safe and accessible uh, space environment. Uh, in the way that uh, we discovered uh, from the 60s uh, to today, that robots and uh, AI, they can really make our job easier and safer uh, when it comes to uh, a so harsh environment like space or a, plan or a planetary surface in the heliosphere. Uh, so I decided to focus a lot of my uh, research on this topic that I find very fascinating. And uh, of course, this involves a lot of the study of uh, what is uh, space robotics. Um, why uh, space robotics is so important? Well, um, first of all, uh, I found a very uh, interesting paper of J.B. Garvey that was in the directorate uh, of uh, an, uh, uh, space exploration at NASA uh, in, uh, in the 90s, uh, that he talked about the different skill sets that human and uh, robots, they demonstrate in space. Of course, this is, can be considered a bit uh, out of date right now because we are talking about the 2005 and many things changed in this last 15 years. Uh, but he basically, together with the GPL, uh, they investigated this aspect. So, um, and they took us a, a certain set of skills that you can see here, and uh, they tried to understand how this, uh, well, how much they were affected, humans versus robots, in this uh, skill set. Um, well. As you can see, uh, robots are, um, are basically mm, worse than human and but, uh, almost everything. Uh, but they have uh, three specific things that they are very good at. The first is the precision. And we know how mm, important precision is in space. Uh, the second is detection. And it's, um, it's uh, basically connected to the idea that robots can identify problems way faster than humans, and also this expands to the uh, uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, and the third thing is probably the most important, the expendability. Uh, when we lose a, a probe or a robot, we are not losing a human life. Uh, and this is extremely important for us uh, because we all care about our lives. Um, and even if we, uh, we really like uh, to explore ourselves, um, the new things uh, we also we want to do it in a safe way. Um, so I asked myself uh, why we if like if this there is this big like division between these uh, skills, uh, why don't do both at the same time? Uh, and so I started working a lot on the concept of um, cooperation between uh, human and robot in space exploration. Um, and this, I think, it's a great uh, tool for uh, then planning of next human uh, missions. Um, and uh, in which I already see from uh, the next the NASA ESA programs how um, robotics is now uh, incorporated in, the, in these programs in a very broad way. Um, and so I want to, um, in this presentation, I want to present briefly uh, three projects of mine uh, that I developed during these years uh, that they make use of this concept of human robotic collaboration and partnership. So I, I start from the low Earth orbit 
to go uh, uh, farther and farther. The first concept that I uh, always liked is the concept of um, uh, robotic augmented EDA. Uh, that means that humans are very good, uh, as we said before, at this, certain things like dexterity um, or uh, even uh, um, uh, like to re respond to um, un uh, unknowns and unforeseen situations. Uh, while robots are, uh, they uh, ensure a, a very high repetitivity uh, in certain tasks. Um, so my idea is that the spacesuit are a great instrument for EDA uh, because uh, without, we would have no way apart from pure robotics to interact with the uh, spacecrafts. Um, but the uh, spacesuit are very limiting in terms of human skills. Uh, the, uh, the, the EVAs are, uh, are limiting for the dexterity, the strength uh, of humans, and also they are potentially dangerous uh, for many uh, aspects of the human body. Um, so I wanted to uh, design an asset that could make instead um, stronger uh, these skills. Instead, uh, so the idea is that instead of having a spacesuit, that limit human skills. Uh, I wanted a spacesuit that instead could enhance human skills. Uh, from that, it started a project that it was the MMEVR, uh, that stands for multi-mission extravehicular robot, and it's basically that. Um, it's like a it's a multi-limb ro uh, space robot uh, that it's um, in a, uh, it's uh, present both capabilities like of uh, navigation uh, through RCS, so through vectorial movement. Uh, like the, the NASA MMU, but at the same time, uh, it used uh, highly uh, precise um, uh, manipulation capability, like, for example, the Canada. Uh, and and uh, that we saw it in, uh, in, uh, in autonomous mode, and here we see it in cooperative mode with an astronaut. So the, uh, the robot can uh, act standalone, but in the same way can uh, operate in a cooperative way uh, with an astronaut in EVA. Um, so, um, of course, like this concept, in a certain way, comes from something that we already did in space, that was the MMU. Uh, the MMU is, I think, it was a, an incredible invention um, and uh, has been left behind just for certain uh, logistic um, and usability problems. Um, but we used it and we success in, uh, in different space missions. Here we see it with, through the, uh, in a photo. This is a photo of the SMM retrieval in 1984, in which uh, um, the, the, the MMU was used as a way to um, intercept and uh, um, uh, as like a mobile platform to interact with big satellites. So uh, my system, um, it made use of uh, uh, basically um, it's composed by two robots, a service model that is attached virtually to any spacecraft thanks to the international docking port standard and a control station for the uh, robotic limbs inside the spacecraft. Uh, so the, the robotic limbs are not operated by the astronaut, but they are operated by an oper uh, an, another uh, crew member inside the station. Um, and this is, we can see the three different system components because the robot is modular and it can be used in different configuration um, uh, regard, um, based on what is the, the task that needs uh, to be produced. Um, this is like the robot module and uh, it, it uses uh, reaction wheels to, uh, uh, to achieve like a, a very precise orientation. Um, and um, 
as two uh, these two teams that can interact uh, with the different tools. We will see after later after how. Uh, this is the navigation model. This is the one that provides basically the uh, MMU capabilities, so the uh, uh, vectorial navigation. Uh, there are basically two uh, and two tanks uh, of that uh, uh, together with the, the reaction with the offer uh, an autonomy of um, basically uh, uh, three four hours. Um, and uh, there is an harness through uh, which, like the uh, the robot, uh, is docked to the the backpack of the astronaut. Um, here also we can see the different tools that I designed uh, that can interact with the limbs. And uh, we have uh, two grip uh, two grippers, like an adhesive clamp that is used to retrieve satellites, for example, an high density laser uh, that is uh, derived from the space shuttle program, and a, um, and a, uh, basically it's a laser uh, printer to retain, for example, small debris holes. Um, so how it works, uh, the, uh, the service model that it's the, uh, attached to any uh, spacecraft, as I said before, through a SpaceX Dragon uh, XL, uh, it works as a, like a giant uh, multi-purpose uh, uh, airlock. Uh, and uh, uh, what it does is like deploy uh, the robots in space. Um, as you can see, here and uh, it uses uh, Islim's and reaction wheel to dock itself uh, and to assemble autonomously in space. Uh, after that, it can be used again uh, both in autonomous mode uh, on uh, in augmented mode. From the inside, uh, it's controlled through an optic exoskeleton uh, that it's wired by the uh, crew member inside, uh, and they will control two arms uh, every time. So the astronaut inside can decide which of the two arms can be controlled, um, while the other two can be controlled by uh, um, an AI that will learn uh, during the first missions from uh, the astronauts. Well, during the, uh, the this uh, track, um, uh, of the development of this of this project, I went through the whole thing. It has been very fascinating as a process. I did modeling, printing, and testing uh, of a one-one scale uh, model uh, of the robots, and, uh, and that it's currently under testing uh, using uh, immersive uh, technologies like uh, virtual reality. Um, um, this is the this uh, is. I mean, it's not the last uh, production state of the of the robots. Uh, there are more; it's a more advanced uh, uh, situation. But uh, yeah, it's just let you understand. Uh, and at the same time, um, uh, we designed and built as an immersive simulations uh, to test the robots um, in one-on-one scale. This is like the simulation environment in which we are testing the robots. Uh, through uh, basically two different missions in which uh, the robot uh, will be used to uh, exchange some external components uh, of the uh, lunar gateway. Second project, uh, I have to be very fast, but yes, um, the second project um, is basically it's a lunar robotic uh, rover that has been uh, uh, awarded as finalist project for the a Rascal NASA competition uh, last year. Um, the rover is uh, as uh, obviously used uh, based on an assumption from uh, the LLV uh, program uh, of the Apollo. Uh, this is the rover. The rover is completely modular uh, and uh, 
it, it works on the concept that uh, it can be field stripped. So for example, if the astronaut has a problem, uh, like uh, a leg is, uh, is broken, uh, they can exchange components in real time to accomplish the mission. Uh, but not only, the rover, um, uh, the rover uh, come in a robotic configuration. Um, and uh, uh, so as you can see here, it's come without uh, a command post. Uh, so it can uh, um, perform the first part of this mission autonomously. Uh, and uh, after, when the astronauts they, they come on the surface, they basically swap the uh, the artificial in uh, the computer models with the control box, and and uh, so the, the the rover from completely autonomous it become human operated. And here you can see that thanks to its modularity, it can be rearranged during the different phases of the mission for different purposes like uh, transport uh, or exploration uh, or science missions. Yeah, there was some specific of the of the of the rover, like uh, the uh, robotic operated legs, and the concept of having a modular uh, payload box. The third one, and uh, it's it's very short. It's like my uh, PhD research. My PhD research is based on the uh, um, uh, robotic construction for Moon and Mars. And we are currently developing at uh, um, Polytechnical Dubai uh, 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 like an infrastructure uh, to uh, um, operate multiple robots at the same time uh, for, uh, for construction of a single element. So it's like collaborative robotics uh, that it's made uh, through multiple robots printer. Um, it, it's oh, the whole process you use a lot of um, uh, AI algorithm because the robot they have to decide autonomously. They have to understand autonomously uh, uh, where they are and uh, and how to collaborate with the construction process. Uh, to do that, we uh, we will use uh, very basic um, industrial robots on which we will uh, mount uh, a, a printer head. Uh, and uh, um, and uh, each printer head will be uh, uh, basically uh, fueled with uh, regolith simulant cement um, in form of geopolymer. And I think that was it, just in time a bit over. But thank you so much, Vittorio. It's a great leading to our next speaker. We will have questions for you about cobots and uh, and swarms. But then now we are on to Professor uh, Baruch Karsnavis, who will really take this on because he is the pioneer in several areas of robotic construction. Uh, welcome to Baroque. Baroque, are you here? Yeah, he's here. Oh, great. Okay, go for it. Good morning, Baroque. Oh, turn on your mic. Great. Can you hear me now? Yes, you can. How are things in Marina del Rey? Are you there or elsewhere? <laughs> yes, I'm in Marina del Rey. Oh, good to see you. Uh, thank you. I'm trying to find the share screen on this thing. Okay, it's a little tricky. Look for the green button on the bottom. I know, but uh, <laughs> I, I click on the Zoom um, icon. 
Ken may be able to help. Bar doesn't come up. Okay, let's see if Ken can help you. Yeah, if you move the mouse uh, to the button, uh, see the menu, uh, that should have a green button called share screen. Yeah, I know that I use Zoom every day. <laughs> oh, oh, okay, sorry. But, uh, it is showing the program uh, on the screen. Yeah, I am sorry, I cannot, uh, I cannot see the menu of Zoom. The icon is at the lower taskbar, but uh, I, when I press it, the Zoom menu doesn't pop up. Uh, it, it could be on the top, depending on your... All right, if you see shared screen, but then it doesn't come up, Maybe we have to give him different permissions because that happens a lot in my class. Sorry to butt in. No, I don't see the shared screen. You don't see shared screen at the bottom? No. But everyone is given the, the same permission though. Okay. The previous speaker can show. Um, Where earlier I saw that, just a few minutes ago, five minutes ago I saw it, but right now it disappeared. Yeah, another possibility you can email to to Madhu or email to me. We can show it for you. Well, it's maybe you can revoke the permission and then uh, assign again the permission. Probably no, that, that will solve. No, that that was assigned to everyone. There's no individual change. Burke maybe I should solve it, guys. Give him a minute. Burke will solve it. Uh, maybe I should uh, get out and uh, come back in. Okay. Get back into the Zoom again. Try that. Sorry about this. I hope all of you are. Oh, I see John. John is coming. Good morning, John. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning.
Yeah, I, I think uh, Baruch signed off, just trying to sign back in. Okay. Again, one more time to, to all of you uh, who are watching. Um, we are just getting started. And those who tuned in right now, um, we are about to watch um, the literally um, the history of uh, oh, coming up. robotic um, uh, building activities. I was privileged to be part of uh, uh, Professor Koshner's team. Uh, and we were surprised that NASA pulled us in again and again to hear more. I hope we delivered. With that, uh, Baroque, you're on the air. Uh, I apologize uh, for the delay. Uh, okay, so I have a presentation on the research that I did for NASA uh, over a few years. And uh, as Matthew mentioned, I had the pleasure of having him as a, a research partner. Uh, so this had to do with uh, planetary construct, construction and in space fabrication. Uh, I'm a professor at the University of Southern California and the CEO of a company called Contour Crafting. Corporation. Okay, so um, I have been in the field of 3D printing uh, for a long time. Uh, I uh, was there with the pioneers um, and I have several inventions in uh, polymeric, metallic and ceramic. Uh, and of course, right now uh, I'm involved in uh, com uh, composite uh, concrete for large-scale 3D printing. I've developed several technologies, uh, the SIS technology, uh, 3D printing of metallic parts has been licensed to HP. And uh, contour crafting uh, has been uh, my flagship ship technology. And uh, uh, it has uh, advanced uh, to a point where uh, we have different models of the machine now built at the company that I established in 2017. Um, we have made many demonstrations over the years. Uh, it's been 25 years now, actually, since I thought about it. Uh, and uh, what uh, we aspire to do in the future is to add uh, other uh, activities, uh, other uh, tasks of constructions, uh, because 3D printing only, only builds the shell of the building. There's a still a lot to be done to complete the building. Many different demonstrations we've made, many different technologies we have developed. And we have looked at the infrastructure such as columns, uh, uh, building like uh, large towers, tall towers for wind turbine. Um, and the like, uh, this uh, chart was published in Europe. It shows that contour crafting uh, was truly a pioneering uh, technology now uh, at least 10 years ahead of uh, its time uh, of other people. So the uh, project uh, with NASA concerned the uh, building vertical and horizontal structures. For the vertical structures, uh, we considered two different methods for the moon 
situation. We considered the smelting the regolith and extruding it. It was a difficult part of the project. Uh, we made uh, some progress and uh, the, the effort there was uh, to deal with the fertility of the extruded. Uh, the compressive strength is very high, you know, nearly 40,000 PSI when we um, melt and extrude the regolith, but uh, the result is just like a glass, you know, uh, it is very brittle. So then uh, for uh, shady areas of the moon and uh, Martian situation, we looked at sulfur concrete. So if you take sulfur and sand and uh, mix them together and heat them, uh, you can actually bond the particles of sand. So uh, then if you could extrude this, you can build objects uh, much like what you do with uh, uh, other paste material uh, or, or hydraulic concrete on Earth. Uh, but the problem is the uh, abrasive nature of the lunar sand, especially. Uh, it is uh, extremely difficult to push it through any kind of conduit. So we had to develop a number of uh, uh, solutions. Uh, and uh, we used the strong uh, piezoelectric vibration uh, at different stages of this extrusion. Uh, and uh, we uh, finally uh, managed to get the thing done, we use an industrial robot to make our demonstrations. Uh, what you see here is the sulfur concrete coming out of the nozzle in real time. This is a real speed. And you see the specimens that we have built on the right. right this is a three layer specimen here. Um, and we built uh, different um, structures and at different scales uh, just for demonstration. Uh, the compressive strength of these structures uh, is uh, about uh, uh, three to four thousand psi on Earth, which is equivalent of uh, uh, more than twenty thousand psi on the Moon and more than 12,000 PSI on uh, Mars because of the lower gravity of those planets. Yeah, so the system that we conceived was based on a robotic arm that we uh, conceived uh, and uh, and the rover that you see is called Athlete, is uh, what's developed uh, at JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Uh, yeah, so this was just our conception. This technology won the 2014 NASA uh, grand prize in uh, uh, international competition. Next were horizontal uh, structures and at the time, uh, we were asked to uh, focus on landing pads. Uh, reality is that uh, so far uh, on these uh, on the moon and Mars, uh, the landing has been done on just uh, soft soil, uh, and uh, the exhaust plume pushes 
solar way and the bedrock is not horizontal, if it is a slant, there's a chance of the lander tipping over. Uh, so, and uh, we were told that uh, you cannot use a monolithic structure because of the uh, differential in expansion under heat of the exhaust plume. Uh, therefore, it's best to be made with interlocking tiles. And uh, for that, I actually came up with a new 3D printing concept, which would be actually using a simple rover. And the concept is pretty straightforward. We define, uh, we just have the, uh, on a flat uh, ground, you, uh, if the dust is there, uh, you can start right there. If you have to spread it, you do so. Uh, and then uh, you're going to use this kind of rover to define the tiles. Here, for simplicity, the tiles are just uh, square. And the definition is made by depositing inside the soil, the regolith, a higher temperature material. A material with higher melting point. In this case, magnesium oxide. Magnesium oxide is plentiful. Uh, the moon and Mars and uh, uh, and uh, the melting temperature is much higher, uh, over 2,000 versus about 1,100 for the regular uh, regolith. Of course, the lowest melting point ingredient. Uh, of the regolith is 1100 uh, C melting point. And uh, if that melts, it can fuse the other, so it can act like a binder, like cement or like sulfur. Uh, you know, the uh, challenge is just to separate these things, how to, how to keep them separate so that they're mobile with respect to each other. And this is the approach, as I said, we put a higher, uh, insert higher temperature powder there and that is followed by a magnetron uh, with a microwave power. Uh, those uh, lower temperature stuff are melted. These are some samples that we built. Uh, this is, of course, a small scale. Uh, on the top left, what you see is basically a, a, this is a lunar regolith inside of which we delivered uh, uh, magnesium oxide through a very thin nozzle, nozzle. It's like a hypodermic needle in a way, which has got a slot on the side. And uh, yeah, and then we put it in sintering furnace. This is microwave sintering. And uh, as you see, these uh, tiles come out uh, pretty uh, accurately and they're very, very strong. So the idea is that uh, for future landers uh, to not face such a situation. And uh, as you see here, there are more elaborate uh, interlocking tiles that uh, we have conceived. Uh, yeah. So the technology I named SSS, Selective Separation Shaping, and I found out that it is so capable that we can do metallic 3D printing at meso scale and so on. 
so we then uh, extended the operation to this approach uh, for metallic and uh, we did things with bronze and uh, stainless steel. And the nice thing about this technology is that it can build without powder layering. You know, all metallic technologies, uh, powder-based technologies require powder layering, which is not possible in microgravity. But SSS can actually build this stuff without layering. And you can see the surface quality is really comparable or better than selective laser sintering or electron beam machining. And this technology also won a grand prize in uh, 2000. 16. Yes, uh, so we now have uh, a company, Countercrafting, uh, established in uh, El Segundo, California, and uh, we aspire to uh, get active also again uh, in the space uh, research and development. Thank you, and again, I apologize for the delay. Uh, thank you so much, Baroque. Uh uh, good to see you looking happy with that beautiful painting in the background. Um, uh, we uh, will uh, ask some questions later on, Baroque, but please stay on. Don't run away on your sailboat. We, we want you here. Okay. Uh, when is the question and answer uh, going to be? Um, the question and answer will be, I'm afraid it will be at the end of the program, I think. Um, yeah, but if there is a gap, it may happen sooner, depending on how... How much time the president? The end of the program is two o'clock, right? Uh, it'll be about three, I think, by the end. No, but, unfortunately, I apologize. I really have a big commitment today. Okay, okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good to see progress at Koto Crafting Corporation. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Okay, we are on to our next speaker, and it's none other than uh, John Mankins, and um, John will introduce. Uh, some of the wonderful things he's working on uh, with the Moon Village Association and other projects. John? Good morning. Uh, Good morning. It's a real pleasure to be here and uh, wonderful to follow such a, uh, an, an engaging uh, discussion of the progress at Contour Crafting. Uh, just just uh, fabulous. Um, uh, may I share screen? Please do. So uh, for those of you who uh, uh, may remember a past talk that I gave uh, here at the AIAA group, uh, it had to do with activities uh, by the Moon Village Association, Architectural Concepts and Considerations Working Group, of which I am the co-chair uh, with Professor uh, Inatani, formerly with ISAS in Japan. Uh, we are conducting uh, last year and this year a, uh, an international design reference architecture for the Moon Village concept uh, based on the idea of establishing the first uh, human settlement on the moon by 2045. And we had a, a workshop uh, online, uh, which uh, Madhu and I and Professor Inatani all uh, uh, co-organized uh, last December and I have uh, just, uh, I, Madhu, it's okay if I talk for about an hour, hour and a half? 
<laughs> I'm afraid I would love to hear you, but you got to stick to your time, John. Well, maybe maybe I'll just share a few of the uh, the. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 I'll hit the tops of a few of the waves, not okay, even all right. of the tops of all of the waves. That'll be good. And then we'll, we'll have our discussion over barbecue at Nipomo later. Very good. Very good. So let me ask, uh, so uh, uh, seriously, about 10 minutes? 10 minutes is perfect. Okay, very good. So I won't go to the history. The Moon Village Association is would welcome you if you'd like to uh, join. We're, we're very inexpensive, about 10% uh, of an AIAA membership. I, I agree. <laughs> um, the Moon Village Architecture Working Group works in the framework of a series of scenarios of alternative futures. Uh, these have been updated uh, in the last uh, few weeks from the version that was created initially in 2018. These scenarios uh, are building on the Global Exploration Roadmap, which has been established by the International Space Exploration Coordination Group. Um, it essentially looks at uh, uh, alternative futures, but we are focusing, as I said, on this case study uh, in which we would um, target a lunar settlement at the south pole of the moon uh, with a variety of operational zones, including the often illuminated uh, south polar uh, lunar ridge the uh, permanently shadowed regions in the vicinity of that ridgeline, uh, the far side of the moon, low lunar orbit, cislunar space and earth orbit for other supporting operations. Fundamental assumption is that the, uh, the advent of very low cost launch is going over the next six or seven years to change everything in cislunar space. This has not quite happened yet, but you see the piece parts like the Falcon reusable, Falcon 9 reusable, the uh, electric propulsion module that goes with the, the lunar gateway and the high power thrusters, high efficiency thrusters of Buzek, uh, the developments of a variety of new systems to take technologies to the moon, demonstrate them and so on, and the advent of very low cost megawatt solar power in low earth orbit through these mega constellations. If you haven't thought about it in these terms, let me just say um, that uh, uh, they're uh, manufacturing at SpaceX approximately 120 Starlink satellites per month. That is very roughly 500 or 600 kilowatts of space solar power every month. So four times the International Space Station's power capability every month. This kind of mass production is going to be, I think, a, a game changer for energy in the inner solar system, particularly in cislunar space, and will make possible the kinds of ambitious uh, development of lunar resources that we were just talking about and including the manufacture of fuels and so on, because without power, nothing else is possible. Um, I'm going to skip a lot of this material uh, of having to do with the the precursors to the location selection and just jump straight to that. Um, number one issue, being near the sun, having access to the cold traps and their volatiles and access to them on the surface. So this whole question of surface um, roughness, the slopes and so on, 
is extraordinarily critical if you're going to have industrial operations uh, at the, uh, the lunar poles. A variety of other issues associated with the settlement having to do with air, water, uh, recycling, the recycling of all of the major chemical cycles, uh, uh, oxygen, carbon, um, uh, the uh, nitrogen and so on, uh, and uh, just a host of other issues. One of the, the number one premises of having a true settlement is that a settlement will have children. It will have settlers, people who live there essentially indefinitely. And there will also be people who are visiting. We anticipate that there will be visitors. And in fact, the first mission of the uh, SpaceX um, uh, Starship, which they are building, is a space tourism mission. So making this one of the premises, a requirement for a lunar settlement, uh, we think is, uh, uh, is obvious. I won't talk too much about, the, uh, uh, about a lot of this because again, I just want to, to skim through it. The idea is uh, more than one area for habitation. We have not yet gotten into any real detail having to do with the architecture of that habitation. However, the most important consideration is embodied in this um, picture of data of the data well, data set from the lunar reconnaissance orbiter uh, Lola data laser the lunar orbiter laser altimeter data, and in particular that the variation between the highest point in this um, depiction of the data set and the lowest point is five kilometers, and that you have variations of five kilometers over distances on the order of four kilometers. And so you can have extraordinarily steep and rugged terrain everywhere where there is an interest, uh, where there is a, an opportunity to develop lunar resources. So every, and everything that's been uh, talked about, uh, you know, we're gonna build uh, on these beautiful flat surfaces, architecture can start out uh, you know, with this pristine plane that looks a little bit like uh, where Apollo 11 landed. All of that is, in my opinion, crazy and will never happen because the things that are of interest, the energy that we need, the sunlight that we need, and the, uh, the permanently shadowed regions where the ice is located that we are going to try to develop, the reason why everyone is going to the moon, these are separated by five kilometers, eight kilometers, 12 kilometers in linear distance, and by two, three, four, five kilometers in elevation. And, uh, and in between, you have an extremely rugged terrain with variations of 50, 100, 200 meters over lengths the size of a soccer field. And so these are, uh, these are non-trivial. They're very um, interesting slopes. There are some fairly benign areas. One of these, which we have chosen for the site of the, the habitation system, this uh, first lunar settlement, which by the way, I might mention we are naming uh, Oasis. Uh, the uh, off-world, off-earth uh, autonomous um, settlement in Saline, where Saline is the, uh, the name of the moon. Uh, so it spells Oasis. Oasis 1 will be here in this crater, which is uh, on the uh, far edge of the ridgeline away from uh, Shackleton. Uh, this is one of the largely illuminated regions. This is a, an, uh, an elevation map taken, taken from the uh, LRO data by shaving out of the online data set, 
um, uh, an, a, a, a terrain map at uh, individual elevations separated by about uh, 20 meters each. And this is a, a 3D model that uh, I constructed just to show uh, visually what these look like. And the I core idea is for this first human settlement to be here in this upper crater on the outer edge of this, uh, the South Polar Ridge. Uh, and uh, uh, that in the distance, if you look towards the Malapert Massive, which is about 80 or 100 kilometers away toward the earth, that the earth itself will be visible from the settlement uh, in the sky. Uh, if, you, uh, if you look out uh, what I think will be required, which are some windows. So it'll be uh, here. Uh, there will be a need for an uh, agricultural area for uh, crop production and for recycling of the, uh, the various uh, key uh, cycles. Uh, and of course, uh, there's a number of elements that can be developed from lunar resources, and there are others which will have to be imported. And so low cost transportation will be absolutely enabling for any kind of a, uh, of a lunar settlement. This is the approximate concept model that we are envisioning, uh, which is uh, based on, in this case, a cliff dwelling in the American Southwest, the Anazazi people, uh, and the idea being that uh, through a combination of uh, tunneling and construction using technologies exactly like uh, were discussed uh, in, uh, for con of the con in contour crafting, uh, that this is how we can uh, quickly develop a, uh, both a settlement uh, quickly, i.e. in 25 years, uh, and a, um, a volume for uh, agricultural operations. This just gives you a, a, a look at what it would uh, look like if you were looking from Malapert Massive back in the general direction of the, uh, of the um, Oasis One. Uh, we've also got uh, planning, which we'll be publishing, having to do with a spaceport uh, to support the, uh, settle the Oasis One uh, and the fuel depot uh, to support the, uh, the spaceport. Uh, and then, of course, there are various locations in this vicinity which are permanently shadowed and have uh, uh, the prospect for ice mining. One of the best is this one, which is in this diamond shape, because the terrain in going from Oasis One to this permanently shadowed region where ice has been detected is quite is relatively I won't say quite it's relatively benign, and so you have a uh, you can you have the prospect of surface access to the ice deposits and the ability to bring back the, um, the extracted ice for processing and turning it into uh, uh, propellants and uh, atmospheric um, materials and so on. Uh, and with that, uh, Madhu, I think I will stop. Uh, I think that's about 10 minutes. I'm sorry if I took a little too long. I'll just say that we are looking at a, also looking at the economics for such a settlement uh, and, uh, and how all of the prospects uh, for uh, operations and services and so on might uh, knit together. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, John. You're so so rational that it I can't handle. I can't keep my horses. I, you know, we want this done tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thank you, thank you, John. We are off to our next speaker, and that is uh, Michael Morris. Um, um, I want to tell you that a couple of years ago, it was not too long ago, that I started to see some incredible images coming out of this firm called uh, Surge. 
And uh, I think Michael will tell us more about all the good things happening before you share back. Well, welcome to welcome to the Space Architects ga Gathering, Michael. Your uh, I oh, can, I mean, um, now I can, you can hear me? Yes, we can. Greetings, everyone. Uh, I'm, I'm here with my colleagues, Christina Chardolo and Rebecca Pels Friedman, but in the, uh, in the uh, uh, idea of just trying to be time effective, but it's just gonna be me um, uh, speaking to you today. So. Hi, everybody. And then uh, because I'm in, I'm in the West of Ireland, I'm gonna be dropping off the call. So hopefully my colleagues can remain um, on the, on the, in the event to okay. participate in the Q&A. But we also have a couple of other team members that we're working on this project that we're going to share with you today, the Lunar Lantern. Uh, Vittorio Netti and Massa uh, are also here and can also potentially uh, address some of the questions that may come up if thank you all. Go for it. Uh, also not able to stay. So thank you so much. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and share my screen. Uh, okay. Share. Everybody see that? Is that visible? Yes. Great. Um, so I'm just going to jump in and we're going to just start by showing you a video. Can everybody hear this? We are the light that travels beyond to the moon. The water is low an extraordinary environment requiring extraordinary architecture. Search Plus introduces the Lunar Lantern. Is a way to increase the voting? Our contribution to uh, I'm looking at that. I the can't. The NASA-funded research and development program for a space-based construction system to support future exploration of the moon. The moon harsh and hostile. Extreme temperature swings between 127 degrees Celsius to negative 238 degrees. Hours of seismic activity in the form of moonquakes and micrometeorite impact, all within a near atmospheric vacuum. For a permanent lunar presence to exist, robust structures will need to be built on the moon that provide better thermal, radiation, and micrometeorite protection than metal or inflatable habitats can provide. In order to achieve this, Search Plus designed responsive and resilient structures to be built using ICON's Olympus construction system and 3D printing technology. Oops, sorry. Sorry, I'm going to go forward. We are the light that travels beyond. <laughs> An extraordinary environment requiring extraordinary architecture. Search Plus introduces the Lunar Lantern. Our contribution to ICON's Project Olympus 
the NASA-funded research and development program for a space-based construction system to support future exploration of the moon. The moon, harsh and hostile. Extreme temperature swings between 127 degrees Celsius to negative 238 degrees. Hours of seismic activity in the form of moonquakes and micrometeorite impact, all within a near atmospheric vacuum. For a permanent lunar presence to exist, robust structures will need to be built on the moon that provide better thermal, radiation, and micrometeorite protection than metal or inflatable habitats can provide. In order to achieve this, Search Plus designed responsive and resilient structures to be built using ICON's Olympus construction system and 3D printing technology. The Lunar Lantern Outpost consists of habitats, sheds, landing pads, blast walls, and roadways. Landing pads, thought to be one of the first lunar structures, will need to contain and control the supersonic and subsonic dust ejecta created during launch and landing. Search Plus's design offers multiple strategies for both dust mitigation and dust collection in printability, form, and function. In order to replicate the Earth's daily circadian rhythms and seasonal cycles, the Lunar Lantern utilizes a fiber optic system, which captures the nearly perpetual light at the moon's south pole and modulates it in both brightness and color temperature. The interior of the habitat is organized vertically with three designated levels for work and exercise, dining and social, sleeping and private spaces. The Lunar Lantern employs three key structural components. Base isolators at the foundation are employed to dampen seismic activity. Externally deployed post-tension cables apply compressive stress to the 3D printed regolith walls. And a protective double shell called a wiggle withstands ballistic impact. The Lunar Lantern concepts aim to exceed the factors of safety for its inhabitants in support of mankind's first extended mission on the moon's surface. So sorry about that little uh, glitch at the beginning. Um, if you uh, may know a little bit about this project, it's uh, part of the Project Olympus, working with uh, commissioned by uh, Icon Build out of Austin and under the sort of guise of the uh, Moon to Mars Planetary Autonomous Construction Technology or MPACT uh, team that we are participating and developing uh, concepts for uh, habitats, uh, infrastructural uh, components, and uh, landing pads, including landing pads, 
for the lunar surface for the lunar mission as 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 part of that and the project was largely site agnostic as well as uh thing that we were working with uh, uh icons uh gantry system I'm trying to move this forward it's moving forward no, why is this not moving forward there we go the project started uh, i'm just going to go very briefly this is a, almost a lecture by itself uh uh, our colleague Christina Chardolo sort of led this part of the project, which actually what became the catalyst for the MPAC project when we went to at NASA after our successes with the um, with the uh, Centennial Challenge competitions. Uh, we went to NASA to sort of start to build our uh, to begin to full scale test some of our concepts. Um, and we just started developing this earth space relationship and these sort of Venn diagrams. So I'm giving you a little bit of the background of the of the project, um, because uh, I think the video, which is was today was I think was the premiere of that video um, uh, to you all um, is the sort of thing. So we really looked at this sort of Venn diagrams in terms of construction technology, material innovation, sustainable operations, sustainable and and scalability and human factors and so this is a kind of a, a paper and a presentation perhaps on its own where we were extensively looking at that but as um as john was mentioning and and uh, the previous speakers were mentioning it sort of combines a lot of that information about the moon and so speaking to the choir i'm not going to go into too much depth here but we did a lot of extensive background in fact it really takes us an hour to get through the general presentation of, of what we sort of tapped into and thinking about it. But we were basically looking at these four main factors, adaptability, flexibility, resilience, and multi-use. So I'm just gonna be very brief with this. And so we were also working with the sort of timeline of, even though we were not, our project wasn't, didn't specifically ask us to do this, we, we felt that we needed to do a lot of uh, background uh, material and precedent study and also beginning to figure out with the technology readiness level, the TRL, how we could actually fold into the existing uh, uh, Artemis uh, mission and project timeline to put boots on the ground. And we, although we were site agnostic, we did an extensive uh, site analysis, sort of looking at uh, precedent in terms of these putting this lunar reconnaissance orbiter maps together with uh, illuminance, topography, and temperature, uh, beginning to look at that as you saw in the video. And so we looked at the, a lot of different architectural precedents from particularly from the 60s on over on up, but in the RLSO, RLSO2 precedents in particular in terms of siting and beginning to come up with master plan strategies, although that was not our charge in this project. So we're going to move on. Uh, we kind of covered the sort of landing pads in the video a little bit. So I'm not going to go into that too much today. Uh, but again, our, our charges were sort of, uh, we took a larger view of this planar surface construction, shielding habitats and utility shelters, uh, in addition to sort of looking at the landing pads. And it was really an opportunity to begin to start talking to public and private sectors between NASA and uh, obviously, uh, you know, the Blue Origin, SpaceX, and Dynetics in terms of the sort of landing pattern. I see that my lander at the bottom fell off the slide, but I'm sort of moving them around. Uh, they're all attached, but basically working with, um, you know, this information um, about the 17 degree, uh, three degree uh, dust plume mitigation in the sort of landing pad. 
And then quickly moving on, sort of like looking at all of the different construction technologies from jacks to li lift tilt up prefab panels to pressure vessels, inflatable and post tensioning foundation systems, and then looking at the different issues of the sort of capstone, the sort of uh, overhang angle issues of, of building a pressurized habitat solely out of ISRU materials. Um, so we stuck on this. So I'm going to move forward. Um, sort of looking at then just developing a series of, of sheds. We sort of use the project to build our own vocabulary in terms of uh, beginning to think about how we would actually um, develop the architecture along the sort of different class missions along also through the timeline and what would be, be ready to do in a few years time versus uh, ultimately you know, several decades down the road. So it's not moving forward so easily. Oops. So we really, you know, part of Search's thing is that we're very interested in humanizing um, the spaces that we make. So we, we get, we draw a lot of inspiration from uh, biological sources. And in this particular case, you know, uh, we were looking at pine cones, sort of seed cone relationships. And, and in the end, you know, because we had to introduce um, expansion joints into the Whipple shield, I found this direct real correlation between our diagrid on the outside and this um, uh, actually called Sputnik um, sea urchin, um, appropriately named. Um, but begin just looking at this sort of, you know, human factors aspect. And if we're going to send people into space for a, a, a long period of time, I think it's searches our, our firm's uh, mandate that humans are positioned at the center. Um, and so we sort of look to both uh, uh, space uh, precedents as well as earth precedents and beginning to think that. We spent a long time doing uh, a relationship between form optimization, um, relationship between the program and the printability um, issues and the sort of uh, relationship to that, to the habitat in particular. And this is sort of the, what we call the hero section of the habitat, which basically shows the elements, the Himawari fiber optic system, the Whipple shield, the post-tensioning cables, the 3D printed wall, the pressurized material liner, the window facing earth, 3D printed foundation, parabolic base isolators, and a motorized spool for the tension cable. So you'll see this uh, coming up again. Um, this is sort of habitat requirements, structural analysis so again responding to radiation seismic activity extreme temperatures and meteorite uh, meteorite impact um, in relationship to what we were designing and we sort of used these three basic things that you saw in the video base isolation post tensioning and a whipple shield to address some of these the seismic activity the sort of pressurization of the actual uh, printed uh, sintered regolith um, and then the Whipple shield to deal with micrometeorites, but interestingly enough, also to deal with the sort of temperature. And a lot of our structural analysis, as was referred to earlier, that the sintered regolith could turn into a glass-like structure, we kept it at a sort of lower uh, melting point and sort of produce a sort of ceramic. So a lot of our, our structural data are, are, are based on the fact that we would actually produce uh, a ceramic sintered uh, material. And this is something that um, is yet, uh, is also simultaneously as part of the impact team is also being worked on. Um, but this was our 
our own internal um, analysis, both on the sort of seismic loading, the, the weight of this thing would actually have been probably okay, um, we found out, but there are certain issues of the sort of pressurization um, that you'll see in terms of the relationship of without uh, post-tensioning on the left and with post-tensioning on the right. And you see you get a lot more blue by the added sort of cap. And this was also part of the deployment. But more interestingly enough was the sort of our preliminary studies of the six inch deflection that happens relative to the thermal uh, loading on the actual printed regolith. So this is a, a really a, a kind of an interesting find and sort of really felt like it, it kind of uh, uh, really encapsulated this relationship between our uh, Whipple shield shell, uh, the sort of diagrid and the relationship of the internalized habitat, sort of offering not only ballistic protection, but um, uh, protection from thermal uh, expansion and its sort of replaceability. And essentially what we found out for, even from the Whipple shield is that we had to introduce these expansion joints, um, which we're sort of currently uh, continuing to work on to develop. So just in terms of its sighting, again, it was sort of site agnostic, but we were sort of more or less leaning towards the sort of precedent of the lunar south pole and looking at sites, obviously, for those three criteria that I mentioned earlier, flatness. But we were just looking at very basic integration between um, the fairing of the, of the payload and the sort of rocket and how we would get these internal core structures delivered from Earth. We were also looking at how our structure could obviously we sort of developed the centerpiece the level excavated but we were looking at it in terms of different uh, possibilities of, of terrain and then expansion in terms of uh, first floor to second floor uh, airlock systems that could uh, offer uh, connections to laboratories so this habitat was solely developed as a habitat um, but we because we saw that uh, laboratories should be separate structures um, if there if there is laboratory work being done just an animation of the construction sequence. Uh, so these sort of uh, these leaves, if you were, were sort of at would be replaceable um, should there be meteorite impact. And then one of the big internal debates that we had was whether the Whipple shield needed to be printed simultaneously or separately as per the diagram, like sort of from the inside out. So you have the, the left showing the simultaneous printing and the right showing the sort of sequential printing. So this was a big debate that we had internally about how the uh, habitat would need to be protected while it was being built from the very thermal expansion that it was experiencing from oh. the heat, um, the tremendous heat exchange. How, so are these doing, just... how are we doing on time? Uh, I'm done. Michael? Oh, great. Perfect. <laughs> oh, this is great. Um, you know, uh, pineapple is my favorite uh, fruit. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I, have a, I have a large pine cone in front of the front of our home, too. But the wonderful yeah, presentation. Mine, mine is always on my desk. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you so much. Uh, I know every one of those authors you put on there, uh, Melody Yashar, talked to my class just not too long ago, uh -huh. and uh, she was a presenter at the last event, I think, right, uh, Ken? But anyway, uh, thank you so much. Wonderful presentation. 
Based Sorry about the sound in the video. We have to pump that up a little bit. <laughs> base isolation is critical, Michael. I'm glad you addressed that. All we have to do now is worry about the dust, but that's another day. Mm. Uh, with that, we are going to Rodrigo in my favorite place of the world, Hawaii. How are things in paradise, Rodrigo? Microphone. Things are great here, Madhu. Uh, early in the morning right now. Uh, we're finally getting some sunny days after a lot of rain, but That's things right. are really good here. Go for it. Uh, well, thank you, uh, Madhu, and aloha to everybody. As Madhu said, I'm, I'm reaching to you from Hilo, Hawaii, the big island of Hawaii. I'm going to be talking to you about some of the work that we have been doing <clears throat> here at Pisces. Uh, we're a state agency located on the big island. Our main focus is to develop the aerospace industry in the state. Uh, we all know what ISRU is all about, uh, you know, collection and processing of use of local uh, resources and materials that replace materials that would otherwise be brought in from, from Earth. Uh, and as you all know, ISRU, it's not a really new concept. We've been doing ISRU for thousands of years. The thing is that when we go to the moon or Mars, we're not gonna have as many resources as our predecessors have had in new locations here. But one thing we do have plenty of is regolith. And the nice thing about regolith is that it's readily available, easy to access, does not need to be processed. Uh, you just basically bend over and scoop it up and you have it in your hands. One thing um, that we have here in Hawaii is access to plenty of, of uh, a good Mars or lunar simulant on, in the form of our basalt. Hawaii has been used for many years back from the Apollo days to do analog testing of hardware, equipment, uh, instrumentation, uh, robotics, mobility testing. And as you can see from this graph uh, on the bottom of the, of the slide, the there are strong similarities between some of the basalt that we have here in Hawaii and some of the lunar and Mars um, soil samples that have been analyzed, which makes it a good place to, to do some testing <clears throat> when it comes to, to ISRU applications of regolith. One of the areas where we have been focusing our research is on centering of, of Hawaiian basalt. And it's got many applications that have been already discussed in some of the previous talks uh, from launch pads, paper manufacturing for thermal wadis, reentral thermal heat shields, radiation shields, flooring tiles, tools and parts, construction blocks, um, thermal uh, insulation, paved surfaces. There's a lot of applications for, for regolith centering. Our, our original work with centering goes back to 2015-16, where we joined forces with Honeybee Robotics and the guys at Honey at uh, Swamp Works at Candy Space Center where we built a, a landing pad uh, from start to finish. It was all built uh, through teleoperations. Uh, it was made with interlocking tiles made from centered uh, basalt. So it was all meant to be a proof of concept to see if it's possible to build a launch pad, full-scale launch pad with just in-situ resources and be built tele-robotically. Uh, so we had several findings from that project. One, it is possible we were able to build the landing pad. <clears throat> we learned a lot from the, from the design of the, of the pavers as well as the material that we utilized. Uh, the interlocking pavers, 
you know, the, the material first, the, the material proved to be tolerant to the velocities and the heat from the exhaust of the rocket motor. We submitted the, the tiles to a, a static rock, rocket motor test. Um, the design had a, had some problems that caused uh, airlift of, of the tiles once the hot gases penetrated uh, underneath the tiles. Uh, it got through the through the joints of the tiles. But fortunately, the, the impact paver got pinned in place by the exhaust of the motor. And what we found out after we, we tested that, that impact paver was that the material did not suffer any significant degradation or loss of material due to the velocity or the, or the heat from the exhaust of the motor. Um, this also showed us the importance of, of um, you know, a couple of presentations have talked about using tiles, interlocking tiles for uh, launch pads. Uh, sealing the joints between the tiles, we're doing some kind of grouting to prevent the hot gases from infiltrating in between the tiles is going to be a critical part of the, of the design process of, of a launch pad if it's going to be using sintering um, tiles. As far as, as uh, properties of the basalt goes, uh, the first generation of sintered basalt we, we built is that uh, orange reddish uh, sample on the on the top on the center left of the slide and you can see from its properties uh, flexural strength and compressive strength it lies somewhere in between residential concrete and commercial concrete as we advance we develop a, a, a stronger type of, of center uh, basalt the one on the center and and right uh, that has significantly stronger structural properties than the first generation we're talking now about 5,800 PSI of flexural strength and 30,000 pounds of compressive strength, which makes it stronger than uh, specialty concrete. Uh, it's been, we've been working with that material and testing it for, for launch pad material. The picture on the bottom right is a, a tile we tested with Mast and Space Systems in California. Uh, there's been a learning process in how to develop this material. The sec second picture from the bottom shows one of some of the initial work we had. And we had a lot of, of cracking and fracturing on, on the tiles. Uh, we learned that, later learned that the cooling process is just as important as the heating process. And we've gotten to the point where, where we can now repeatedly produce tiles of, of consistent um, properties. Now this material also has uh, the characteristic that, that it can be machined. So you can do some reductive manufacturing as well. Uh, right now we've been focusing on mold, uh, creating uh, our parts, our tiles in molds in a conventional kiln. Um, as you can imagine, it, it does have, it is a, a very energy intensive process, uh, which is a downside to sintering. One area that, that, uh, that called our attention. Uh, there's a lot of talk about doing sintering both on the moon and Mars, uh, but very little attention seems to be given to the mineralogy of the regolith that's gonna be used. So we started looking at that. And the first thing we, we thought is, you know, we know that not all basalt is created equal. Uh, it's going to vary. So we start collecting samples from various commercial quarries and analog sites here on the big island to see what the variations and mineral composition of basalt was, and we found that there is indeed uh, some significant variations. What's interesting here, if you look at the uh, Hawaii Puna A compared to Hawaii Puna B, 
These are samples collected from the same quarry. And if you look at the magnesium oxide variation, it's quite significant. Um, we found out that that quarry is located in the joint zone of two volcanoes, Mauna Loa and Kilauea. So depending on how deep you, you mine the basalt from that quarry, you're gonna be collecting uh, basalt from one volcano or the other. And the basalt, depending on the volcano source, it's going to vary. So we found out that there are chemical or mineral variations in the composition of basalt. What does this have to do or how does this affect the centrability of material? It turns out that it's quite significant. Uh, as you can see, the bottom three are three samples uh, centered from three different quarries, all three centered at the exact same temperature. Uh, and we have one sample, Bolton, that was just completely junk. I mean, it would fall apart in your hands, which is pulverized. Uh, the other one, PTA, is a little bit stronger, and then Glover is, is a much stronger uh, material. So the, the variation in mineralogy does have effect on centrability, which then follows this reason. If we're going to be talking about centering on the moon or Mars, we need to find out what the composition of the, of the regolith is at desired locations uh, to do that uh, construction and see if that regolith is suitable for the centering process. Right now, we are working on a, um, using a, a mineral-based uh, binder and aqueous solution. We actually just were notified that we are, a proposal we submitted in collaboration with Mass and State, uh, Space Systems for an SDTR has been selected to develop a low energy uh, additive manufacturing process for uh, launch pads. Um, this, this new uh, binder that we're utilizing uh, has several benefits. One, it reduces the mold deterioration that we're having problems with right now. It, re it significantly reduces uh, the centering temperature of, of the basalt. Uh, it can cure in lunar or Mars environment uh, without the need to add uh, additional heat. Uh, it's got the potential for additive manufacturing through extrusion. And the binder has the potential of being synthesized on Mars, not so much on the moon, or it will be harder to synthesize on the moon, but definitely uh, it can be synthesized from Martian regolith. It will require the use of water. So that, that's kind of the trade-off. You can do low energy additive manufacturing, uh, which, which reduces uh, the, the energy demand, but you will require uh, to use water uh, for the manufacturing process. Um, that's what I have right now. Um, I don't want to take too much time. I know we're running a little late. Uh, here's my contact information. If anybody has any any questions or would like to to reach out to me, I'll be more than glad to to uh, communicate with you. I will try to stay uh, towards the end to, to until the end of today's talk to uh, to answer any questions. But in any case, I have to leave. Here is my contact information, and I'd be um, glad to share information with you. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Rodrigo. Well, Yes. Thank you, you know, one of the things you want to do, look at this. I have the one that you machined for me. Maybe that's where the trick lies in shaping structures just to fit. And uh, thank you so much for your talk. Um, we are off to our uh, next speaker uh, who is joining us from uh, New York. And that is, uh, that's right, that's right. Thank you. Thank you, Rodrigo. Uh, uh, Daniel Innocente uh, is uh, extremely busy uh, at the Skidmore, at the storied Skidmore Owings and Merrill. Uh, welcome, Daniel. Is there snow? Thank you. Is there snow outside? 
No, it's very sunny, so I can't wait oh, to get out. <laughs> glad that's over with. Yeah, good to have you. Please continue. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So I'm going to be presenting um, something that I came up with and pitched to Madhu called Integrated Tectonics. And I, th I think um, it, you know, it's important for all of us working on space architecture and the ideas behind space architecture to you know, sometimes step back and think about the impact that these concepts can have on, on, on Earth and terrestrial applications. So I wanted to start with first thinking about how, you know, how does architecture impact cities as a whole? Because urbanism, you know, it's changing dramatically. Um, there's tons of energy being used, tons of material. It takes a lot of ingenuity to build cities, to build structures, to build inhabited environments. And, you know, we have great examples. We have examples where density um, really creates a lot of requirements from every, every discipline working on, um, you know, different parts of infrastructure to bring together their, their expertise and to, you know, make cities viable and also to make um, settlements viable in, in extreme environments like in McMurdo Station. And so the kinds of logics, I think, and the kinds of, um, um, ideas that we we had produced to build these these um, interventions have to be very integrated. They have to be thoughtful and they have to look far into the future. Um, you know, when I get I have the privilege of working on projects across scales um, in my role at SOM, and so I've had the privilege of working on large, tall towers, uh, master plans, airports, um, research projects, space architecture projects. And I think the, the most valuable thing that we can bring to the table is, you know, really the idea of design integration and finding ways to leverage the context that we're working in, whether it's environment or even technological context. Um, and so these are just examples of, you know, projects that I think have a lot of applicability to space architecture when you, when you think about the design approach. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, they're very complex structures. Space architecture is also very complex. And we have to think about environmental performance, energy, sustainability, materials, construction techniques. There's so many parameters that we have to piece together. And what I'm showing you here is an example of, you know, how sometimes my mind works. I'm, I'm connecting different, um, different drivers, different forces together to try and generate architecture in a very thoughtful, but also in a very integrated way. Um, and this is my, you know, maybe it's a messy process, but it's my process. And as much information as I can gather and integrate at any given moment in my projects, I try to do that as efficiently as possible. And so, you know, just thinking about examples of how we approach it, we do simulation for environmental performance. We look at planning, we look at the, the distribution of different spaces to create comfort in different environments. We look at constructability, looking at how pieces of buildings come together, um, you know, looking at the environmental impact, looking at how um, energy, potential energy can be transformed into something usable for an architecture. And we're, we're thinking about these and we're applying these, these um, logics to large scale structures. And you know, there's a lot of ambition for these technologies in the future for space architecture. But if you think about them in terrestrial terms, there's also, you know, I think a lot of challenges that we, we still have to have to deal with, although there's, you know, some, some great solutions 
in terms of energy production, we still have to figure out how do we make these technologies more efficient so that we can make them viable, you know, for terrestrial applications. Structural efficiency, another big thing, you know, the amount of structure that goes into any building, concrete, the mass required is just tremendous. And cities produce and consume so much concrete, which is a great CO2 emission material. You know, we have to think carefully about how we use these materials. Um, and at the same time, we're starting to push the envelope in terms of manufacturing. Here we have examples of using polymers to do 3D printing, using robotic printing, looking at how geometry and new additive manufacturing techniques can come together, can work together to make structures more efficient. Um, and so what, you know, what this does is it puts in context, I think, what's happening to architecture, which is it's being reimagined through new systems, new methods, new materials. And what does this mean for space architecture? What can it mean? So it's an opportunity to expand the scope and scale of architecture, but really to completely recontextualize the purpose and the meaning for what architecture can bring to future inhabited environments and the way that we build them. And the project that I'm going to talk about here in terms of space architecture is one where we looked at um, our nearest neighbor, the moon, and we worked together with the European Space Agency and faculty at MIT to come up with a concept for what near-term space architecture could be. And what you see here is this very aspirational idea of taking a completely fully integrated habitat architecture, bringing it to the south pole of the moon and making use of proximity to resources, proximity to energy, and looking for opportunities to conduct science, but at the same time, designing an architecture which brings a level of humanity to it so that you can work and live in different ways that um, you know, sometimes is missed, a missed opportunity in current forms of space architecture. And so you know, the context, a big driver. You know, we have tons of potential energy. If you know how to place your structure, if you know how to place your settlement, but we also have a lot of challenges because the, the geography is very complex. Um, you know, getting equipment there is extremely difficult, but at the same time, we also know that there's some new vehicles, new assets being developed, like super heavy lift launchers that could potentially change the character of space architecture, bringing new, much larger pieces of architecture to um, our nearest neighbor, the moon. Um, and the approach that we developed with ESA was, you know, it's a very kind of methodical approach, but you have to start with assumptions. You have to think about, well, what kind of infrastructure do you need? You, you kind of have to anticipate that there's, there's gonna be a certain level of infrastructure already in place. And then you have to come up with a concept of operations. What does that mean? That means you have to define how different systems operate through different mission phases. And the habitat is only one of those components in that entire concept of operations. But, it, but this defines the requirements and the design approach to how you design a habitat. And so in our case, we looked at a potential habitat for four, four to six people for a mission duration of up to 300 consecutive days. That is a very, you know, that's <laughs> a very long duration. Um, but during the process, we, we learned that we, have to, we had to rethink how long you can actually support um, an occupied habitat for, because there's other hazards like radi radiation. And also you need to be able to supply, um, you know, the crew with, with uh, cargo with food, with water. Um, some of those things, you know, they take other subsequent missions. And so you have to think about how you, uh, how you tie everything together. 
um, a good reference for us was looking at the International Space Station. There's a lot of really great examples of how you build pressurized structures out there. And there's also other concepts which make use of inflatable um, technologies. But you know, this is just the beginning. At the same time, we're also looking at how do you test? How do you launch? How do you dock? How do you land? How do you deploy this kind of architecture? Um, and all of this, you know, it, 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 came, it came to us in the form of a hybrid type structure where we tried to leverage um, existing pressurized technologies for rigid metal structures, but then also found a way to integrate in an inflatable shell. Um, and I won't, I won't go into too much detail on how these pieces come together, but there is, there is some information about that. Um, the mission components, you know, like for any, any kind of architecture of this scale, you do need to consider what kind of launcher you're gonna use. You know, if it's something that weighs more than 40 metric tons, you're starting to get, you know, way beyond what we can actually deliver to the moon. But then if that's the case, if you're thinking about large payloads, then you have to conceptualize what does a lander like this look, what does a lander for this kind of architecture look like? What kind of landing pads do you need? What kind of tugs do you need? You need um, also construction equipment like mobile cranes, you need power sources, you know, you, need, you either need um, energy like power stations that can collect solar, in which case, you know, it becomes a lot, large amount of surface area for solar power, or you can use fission reactors. So there's concepts out there about, you know, using fission reactors to produce energy. Um, and all, you know, we, we took all this into consideration and we came to terms with the fact that infrastructure is a huge driver in how you think about space architecture. But at the same time, we wanted to, you know, approach this with a, a very human, a very experiential um, approach. And so we, we took a look at what kinds of programs do you need inside the space architecture? You need, you know, livable space, you need to be able to work. Most of the time spent inside of the habitat is gonna be, you know, very, very much planned ahead. And, and so the kind of work and the efficiencies that you can get out of the way that you lay out spaces, that's something that has to be thoughtfully um, okay. put together. Go ahead. Just to continue, architectural considerations. You know, we looked at a wide range of parameters for this kind of, um, for this project. Um, and this is what you see here and materialized in a configuration which really tries to um, make use of the internal volume, centralize the space, and also try to distribute different things like line of sight, communication, airflow, lighting control, all of these different um, features have to be integrated into the habitat and have to be you know, well within reach. You have to make use of the space efficiently, but you also wanna make sure that people have enough um, you know, mobility and, and, and ability to interact with each other in different ways. Um, in this case, what you see here is you see a concept for um, a, kind of like a pod. You know, when you think about what does a bedroom look like for space architecture, some concepts they try to create um, these units where you have, you know, like a typical bedroom unit, like you would in a Manhattan loft or a apartment. But in space, because every cubic meter of volume is so valuable, you really want to come up with a completely different idea. And we try to do that here. I'm going to skip through some of these. But I think um, structural analysis, you know, going back to the idea of integration is a very important one. Here we looked at using FEA analysis and finding the stress lines and articulating those stress lines 
between the rigid frame so that when you start to come up with the way that the straps would overlap, because we're thinking about using Vectran straps, for example, for the structural layer, they, the directionality and the, the way that they deploy is extremely important and you have to follow you know, the, the stress lines very, very efficiently. Um, and the structural shell that we looked at, you know, when you look at examples of um, inflatable shell structures, most of the time you're gonna see just the structural and the pressure vessel layer um, exhibited. But on top of that, you also need the thermal, oops, sorry about that. On top of that, you also need the thermal protection. Um, you need MMOD for micrometeorite impacts and all of that increases the, the thickness of the structural, the, the material that makes up the external shell. And so coming up with ways of packing all that material together is something that we looked at carefully, but um, I won't talk about it too much in, in detail here. Um, power was another one. So we looked at what, how much power would you need if you only depended on solar energy, for example, you know, you would need, um, you would need a lot more surface area than you would if you only depended on, on a fission reactor. But at the same time, a fission reactor is also um, a smaller mass compared to the amount of um, PV, PV panels that you would need in the mass associated with that. And so, you know, there's trade-offs that you can think of. Yes, solar power is abundant if you're at the right altitude, but it's also less efficient in terms of how much material you have to get there to be able to create that, that power station. Um, of course, radiation is a big um, factor here. And so we looked at how do we reinforce the structure? Because inherently, uh, uh, you know, a, a metal frame and, and structural shell technology only has so much radiation protection. So you have to reinforce it. And we talk about, you know, using ISRU to reinforce our habitats. And so we did do some studies on how you build a structural shell um, around the habitat. And I'll show a little bit about that. Um, in the next slides. Life support is also very important. Um, looking at what kinds of life support systems you can include, where they can be integrated. Are they part of the, you know, the habitat permanent structure or are they part of the rack systems that get deployed after? You know, there's different ways of configuring um, life support systems. And at the same time, there's more advanced um, ways of thinking about life support, like pr food production, for example. Um, and so if you, if you really want to advance those kinds of technologies, you know, you have to have the right experts involved. Um, and that's what ESA provided. And so this is a demonstration of what the unit looks like. It's a fairly large structure. It's a four-story structure. Um, it inflates from eight meters to up to about a 14 meter diameter. And so that's a fairly large <laughs> structure compared to other habitats that are out there. But the amount of pressurized volume is close to 600 um, cubic meters. And the habitable volume after we've extracted all the, all the volume consumed by the racks and, and equipment is about 390 cubic meters. Um, and so when, when you think about this kind of architecture, like what would be the first habitable space architecture? You know, it, I've, in, my, in our opinion, it needs to be a large structure that can host a wide range of activities. It needs to be able to enable future construction and those, and those kinds of activities are long-term. You know, it takes time to build. And so with the right habitat architecture, you can really start to explore and make use of resources and build these kinds of structures that we're talking about, whether they're underground or above ground and make use of 
other technologies that can be more generative to help us um, define what these structures would look like, um, you know, given the, the constraints like, like mass, thickness, construction technique, um, all these things have a huge role to play. And what you see here is just an approach that we use to define, you know, multiple objectives and look, look for ways to articulate those geometries. Um, this is a, uh, an illustration of how we envision construction happening over place over time. Um, but it does take a lot of a, a lot of infrastructure. And so the, with the right infrastructure, with the right transportation systems, we can start to get these pieces of equipment and capabilities there so we can build these tall structures. But at the same time, you know, habitat systems will need to be developed and they have to be integrated. We have to find, you know, find a way to to think think of new architectural technologies that can make these habitats viable in the future. So that's that's it for my talk. Thank you so much, Daniel. So much to chew on in your, <laughs> yeah. in your beautiful, beautiful rendition. Um, I just uh, made some notes. Uh, uh, those solar panels need to go someplace else because in about a day, none of them will produce power uh, because uh, of all the shadows that come on there. Even if you uh, shine, uh, even if you place them, oh, maybe there are ways to do this, but uh, it's, it's wonderful. You brought up some very important building issues because you work at SOM. Thank you, thank you so much. And I know that you experience these problems. Yeah, absolutely. We run because uh, uh, we are a little bit late, but uh, our next presenter is uh, Giuseppe uh, from uh, Sydney. Hello, Giuseppe. Uh, yes, I'm not sure if it's good afternoon here. It's uh, 6.30 in the morning uh, in <laughs> Sydney, Australia. <laughs> you're, looking, uh, you're looking just good and ready to go. Um, uh, so we are moving from orbital habitats to lunar habitats, and now we are slipping into uh, interplanetary. Uh, we are looking, going to start looking at Martian habitats. Go for it. Uh, thank you, Professor Mado. Thanks you. For, thank you for the invite. It's a, it's a, it's an honor to be here, and it's a very exciting topic. Uh, most of the presenters I know was um, lovely discovering new people, and uh, also um, been citing some of the professors' uh, your own work and my own work because I'm now part of a moon consortium. And um, reading all of your papers, just know that there's uh, I'm one of them, and it's really interesting all the work that you produce. So thank you so much. Um, yes, so my name is Giuseppe Calabrese. Um, I'm originally from Italy uh, and um, I'm currently in Sydney, Australia. And uh, uh, what I wanted to present today was uh, a competition that I entered for the uh, Mars City Design Award, uh, where I resulted basically the, the first winner of the architecture section. Um, so basically the, um, this um, competition was organized by Mars City Design, which is a sort of a um, a red carpet innovation platform for any ideas to do with the with the red planet, and the brief was uh, sort of um, how to support sustainable, uh, how to support um, human life on Mars for a period of uh, uh, two years for uh, nine astronauts and through sustainable produce farming. So uh, everybody approached it in a different way, um, and uh, what I came up with was a structure. Um, but 
I, I think the design um, the design is never linear between A to Z. It always goes in uh, various uh, various shapes and, and, and forms before uh, coming together. What we had to use was um, a software called CMOC. And CMOC is um, it's a sort of a, let's call it a scalable interactive model of an off-world community. And it has uh, decades of NASA data. So it's all um, englobated in this software. Uh, and in this software, we had to choose um, you know how much um, how much dry uh, produce there was, uh, how many batteries, um, what the crew quarters were, the greenhouse, various sizes, various parameters. And at the end, it would tell us, you know, you had um, nine green men, or there were going to be nine red men at the end of the software when it was running. Um, so lots and lots of data had to be imported inside of this um, software to. Um, basically see if the, um, the mission was successful. Um, I have a background in earth construction. Uh, I did a thesis and heritage and restoration in Italy and study of earth buildings, um, uh, also published in that sector. And so my approach was uh, rather than creating a, a beautiful structure um, was mostly to do with ISRU. So seeing what were the capabilities of the site. So went through again a lot of scientific papers, um, also um, imagery, so satellite imagery. So until a Perseverance will send us some uh, physical samples of what is there, I went through um, the, 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 the papers of the professors that were presented and published. And what was interesting to see was this area uh, in purple that came up, which was um, called smectite. Now, smectite, um, when I saw that, I got really excited because uh, it is a fantastic material to build with. Um, it's a particular clay. And uh, with the experience in earth construction, what I did is basically uh, use this clay to uh, form up some bricks. And the bricks, of course, mortiseless bricks that um, could just be uh, clicked together in some sort of um, uh, Lego system. So the easiest approach would be they could just be uh, clicked together. Um, also, um, information regarding the, um, as a professor said earlier, uh, about contour crafting and um, basically the printing different shapes that would be self, um, self um, able to sustain themselves without collapsing. So, um, my speciality in, uh, in architecture was in heritage and restoration, particularly. Uh, the study of old structures. And so the Nubian vaults in this case would have been a perfect structure to um, a self-sustaining structure that doesn't need um, uh, a structure to hold it up. So lots of studies have been done and are, are, are being um, taken forward on, on the angles and the materials. So my suggestion was to follow that of the, most of the papers which um, was an angle of 40 degrees. Um, and so, of course, this is all using the smectite for the uh, for the building the blocks, uh, building blocks, and for the um, the printing of the um, the roof with the uh, basalt and uh, the silicone all materials that are present on on site. I then came across um, um, a physician uh, named Michael Smith. He has uh, thirty five years experience in experience in uh, AI, um, and basically what he does is um, applying natural intelligence to the development of uh, regenerative agricultural systems and renewable energy. And he's already done this on planet Earth. He's uh, created um, what's called the, the green powerhouse system. 
Now, this green powerhouse system is um, actually, it's quite success, um, a success story. And he um, basically uh, came up with this big system where waste gets uh, transformed into uh, a series of um, byproducts, um, byproducts which can be soil amendments, um, energy, electricity, and then we have um, biochar. And biochar is a particular material where uh, the microbes of um, the soil can live in. So the, the idea was for this competition, not only to create a structure that was successful on planet Earth, but also to create a structure that will be successful, sorry, on Mars, but also to be successful on planet Earth, because what the National Geographic has uh, been studying is that um, we're in a situation where we have a soil depletion. The soil depletion will be happening in around 60 years. Um, because of the population growth, basically we are producing, trying to get from our soil as much produce as possible. So we are using more herbicides, more pesticides, then we get superbugs, and then we need more fertilizers. So it's a vicious circle of, de of soil depletion. Unfortunately, this cannot continue. And also then we have um, extreme temperature changes also on planet Earth. So this structure, what it does is basically creates um, a, a shelter for the greenhouses. The greenhouses will be inserted inside these, um, these buildings made out of uh, regolith, uh, regolith blocks. Uh, all of this will employ robots and humans. So real-time telerobotic systems as pr proposes um, economic law, a viable strategy for this uh, Martian system. Um, so co-robots and robotic systems are, are designed and operated at real time using telerobotics. And so this will be done all from planet, uh, from our planet. And um, basically we would send in the payload, the ISS cylinders, and then they'll open up inside the, uh, the structures. Then maybe at the end, I'll, I'll just share a few uh, seconds of um, video so you could see how all this operates. But you can see on the bottom left image, uh, basically these ISS cylinders will slide inside these um, structures and then they will inflate and they will have already seeds inside. And so the seeds will sprout. And when the astronauts arrive, they will already have um, uh, an amount of produce. Now with the CMOX software, we couldn't simply put in whatever we wanted. Um, there were certain type and varieties of plants that we had to select. Uh, I went for uh, certain types of plants that were not consuming uh, too much water. For example, if I selected wheat, the wheat takes months uh, to come to maturation and also it utilizes a lot of water. So at the end of my nine uh, astronauts will become red. So I went, uh, the selection was critical. I went for more, mostly a Mediterranean uh, uh, menu as uh, um, uh, Italian. Um, and um, so this was basically the, the layout, as you can say, for the nine people. And there's also habitation. And in a radial shape, we've got the solar collectors, as, as you can see. Uh, expansion was went up to 22 people in the bottom image. I also included insects because of course you need the pollination for the plants. And we need seeds, so we need a bank seeds. All of this will create uh, super seeds because our seeds, um, we think we're trying to create something for Mars, but I think we need to think Mars is creating something for us because we will have a super seed, a seed that will be able to resist in certain, certain type of gravity, radiation, illumination. So it will be a very resistant seed. And once we get those seeds and we plant them back on planet Earth, 
we will have a, a really boosted uh, crop and really resistant. So I see it the other way around. Um, I'll just go through the next one. So what we've got here on the left-hand side of the image is um, sort of this hive where um, I can see sort of some snowflakes, snowflakes which are um, sort of fractal shapes that can be repeated. And of course, the system had to be able to expand. So radial roads that don't interfere with each other and, um, and each with its own greenhouse, green powerhouse, so that if one system fails, the, all the rest keeps on, keeps on moving forward. Um, on the right-hand corner, a top image, um, you can see basically the, um, oops, sorry, you can see the, um, let's go back to the previous screen. Um, yeah, you can see the Jezero crater and basically the delta with the area of the smectite. So the location of the buildings, the uh, storage containers, and then radially I put all the solar farms. So we we needed a, a huge amount of solar, uh, solar panels to create the energy as a backup because not only there's a nuclear energy generator, but also the calculations for the solar farm had to be done. So there's a lot of science, a lot of papers that had to be read. It was not just... Um, um, basically pretty drawings. Um, so you can see basically the, the, uh, the layout of the, um, the whole system that protects from the um, radiation and the extreme cold um, um, ionizing uh, cylinders. Okay, so here we've got a zoom in of the system. So pressurized areas, non-pressurized areas. Um, basically the center of the green powerhouse is um, got uh, these uh, race courses and these race courses are not um, they are not pressurized and then they link together with uh, an area that is pressurized that contains all these greenhouse uh, cylinders. Um, the race um, the race courses are six and they will be approximately five hundred um, half a meter in depth. Here we have more details. Uh, of course, the Nubian vaults of the green powerhouse also they'll get 3D printed. We've got a, a bust area for the photosynthetic coil. That is the first thing that will be mounted. A whole system that will um, has already been demonstrated to be able to work. And so um, it's just been all included and molded with uh, uh, basically the whole system. Um, there's plenty of space uh, and heights. So for maintenance and expansion of the units. Um, also did a lot of study in terms of um, heights um, and communication between all the, 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 the pods and transitional uh, ways. And you can see the ISS cylinder uh, has also a transparent cover. This is very important because not only uh, are we are trying to get light from, uh, from the sky, we are also trying to use the solar collectors to um, suffice for that um, lack of light. So as you can see from the bottom left image, the light will penetrate through the uh, sintered uh, the glass and then it will go through the, um, the ISIS cylinder. So we're trying to use as much light as we can in different sources of light. And of course, the, the LEDs, they don't need all the spectrum. So uh, there've been studies done on different types of um, uh, spectrum and the quantity of light that they need. Uh, so inside, you can see of course, the ISS cylinder that's been selected based on the, uh, the payload and the current missions, uh, what sizes we have and how all of this um, can expand. Um, of course, here then we've got um, sections, elevations, and some images of the Mars blocks and uh, 
a pics uh, of uh, what I thought could be basically the rover, and the rover has these different attachments. So one would be a machine that uh, selects um, the smectite, then it compresses it in compressed mass blocks, uh, it microwaves it, and then um, it lifts, lifts it. So we have another attachment with a scissor hoist that um, stacks all the bricks, and then it has another attachment with uh, a mechanical arm, and it 3D prints this Nubian vault, and um, uh, basically all done with telerobotics. Um, here we have other sections um, of the building, and um, you can see these ISS cylinders and how they link together with the produce. Uh, and um, the um, scissor hoist on the top right, and getting, getting uh, the, the construction underway. The bottom image is basically uh, what I envisioned with all the dust storms that sometimes can last up to, uh, up to a year. And so this structure eventually, um, these Nubian vaults will be covered and um, also part of the walls, which will just uh, protect further from the radiation and micrometeorites. Um, so uh, these are some views from the internals, and you can see the, 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 the algal uh, race pool on the bottom left-hand side, sectional, um, axonometric on the top left, and the, and the bottom is basically the, the summary of the competition that this application would have to be for, not only for Mars, but also for, for Earth. Um, so first permitted, I'll just do uh, the video, basically very, very few seconds. Um, I'll just go through very few elements. See if I can pull this up. Um, full screen. Uh, I won't show it all, of course, because we don't have time. I'm just going to go through uh, basically uh, the construction of the bricks by these um, 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 the the rovers, and so the the, the basalt uh, flooring, as you can see, gets uh, a 3D 3D printed, and the uh, photosynthetic core. And with all the bricks uh, basically uh, stacking up. Um, so you can see that being formed. All right, so then I'll just fast forward to basically all the sections here that we'll, we'll have. So uh, how all this uh, floor plan is organized with the very core of uh, each section being independent from, uh, from each other. If you're showing us a video, we're not saying anything. All uh, right. Sorry for that. Let's. Uh, okay. And All right. Sorry. I'll just. This video can you see that? Archives. Go for sorry, it. Sorry. Can yes. you? Can you yes. see that? Perfect. Yes. All right. So I'll just go back to here. We'll just go a few seconds. Um, so I'm not going to show. I'm not going to go with the audio. We'll just um, so basically here we've got a um, the machinery. Uh, the rover is creating the 3D basalt um, uh, pod, and then the machinery uh, keeps on 3D printing it. Photosynthetic core at the center, um, getting ready, and then all the bricks uh, in the formation being created. Okay, so I'll just fast forward. So here we've got basically the center and all the various parts and how they are formed and what their role is and um, the, uh, the machinery then lifting up all the blocks and creating all the structure that will protect the ISS cylinders from the extreme weather temperatures. And um, um, then here we have the attachment creating the 3D uh, basalt um, roof and the solar penetration. 
solar collectors. And I think with this, uh, I'll probably conclude and um, I'll uh, leave it to the next speaker because I don't want to take too much time. But um, thanks so much for having me and um, I look forward to also the, the future presenters. Thank you, Giuseppe. Your presentation is fine. And uh, uh, we are running late, but you know what? I could see this uh, for a long time too, because it's so beautiful. And uh, uh, all of us, I think Daniel said it clearly up front, the environmental impacts and environmental uh, stressors, they're really stressors, will condition many of our designs and so we need to pay more attention uh, to what the environmental uh, uh, conditions are, both on the moon, Mars, and my favorite place is Titan. So uh, all of those places. Thank you so much. And uh, I, want you to, I want you all of you to know, Giuseppe is a violinist. So you, you better ask him about that later. Thank you so much. We are off to, oh, we are off to Paris now uh, to, uh, listen to Jim Rohn. Jim, are you with us? Yes, 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 yes. Hello, Madhu. Oh my goodness, we are we are very sorry. We are running a little late, Jim. But please, yes, very fine. No worries. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. Uh, I know John, uh, that is part of the team, is also one uh, one of your students. So it's uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, good morning. Good morning, everyone. Good day, and maybe good evening uh, from wherever you are today. Uh, so my name is Jim Rohn. I'm a lead designer at uh, Interstellar Lab, and uh, so I'm going to present uh, what we are doing currently. Let me share my screen. Go for it. How is the weather in Paris? Are you still wearing masks? It's, yeah, unfortunately still wearing masks and uh, yeah, not going uh, better those days, so yeah. Oh, it's going to get better, Jim. Just wait, it's going to okay, get better. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, can you guys see my screen? Yes, all right. Um, so yeah, so to get into what we're doing at uh, Interstellar Lab, uh, so we were designing and building pods uh, for sustainable living on Earth and uh, in space. So a bit more uh, precisely, we are developing space-grade environmentally controlled modules uh, to grow food while uh, re recycling air, water, and waste. The, um, so when it, when we get to the to the strategy about the the whole constructive system, uh, we are designing the modules so that they can actually be operated uh, as autonomous and standalone pods. Uh, so that's what you see here on the picture. Every of these single units can actually work uh, by by itself. They also can be plugged together uh, in order to form a complete BIOS. Uh, so what we call any BIOS is uh, it stands for experimental bioregenerative station. So it's a combination of different units that together form a closed loop environment that are able to sustain uh, the life for up to 10 people. Um, these, these different units, uh, as I said, are autonomous. They are plugged uh, with, uh, with airlocks to the, to the central piece uh, in order to prevent any contamination between the different units. So to get into the, the functionality of, uh, of each of them, we, we first have a, an aeroponic unit. Uh, which is where we're going to dedicate uh, the, it's going to be dedicated to the food production mainly. So that's where we're going to have all the A-frames and towers that are going to, to grow fruits, vegetables, and leafy greens. Uh, you then have the, the greenhouse units, also partly linked to the, to the food production, uh, since that's the place where we're going to be growing trees. 
mostly for fruit uh, production. But it's also, also very much related to the psychological needs of the crew uh, when, uh, when actually running the, the mission uh, to get a glimpse of uh, what Earth actually looks like. When we then switch to the treatment unit, uh, that's where the, the human waste and, um, and the inedible parts from the food production are going to be collected. Uh, so that's where the black water is turned into, um, into potable water with a lot of uh, filtration, uh, probably reverse osmosis as well. Uh, and also the, where we actually uh, turn waste, uh, waste human, uh, human waste story into nutrient solutions. You then have the habitat units. Uh, that's where most um, of the daily life of the crew is going to happen. Uh, bedrooms, sanitaries, kitchen, uh, the training and sports as well. Uh, this place is probably going to be pretty printed by the difference to the rest of the, of the pod. You then have the circulation units. Uh, so there are two, two main ones. Uh, the tunnel, which is able to connect to another station. Uh, again, the, the main goal of this design is, uh, is to be modular, but also very easily deployable and, uh, and scalable. So the idea is to be able to plug uh, different, uh, different units like, units like this and be able to, in the end, grow a kind of a, kind of a city. And you then have on the left uh, the, the small entrance, uh, which is a dedicated unit uh, to access the station or to exit it when you want to go into in-situ exploration. Last but not least, yeah, the, the, the connector, uh, so the mission control unit. It's, uh, so it's the masterpiece of the, of the, of the whole station, so it's, it's, the, it's the connector. Uh, so inside, the, inside that part, you're going to have a whole area dedicated to mission control, a lot of screens actually uh, gathering data coming from all the different units to have a kind of a global overview of what's happening in the station, even though all the pods are, uh, are autonomous. Uh, so you have every, every uh, single entrance of this connector are like standardized uh, plugs that you can, uh, and so you can actually arrange every unit uh, as needed. So now let me let me deep dive a bit more into uh, into what we are really doing right now, uh, which is the development of our first unit that we call the Biopod. Uh, it's an advanced greenhouse and food production module, so it's the one uh, you saw in the in the previous slides. Uh, there are going to be two two different Biopods, two different sizes. Uh, a bigger one, which is the one we're going to use for for eBios, and a smaller one that we are actually now using for uh, for testing, prototyping, and uh, and also developing on a on Earth uh, forest application. So the first goal of uh, of what we are doing right now is actually being able to recreate a, a very sealed environment. Uh, the um, so the the envelope of uh, of the biopod is composed of uh, of two of two main parts. We first have a composite base, uh, ultralight and resistance. That's where all the systems are going to be uh, to be sitting. And on top of that, you have a soft membrane uh, that is air air supported. Uh, so with a slightly overpressure inside. Uh, the interest of this membrane is, uh, is made of a high performance materials, so with uh, very good insulation properties. Uh, it's made of two different materials, one that enables to have a total opaqueness and the other one to get as much light as possible, so, very, so with a very high uh, transmittance. So once we <clears throat> actually manage to get this uh, seal, uh, seal environment, uh, the idea was to develop the system that's going to run inside, so everything related to the Eclipse. Uh, the, the reason why we decided to have this composite base is really to be able to sit uh, all, the, all the hardware and systems in it. 
so in the end, when you want to run this closed-loop environment, you are actually trying to balance the light recycling the air and the water. So that's where we're going to have the, the closed-loop water treatment systems uh, to make sure that every single drop uh, of water that we actually bring in the biopod is, uh, is used uh, for the crop growth only. So we have systems that are able to filtrate, so UV filtration mostly. Uh, and then uh, the humidifiers, of course, uh, to, cap to capture the, the, the water in the air and get it back into the system. We have our autonomous uh, nutrient dosing system that is also in the, in the composite base. Uh, and on top of, the, of this, uh, of this uh, like a hardware, hardware part, have a race for access where you're going to be sitting the aeroponic system. I'm going to get back on that a bit later. Uh, but we, that's where we're going to have the, the LED lighting system that are actually playing with the, with the sunlight that we get and trying to balance uh, the light inside the domes so that we, know, so that we get the, the optimized light for the crop growth itself. And uh, last but not least, we have the advanced atmospheric system uh, that is making sure that we get uh, a, the proper balance uh, between O2, CO2, and nitrogen. And uh, we're actually playing with, uh, with CO2, uh, CO2 boost as well to to get a maximum uh, yield uh, from the crop. Uh, so getting back to the, to the crops, uh, once uh, we managed to actually create the seal membrane uh, plus uh, having this Eclipse system uh, running, uh, the next step is actually trying to develop the technology that are going to, uh, that, that will allow us to, to, to grow the crops. Uh, so we are basically using uh, high pressure aeroponic systems uh, for vegetable and leafy greens, and a substrate-based greenhouse uh, that will allow us to grow small trees for uh, fruit production. And all, all this as a controlled environment uh, agriculture. Uh, that leads me to, to the fact that inside uh, the, the biopod, we're going to have a lot of sensors and, uh, and controllers, uh, and that combination will allow us to get uh, to get to precision agriculture and predictive monitoring. Uh, knowing that uh, we have a very data-driven approach. So our biologists are actually testing a lot of crops right now in a smaller version of these biodomes, just to get the proper data uh, on the yield, on the specific condition that we need to grow this, uh, this plant into. Uh, and that data acquisition uh, will be combined with uh, AI decision-making and then embedded control system uh, to make sure that we are actually able to grow the specific plants uh, inside the dome with the, the, the right kind of condition they need. So in the end, all these, uh, all these properties uh, from the biopods uh, will allow us to save a lot of water, uh, making sure that, uh, as I was saying, like uh, the single drop we input in the system will be used for the crop growth uh, to boost yield, of course, uh, since uh, compared to traditional agriculture, we'll be able to, to grow crops uh, every day, every day of the year. And in the end, to reduce energy, since uh, the, the, the seal membrane we are actually developing uh, will allow us to really to prevent, uh, to prevent as much as possible exchanges between, uh, between uh, external environment and the inside. So apart from the, from the hardware uh, we are developing, we are, of course, combining that with a, with a software approach. Uh, so AI decision-making was part of it. And uh, we are also developing the, the, the interface that's gonna, be, uh, that's gonna allow us to run the, the biopod. Uh, so the first part of the software is going to be a dashboard where we get all the data coming from the sensors and the controllers, uh, just to make sure, you know, it's kind of mission control as well, just to make sure that everything is running properly. 
uh, that's also uh, and then uh, and then the second part is the crop selector uh, so the our software engineers are working on the on a specific algorithm uh, that are actually uh, scheduling planning and optimizing the, the the crop management just to make sure that we satisfy the nutritional needs uh, for a specific amount of, uh, of people or, uh, on the crew uh, over a certain period of time so what you see on the screen is a is more inside of that, uh, and the crop selector should uh, should be released uh, pretty soon. So in the end, uh, just to get back to to the original uh, mission and, uh, and vision that uh, that we have uh, our at uh, Interstellar Lab, so the we, we believe that what we are trying to to develop will contribute to uh, to to create sustainable living system. Uh, either it is for, uh, for to start growing the the next uh, generation of farmers on Earth, uh, or uh, in a couple of years uh, being part of the Artemis program and contribute to to build the the sustainable moon base, or a few decades uh, from now uh, being uh, able to to contribute to to make the human uh, a multi a multiplanetary species, but uh, still uh, still thinking about uh, about the Earth. So that's it. Um, that's it for me. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, uh, uh, Jim. Uh, it's a pleasure to see finally that uh, we have come down to planet Earth, and, uh, <clears throat> and this is a good reminder for all of us that you know, one of the duties of the space architect uh, is also to reflect on our population, on our species on Earth about what it is that we are doing out there, looking out into space and creating all these magical things, which are impressive, but uh, it's very important uh, to bring that down to earth and make it happen. The only thing I would say, Jim, is that I have a hunch that if you're gonna do this underground, you're gonna save a lot of energy. Okay, good, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Madhu, thank you. And uh, we are... We can't hear you, Madhu. You didn't hear anything I said? I'm not after, I mean, Jim's. All right, good. good. Go for it. Oh, let me Can you see my screen? Yes. Hello, everyone. I'm Asai Spandavadi, and I'm really happy to be here today with you. So um, a little bit about myself is that uh, I have undergrad of architecture and then master's of architecture. I have another master's of historical uh, studies of Middle Eastern architecture, and finally, I ended up ma in Masters of uh, Aerospace Architecture at SIGSA. And I'm currently uh, am doing three volunteer jobs. Uh, one of them is I'm Director and Secretary in uh, National Space Society of North Houston. I'm Capcom for MDRS, and I'm Judge for Deep Space Food Challenge, which, is, which I really encourage you to participate. It is really, really interesting. 
And today I'm going to present uh, what I've done at SIGSA with Dr. Bonova and Professor Kennedy and Professor Tubes, and what I've done with uh, Dr. Valentina Sumini at MIT Media Lab. Some of them um, are listening in, Masa. Yeah, I know. I saw Valentina and Professor Kennedy's here oh, too. <laughs> so, uh, when we're talking about greenhouse, what exactly do we mean? Uh, I thought that we have six questions that if we can find it a, a solution or answer to these six questions, we can somehow say that we're reaching to the point that we can really say we have finally come up to the solution of greenhouse design. So one of them is, what are we really going to grow? The, the answer to this would impact crew's daily menu. And then how are we going to grow them? And the answer to that would be how that, after we grow everything, how we're going to turn it into food actually. And what is the post-harvesting process? And then at the end, um, where exactly we're going to grow these plants? And the answer for that would be a greenhouse or, or an environment which uh, needs to have human factors so that crew can enjoy that environment too. So I turn these questions into three categories, assumptions, systems, and architecture. So um, I was very curious about the plans that uh, um, space agencies have provided. Uh, as you can see in this table, there are different plant lists that <coughs> different space agencies have provided. Uh, I have the full plant list by the, at the end of the slides I can show you, but uh, you, if you want the uh, main source, you can check the, um, the paper below that uh, NASA has said that they have three different kinds of plant lists. They have the minimal, which you can see um, here, which has 13 plants. And then they have a uh, moderate plant list, which is about 20 plants. And then we have the generous one, which is 36. So um, I was curious then what exactly is the difference between these? So I went through the, all the plants and I found out that there's a huge cultural difference and diversity in spirit. For example, uh, if you can see the U.S., uh, even in the smallest, uh, in, in the minimal uh, uh, plant list, they have four different types of grain in their food diet for the astronaut. But uh, for example, Russia has just one. And this, for example, it, it uh, increases to six when they're providing more uh, um, variety of plants, but still ESA and Canada, they're providing two. So I, I thought that um, maybe just one ultimate plant list is not the answer to everything that we can say, hey, if we grow these 10 plants, they can have enough food. And then the end, I was curious that, okay, for example, if we want to grow potato and tomato and um, some, for example, onion and the same time wheat and rice, they're not going to fit in the same pot. So I thought that since we, if we have the approach of um, including diversity, we need to have that diversity in our design too. So the first thing that needs diversity is the plant pot. Uh, the left, you can see one of the uh, proposals that we did um, for one of the papers. But after the size of the plant pots, how many pots do we really need? There is a uh, study from NASA, it's a report which says that um, if we want to provide 60% of the food from the plants for the diet, which is uh, 2,700 kilocalorie, they need 46.5 uh, 
a square meter of cultivation area for one person, which means that if we want to have four crew over there, that would be 500 square meter of cultivation area. Which, for example, if we want to have the same plant pots, it means that we need 1,784 plant pots to provide this much of food to the crew. So it's not something very small. It's not something that you can have it in a teeny tiny inflatable or even in a hard shell. So what can we do? One of the things that I was um, searching is that um, there is a um, total pressure in living zone area that we need to um, you know, provide for the habitat zone. But is this really happening the same thing for the plants? It seems that no, plants really don't care what pressure is going on around them. As long as the partial pressure of CO2 and other gases are uh, the way that they want, they really don't care. So if we um, lower the pressure of the environment that plants are living to, for example, 56.5, which is the pressure of the um, rover, or even 61, which is the pressure of the ISIS when they want to go for EPA, that would reduce the pressure in half which means that we can uh, reduce the, the launching mass less than a half. And then it means that we can have a larger um, inflatable structure that we can have more plants. So how would that affect the whole greenhouse and poo uh, idea? I, I was checking how long um, crew spend uh, every day for their surface missions. Um, uh, in NASA's emission scenario. So there are two emission scenarios, which says that um, in the one that you can see in top, there are three um, EVA scenarios that um, when crew wants to go to the EVA, they, they start from 101 kilopascal, and then they uh, there's a 20 minutes of 56.5, and then the pressure reduces um, significantly, and then they go to EVA, they come back to the for example, the airlock, then they go back and forth. There's another scenario that they just lower the pressure, they go for eight hours of EVA and uh, four hours of EVA, and then they come back. So I thought that um, when, we're, uh, when we're discussing about lowering the pressure of the environment, as you can see in the lower diagram, if we lower the pressure of the greenhouse to 56.5, this seven hour and 20 minutes or four hour, 40 minutes of their wasting their time in their airlock by just staring at the walls and doing nothing, they can spend that time in the greenhouse. In the greenhouse, which already has that mass reduction and is very bigger and so on. So why we're not using this? Then um, after this proposal, me and Dr. Barnwell, we were thinking that, okay, if we're including the crew inside of the uh, greenhouse, what will happen? So uh, this is the whole greenhouse and food module. The rest of the, these all systems that you can see, these are the systems that we uh, usually include in the greenhouse module. What we're missing is that food processing system. Okay, we harvested wheat, we harvested um, um, rice. Where, what's going to happen next? How is that going to turn into a food? So we need a food processing system to go through uh, primary process, secondary process, and so on, and turn that into a dish so that they can use it later on. How that would impact the whole design process? This is the food. This is these two red ones are the are the impacts of having the 
post-harvesting process. And this black water is the impact of having the crew inside of the greenhouse module for that EVA time. If they want to use the restroom or if they want to, I mean, they're producing some um, black waste. This is the diagram that shows how things distribute between the uh, poor and the inflatable. When we're just providing water and power and air through the airlock, what will happen after that? So as you can see, lots of the main systems, they should be inside of the core because they need to have some pre-integrations and the installation of those are probably very hard. But most of the stuff that are very volumetrically consume, I mean, volume consumable, um, and they need to stay in inflatable, like plant pots, that they're very, very large and we cannot really put them inside of the core. So we have uh, inflatable and we have a core. What are the design options? As you can see on top, well, we have uh, found in the previous studies that most of the design are based on four different types, uh, mushroom, torus, and two petal versions. And um, as you can see from the, uh, this table that each of these design, it has some um, pros and cons. So the pedal version is very, very good uh, when, they are, when they are operating, hibernating, or in, in case of emergency. So most of the design that we see on the, I don't know, on the market or on the studies, they're just talking about the operation mode when the greenhouse is working 100%. So what will happen if something happens, uh, uh, if, if, if we have some fatal error in the system? If, if that happens in tourists, for example, if meteorite um, enters or penetrates the inflatable, we're done. The pressure is lost and we lose all the crops immediately. The same thing somehow happens to the mushroom too. But for the petals, if something um, attacks the, uh, the inflatable in petals, we don't lose the other ones, we still have one. But on the other hand, for example, mushroom one is very, very uh, good in deployment and it's very, very mobile. So uh, we were thinking, have we found the answer to greenhouse design? It seems that no, because uh, if, we, if you look at the mission scenarios that NASA provides, there are different kinds. So they, so far they have um, proposed three missions, which is, exploration mission, science mission, and the, for example, actual uh, living mission. So if we are thinking about having the exploration mission, mushroom would be very good because we can simply put it on a rover and we can turn, take that uh, greenhouse everywhere we want and we can test and see if those plants are growing well over there or not. And uh, when we don't have actual, for example, uh, ISRU printed, uh, field over the surface, maybe the petals are really good because they are really good at emergency and they are lower in risk. But the torus, they have the highest, um, the ratio of usable area comparing to the other ones. So if we really reach the uh, level that we can have a settlement and we can have the 3D printed shelter, torus would be the best answer. The next uh, so we found, okay, who, what is the approximate design that we really want? Uh, me and Dr. Sumini, we were thinking that, okay, how is that shelter going to happen? And we were thinking about how we can use the historical structures and historical 
monuments and use those aspects under um, under with new approaches. So we found out that uh, most of the domes that we see in the proposal, they're usually um, as called in here surface domes. These are the Persian domes divided in, I mean, categorized in different, uh, uh, based on their structures. So we were thinking that there are lots of similarity. We have a paper and presentation on that in about two weeks. And uh, that there are lots of uh, bathhouses in the uh, desert areas of Iran and in, um, in the old Middle Eastern, that they are using the rib zones. And the structure of the greenhouses and their isolation and their um, you know, their similarities to the greenhouse that we can have on, on Mars is, is very, very uh, high. So uh, we were thinking why we cannot, if we cannot uh, use the rib ones, I mean, are there any preference uh, from the surface dome uh, domes to the rib ones? So we thought that um, in the 3D printing process, and every, as Victoria was saying, yeah, 3D printers are very dumb. So if we can do, uh, if we can make a dome in a, in a very, very basic way that people are doing it in the Middle East for thousands of, uh, not thousands of years, but the older, I mean, the oldest uh, Adobe structure in Iran is about 4,000 years. So uh, if we can really, find out how they build it and how it survived, would that be a solution for us too? So this is the rib one, as you can see. So the only uh, pro uh, the only problem with the rib one is having that mold underneath and then you put the bricks on top. And then, so the ribs are, I mean, the barriers of the whole pressure and the structure, and then you feel between the ribs with whatever material that you can find. So we start our study with, uh, five of the arches that we have in Persian studies. These are the 30 samples of the, of the arches that we usually, you can find them in Persian regions. We picked these five and then we started uh, doing, I mean, uh, designing patterns and nodes in Grasshopper to see if we can come up to the idea that how, for example, what, how many numbers of these ribs would be the answer or what kind of pattern, the pattern that they're connecting together that it uh, affects the, as you can see, the middle circle in the middle of that uh, the opening of the dome, which of these would be better idea for our project. This is another, uh, I mean, in the elevation of the uh, rib dome, how that uh, the different kind of patterns affect the opening of the top. And then these are the simulations of the dome that we uh, calculated. As I mentioned before, we were thinking about lowering the pressure. So you can see different colors. If you notice the numbers underneath, we try to simulate um, with Mars regolith and with different um, inner pressure with different domes. The, uh, the in the deformation that you see is that because we uh, turned on the um oh my god um the <laughs> I forgot the word uh, I really forgot the word uh, to to see what is exactly uh, how oh we turned on the uh, deformation to see 
how these uh, ribs will change and how we can control them if we really want to um, um, make it um, more practical for the uh, Mars. These are different types. They're very, very interesting in visuals. And as you can see, the deformation is really interesting. They're all using the same sand, but because of because we're using different types of arches, the height of them are different. So the span of all of them are the same. So what's the result in here? That you can see the arches and different heights and the span that is similar for these. You can see in this uh, table, uh, in this chart, that they connect together in some points. And it was really, really interesting that what will happen in these points? It seems that when we're having a lower pressure, uh, this is the hemisphere one. Hemisphere is working really, really good. And comparing the, uh, the deformation to the, uh, to the other arches and other domes, this performance is really, really better. But when we're hiring okay, the pressure- a minute to go. Uh, it's, it's almost the end. But when we hire the pressure, it, the arch number 26 is very, very close to the hemisphere. And in here, even arch number 11 is very, very similar to the, uh, to the hemisphere. So we're, we're kind of proposed that uh, if, if they're working the same, if, we are, if they, the, the deformation is the same, why we're not using uh, the different kinds of domes? So, uh, this is how we can see greenhouse systems and the structure in a new way. That's it. Thank you. Great. Thank, thank you so much, Masa. And now I want to tell you one little story about how all these people from Persia came to northern India and built a magnificent structure called the Taj Mahal. It's staying there. It's got an incredible dome with some of these beautiful features uh, Masa mentioned. And guess what? They built it on the banks of a river. And so settlement is a very big issue, except that the Taj is still staying without any settlement. So now think about it while the next presenter comes on. And he is none other than my good friend, uh, 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 Phil Sadler. Are you here, Phil? Oh, I see you. OK, good. Phil, I'm sure you'll have a lot of things to say about what Masha said, but uh, we got to keep our time. I'm sorry we are running late. We'll try to catch up. Go for it, Phil. Okay, how, how am I doing? Um, come on screen and we'll tell you. Okay. I can see you. Yeah, how about my slideshow? Not yet. It's coming up. Coming up, okay. How are you doing, Phil? Oh, real good, real good. Okay. Oh, there we go. We got it. Okay. I apologize, but I have to have those guys, uh, Madhu, run my slideshow because I, I fell offline yesterday with a, uh, a Zoom call and I'm worried about uh, it today. So anyway, I work are at the you, Are you able to go to the university or are you in your home office? No, I'm at home. Okay. Go for it. Um, I work with the University of Arizona Controlled Environment Ag Center. And uh, we've been working in uh, uh, greenhouses and 
in extreme environments for about 20 years. And uh, these are the these are our partners, and uh, um, we've had a number of NASA uh, contracts, and we uh, had an NSF uh, contract to build the South Pole greenhouse. Okay, next. Phil, Phil that that uh, that part of the slide on the bottom, is it Apollo 11 or Apollo 17? Oh, I'm not really sure. Okay, go for it. Okay, next slide. Um, this goes back to 2004. We delivered, we built and delivered the uh, South Pole greenhouse. I, I worked out there uh, earlier and uh, in 88, I started the greenhouse program, but uh, this shows how isolated South Pole is. It's a good analog for space. Um, there's nothing, nothing close to this facility for, you know, hundreds of miles. And everything has to be brought in by aircraft or tractor train and uh, very isolated. Okay, next slide. Um, I built an original greenhouse out there uh, in, in 92 or 91. And uh, when they built a the new station, they wanted a, a new greenhouse. So uh, uh, I work with Dr. Gene Giacomelli and the Controlled Environment Ag uh, Center, and uh, <clears throat> we developed this greenhouse, and uh, it's still functioning today. Um, they still enjoy it and uh, provide, they're isolated for seven to eight months out there, and uh, it produces uh, fresh produce for them because after about a month or so, they run out, and uh, then it's uh, just canned stuff and frozen stuff. So uh, they really enjoy the, the greenhouse. Okay, next slide. Um, our students ran the, the greenhouse from Tucson and, and this is Lane Patterson. He was my right-hand man through the whole thing. And he went out and, and got it going but uh, our students uh, managed it from uh, Tucson and uh, and Lane was the first guy to grow cantaloupes at the South Pole. And uh, on your right below is uh, Jen and, and that's Senator McCain. He was out there visiting and, and uh, he didn't realize that the U of A had built this, uh, this greenhouse there for him. But uh, it was, it was, it, 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 it was supported from Tucson and it'd be very similar to what you might expect on the moon where you have experts remotely directing the operation of the chamber. And the chamber itself is a robot. It, you can't do the physical stuff uh, remotely, but all the set points, all the data collection, uh, distribution of this data and stuff is all done remotely. And uh, okay, next slide. This is what it looks like on the inside. Uh, it's inside the station. This, this bottom center picture is the hallway and, and the people uh, uh, come and go. And it's got an environmental room where uh, people can smell the, when you're at South Pole, everything smells like diesel fuel and it's extremely dry. And uh, it's an environmental room to allow people to be there. And then, then it's separated from the growing area, which has CO2 enrichment. 
they bring bottled CO2 there to enrich it because uh, the plants will scrub out most of the CO2 rapidly. And uh, so uh, how it works is it's got water cooled. Well, now they've gotten rid of them, but they originally, I, I developed a water jacketed high pressure sodium light for the Bioplex at, at Johnson Space Center. And then we used it for this contract. And how it works is those trays, the, the lower trays pull out, they're on, uh, uh, they're on tracks that allow it to pull out when you don't have anybody in there. So it's basically two parabolas that uh, is most efficient for uh, using the light. Because diesel fuel at South Pole Station, which is what runs the generators, is about $20 a gallon when it's delivered there. So it's very expensive to generate power and that's nothing compared to what it'll be like on the moon or Mars. So, okay, next slide. This is the, the NASA renderings of the most recent ones of, of greenhouses that uh, NASA has generated. But uh, the one on the upper right, that's a that's a good likeness of Ray Wheeler. <laughs> you know, he's our friend at, at Kennedy Space Center, probably the most knowledgeable person that NASA has in in space horticulture. Um, but what you should take away from this is the amount of production that you see there isn't close to what the kind of density you're going to need for space. Uh, you can't justify having a chamber with that few plants in it. Okay, next slide. Um, we were approached early on to build a, a greenhouse for the moon. And you have to know what the habitat's gonna look like. Um, you can't just design something and, you know, it, it's got to be integrated. It's, it's so integrated with the rest of the habitat that you have to have something to work for. So we, we use the uh, habitat demonstration unit it's, it's part of the HERA project now at JSC, but that was our starting point. And we developed these inflatable modules that radiate from the central hub uh, for our, our greenhouse. Um, you've, got, you've got air exchanges, you've got water exchanges, you've got people that have to go in there and work. So it's, it's real important to have some idea what the whole habitat looks like when you start. Okay, next one. And I've been making these modules and, and um, the one on the upper upper left is, is covered with regolith for radiation shielding and, and uh, micrometeorite bombardment. Um, and the, the, the dishes up on top are solar concentrators, which collect uh, the natural light and bring it into the, the station or the habitat with uh, fiber optic uh, cables. And uh, what's interesting is that, that with natural light like that and a, a Himawari type approach or a, a dish approach, you can split the spectra where you can take the PAR light, the, the photosynthetic active radiation light, and use it for your plant lighting and your interior lighting. But the other part, the other half of the spectra, you can turn that into electricity and into uh, heat. So 
uh, it's real important to, and, and if you, if you have dishes like that, you can track the sun. If you're at the South Pole, uh, you know, in a, in a, one of those uh, peaks of eternal light, uh, it can rotate 360 degrees and, and track your, your sun. Um, the lower pictures, um, that's sort of the membrane. It's gonna be like a spacesuit with, with multiple layers of, of whatever uh, for the membrane. And uh, it's gonna be pretty thick, I imagine. Um, but there's probably gonna be a, a format like on ISS, there is a specific format for all the ISS express racks to plug into. And I think that on the, on the moon, you'll probably have the same situation where you have to be able to get to that pressure hole quickly in case you have a puncture. So you can get in there and patch it. Having a bunch of rigid uh, materials uh, that you can't remove is a real hazard. You have the, the express rack, you have to be able to grab it and pull it out of there within within minutes so you can get back behind it and put a patch on your, your penetration. Okay, next slide. Um, we had a, a, a NASA grant called the, the Ralph Steckler Space Grant, and it was a great grant. And uh, during that time, we built uh, units and uh, collected data. And, and, and uh, this, is a, this is a design. You can see in the upper, upper left that it collapses to about a meter in length. And then it expands to 5.5 meters when inflated. So um, that was our, one of our original designs. But I've abandoned, this is obsolete in my estimation because too much mass. Um, I've gone to a much lighter uh, format, you know, like you saw earlier with the five struts or spars, that that's all you really need because on the, on the, the moon, the regolith is equal to about six or 700 pounds per cubic yard. I don't know what that is in metric, but that's about the same as the weight of the snow at South Pole. And, uh, you know, on earth, that regolith would be 2,900 pounds per cubic yard, but on the moon, it's only about six or 700 uh, pounds per cubic yard. So. It's, it's very similar to snow and you don't need a lot of, a lot of uh, structure to, to hold that up. The air pressure, if you have it uh, somewhere between nine PSI, the, the air pressure is enough to hold it up. Um, Phil, Phil, we got three yeah. minutes. Okay, next slide. Next slide, please. This is some of the crops we grow. We grow root crops, we grow potatoes, uh, tomatoes. Uh, sweet potato is taking over the, the, the chamber here with the red, red, blue LEDs and the, the full spectrum lighting. Uh, next slide, please. This is our, our best shot and, uh, it was overtaken by the sweet potatoes, but this, this doesn't represent, this is about half of the type of productivity you need in order to justify having a greenhouse. Uh, next slide. This is our data and we've got a couple papers out on it. 
But what was interesting was that one day we got a, a maximum uh, water condensed out of the unit of 47 liters of, of water. Um, Ray Wheeler and Dan Barta uh, years ago came up with the thing, if you can grow 50% of the calories for the crew, you can produce 100% of the water recycling and 100% of the air revitalization. Next slide, please. Again, our, our work is uh, available on, you know, the access through uh, the web. Uh, next slide. This is out of Biosphere. I've got an exhibit there where we have one of our 12 foot units there as part of the exhibit and uh, people come and, and we have like 100,000 people a year before the virus come and, and visit uh, the biosphere and uh, it's been real successful. You know, it's been there about five years. Uh, next slide. Uh, we, uh, we had it at, we had it out for seven months at the Chicago Museum of Science and Technology, and then we brought it back here and put it in the biosphere. But, uh, this is basically what it is. It's, it's real lightweight and the, the inflatable cover on the right is, uh, something to represent what the thickness of, uh, what a covering might look like, uh, when, when it's uh, actually made, but, uh. We give tours, we have tours and the students uh, explain what's going on. Uh, next slide. This is a express rack. I, I wanted to, I, I'm interested in membrane structures for inside the, the, the habitat. And uh, this was a, a membrane express rack that I built. And again, I'm, this is obsolete. I got a new generation that I'm working on, but I am dedicated to, there's no reason to have a, a real rigid structure to put a bunch of plants in. So that's the direction I'm moving towards. It folds up the size of a large suitcase. Next slide. And this is uh, the, my next generation module that uh, I'm building and uh, should have it in six months. I should uh, have it completed. Um, uh, next slide. Okay, this is uh, this is our crew and uh, some of our people we collaborate with. Um, and uh, that's about it. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Phil. Uh, please say hello to uh, Jean and Lane. Uh, you know, uh, I learned a lot from. Uh, all of you in the past few years about how plants dictate a lot of things they need in terms of nutrients. I still recall Lane telling me that plants call uh, for <laughs> certain, um, certain nutrients and then they just take it. And you know, these are, these are living things that have lived billions of years uh, before we got to the scene. So, you know, I respect plants. Anyhow, we'll talk more. Uh, we are going to our next speaker, uh, who is none other than Mirha, who is going to join us from Milano? No, from uh, Bari. From Bari, yes, yeah. Bari. You're, you're a good friend of uh, Vittorio. Yes. <laughs> uh, that's right, Vittorio was your teaching assistant. That's good. 
Go yes. for it, uh, Mirab. So nice to see you. Nice to see you all. Um, one second. Um, okay, uh, so before I start, I would like to say thank you to Mr. Madhu uh, and uh, all the IAA community uh, that uh, gave us this opportunity to show our uh, project Master Thesis. Um, uh, uh, this uh, thesis was born uh, from the collaboration um, between the Polytechnic of Bari uh, and uh, SIGSA uh, Department of uh, University of Houston. Uh, the name of the thesis uh, is Hive Mars, Design of a Hybrid Class Scalable Settlement on the Martian Surface, um, which, uh, which has been uh, done by uh, Archimars uh, Group uh, under the supervision of uh, professor architect uh, Giuseppe Fallacara and uh, space architect Vittorio Netti. Um, before, uh, before everything, uh, before, one second. Okay, uh, before showing the outpost proposal, it has been defined a mission uh, architecture diagram that represents launch, travel and landing phases. Uh, the diagram shows three phases of mission. The first mission, uh, a robotic mission of uh, Perseverance uh, rover um, 2020. Um, and the, for the second uh, phase, uh, the cargo mission uh, has been chosen uh, Space 6 uh, Big Falcon rocket. And for the third phase, crude part of the mission, uh, NASA SLS uh, Block 1B. Um, it's a bit slow. Uh, the, the, the site chosen for our thesis uh, project is the Hellas Planitia, which is the biggest basin on Mars, located in the southern hemisphere of the planet. Uh, the choice of this site depended on, on a number of factors, such as depth, which allows uh, to have a more uh, moderate percentage of radiation than other areas on this surface. Uh, the reduced presence of rocks and the ground uh, and the presence of uh, moderate uh, reliefs, which makes the area more suitable for the development of a settlement uh, uh, and for uh, landing operations. Uh, the most uh, decisive factor in this choice of the site uh, uh, was the presence um, of uh, water attested by the honeycomb terrain, a geological future whose process is linked uh, uh, to the principle of ice ascent. Uh, the project is uh, located in the central part of uh, Hellas Planitia because uh, it is the flattest area and uh, above all because the side surrounding reliefs, although moderate, uh, provide a natural shelter uh, from Martian uh, weather such as sandstorms. Uh, the project uh, takes the name Hive Mars with the aim of uh, resuming uh, the physical characteristic of the honeycomb terrain of the chosen site and uh, defining its principle of expansion. Uh, the concept is uh, oriented northwest, and it shows a simplification of the project by identifying the areas necessary for the development of the latter, uh, namely landing area, uh, which is positioned uh, 3.5 kilometers from the habitat. Uh, then we have ESRU uh, uh, area, uh, in situ resources area, which is positioned uh, 100 meter uh, from uh, the habitat, and uh, energy um, uh, production area, which is positioned also 100 meters from the habitat. The last area uh, is uh, the habitat. 
Uh, on the top of the habitat and infrastructure design, we focused also on the construction sequence uh, outlining appropriate surface elements uh, uh, to support the, the construction. Uh, this role is performed by the B family rovers, uh, which include all the autonomous and semi-autonomous mobile assets. The design of each uh, machine is, is, is inspired by epigenetic-based insects belonging to Apidae family, uh, a peculiar genetic characteristic that allows insects with the same DNA to evolve in different uh, physical futures, uh, designed to fit their role in hive societies. Uh, each of the B-Rover assets plays a different role in the construction process that uh, we will uh, see in the next um, slides. Um, it was important to define all the stages uh, of construction of the settlement, from the landing to the arrival of uh, men. The Starship spacecraft payload lands um, in, uh, in the landing area, releasing B family rovers for the preparation and exploration of the site uh, before the arrival of men. Uh, first of all, uh, Spider Explorer uh, probes the entire area to ensure that the required requirements are uh, met. Uh, later, the B flattener rover uh, flattens the road network, uh, then uh, in, uh, in situ resources utilization uh, area, uh, energy production area, and, constru and construction area. Uh, in this way, the B excavator and B transporter rover uh, reach the ISRU uh, area where water extraction, uh, oxygen production, and regolith collection activities take place. Uh, the extracted regolith is processed inside B processor and transferred to the B3D printer uh, that uh, proceeds with the construction of the protective wall of the landing area, roads, and the habitat. Uh, the B lifter rover instead provides um, for the positioning of the architectural elements to be inserted during the uh, phases of habitat construction. Uh, at the same time, the B transporter rover brings kilopower and uh, solar panels on the uh, production on the uh, energy production area. Uh, once the site um, is ready to host uh, the first crew, SLS Block One B uh, lands on Martian soil. Upon his arrival, Archimars uh, pressurized uh, rover leads the astronauts into the habitat, which consists of three housing units. Uh, one main and two secondary ones, and hangar uh, to protect the vehicle from the atmospheric agents. Uh, the future expansion is inspired by the territorial conformation of uh, hexagonal honeycomb, uh, uh, infinitely re repeatable, uh, and uh, ab uh, able to tessellate the space uh, and uh, connect among themselves all the housing units. Um, after analyzing all the types uh, associated with the planetary habitat, uh, we chose a hybrid one, uh, the, the use of uh, class two, uh, 3D printed one uh, for the external structure and uh, integrated uh, uh, with the class uh, three um, inflatable one uh, for the internal module. Uh, it was the most convenient in terms of uh, cost and time savings and uh, comfort. Uh, the external structure refer, uh, refers to historical mod models of the Nubian dome and takes the shape of a dome um, with an ogival uh, section trunca truncated at the top. Uh, Martian raw uh, material, regolith, um, is used uh, in the construction of the external structure of housing modules. 
the latter is collected by, by the excavator uh, and transported inside the regolith processor. Uh, the material is mixed with uh, a binder, uh, glucose-based elastomeric uh, polymer, which is extracted from uh, organic and biological waste and solvents. The material obtained, uh, Martian uh, cement, is uh, transferred to a 3D printer uh, that proceeds with the printing by layers. Uh, the choice for a superior truncated dome was uh, dictated by three main reasons. Uh, the first reason lies in the construction technology that was used, uh, which does not allow, allow the upper part uh, to, uh, of the dome to uh, close properly. The second reason is of a structural uh, nature, this, uh, that this type of uh, dome does not need support uh, during printing. And finally, the literature, literature, literature on uh, planetary architecture suggests inserting the right housing module only when um, the construction of protecting uh, uh, pr uh, protection against uh, radiation, micrometeorites, and sandstorm has been completed. Uh, therefore, it turns um, that the upper truncated ogival shape is the only one suitable for meeting these requirements. Uh, the construction of the dome uh, structure begins with the excavation of a 1.6 meter uh, circular hole that will host the habitat uh, foundation. The, type, the typology chosen uh, is the continuous foundation with a circular uh, bed lower than the ground level uh, in which the internal shell uh, will sit. Uh, subsequently, uh, the V3D printer will proceed to print the base of the external uh, shell, starting from the foundation level. The first interruption of the printing takes place in correspondence with the ground level hatches placed inside the uh, side connections. The V-lifter rover transports and places the airlocks undeployed. Uh, the rigid section of the hatches and airlocks work as um, a su support for the upper uh, layers. Uh, a second interruption uh, occurs at the windows level, uh, directly transported from Earth and placed and positioned um, and positioned using the um, rover, a lifter rover. Uh, the printing of uh, Ojival Dome continues after the placement of the first three openings, uh, interrupting in correspondence uh, with the upper ones, positioned in correspondence uh, with the second and third floors. Um, the upper part of the dome is truncated because the printing technique would not allow adequate structural support to close the, the shape. Uh, furthermore, once the construction of the envelope has been completed, uh, this shape allows the placement of uh, undeployed internal module uh, from the upper cavity by means of the B-lifter uh, rover. Uh, in the end, a truncated pyramidal skylight is placed to seal the external shell. This element is inspired by the um, ISSS dome and provides greater illumination of the internal environment. Um, in particular, the shell pre presents a smooth uh, surface on the, on the inside, while the outside is modeled uh, onto a parametric three-dimensional texture that allows a better thermal management and protection against micrometeorites impact. Uh, the choice uh, of an external texture responds uh, to two determining factors, such as the self-shading of the structure itself and the ability to retain the dust that is deposited on it. Over time, this dust stiffens uh, the structure and also increases the wall thickness 
resulting in additional protection. Um, once the, the class two pro protective structure uh, has been defined, it is possible to establish class three housing module, uh, which is uh, part of the infrastructures brought from the, from the earth. A long-term stay requires a habitat capable of reducing the mass and cost of launching, and at the same time capable of guaranteeing large pressurized spaces to allow all human activities to be carried out. The choice for the habitat inside the regolith structure therefore fell on an inflatable um, habitat. Uh, its advantages uh, are remarkable. If, uh, it is lighter than a rigid aluminum uh, structure. It also uh, allows greater flexibility of the internal uh, layout and greater internal volumes. Uh, also uh, allows automated uh, outfittings and easier uh, assembly, manages better the thermal and structural stresses while keeping the weight low. So uh, once the, the undeployed inner module is lowered from above, uh, above into the dome, the inflation begins. Uh, integrated air pumps, uh, uh, the pressure, pressurization needed to reach a final shape of the inflatable module. Uh, at the same time, through an automated mechanical system, the internal steel structure is deployed, starting from the uh, deployment of the central core, then the floors, and uh, in the end of the pillars. Okay. Uh, so a habitable module is obtained uh, that occupies almost the entire uh, internal volume of the external regolith. Uh, in the section, uh, we can see the configuration of the inflatable module, um, which is divided into three levels uh, of decreasing walkable area, accessible and connected vertically by a harmonious spiral staircase placed uh, in, the in the center inside the core. Each of the levels has uh, three windows arranged on axis of uh, 120 degrees which do not so much perform the function of uh, il illuminating from the outside, but rather that to offer uh, a man uh, a view to the outside, uh, partly freeing him from the sense of closure and uh, isolation. Uh, the function uh, of illuminating the internal environment is instead performed uh, by a circular skylight uh, mounted at the top. Um, uh, thanks to a system of automated shutters, uh, the skylight opens uh, during certain hours of the day to illuminate the, uh, uh, to illuminate the second floor and partially reach the, the lower floor floors uh, between the uh, gaps um, uh, between the gaps of uh, external shell and inflatable module. Uh, each level fulfills uh, a specific function. Uh, the ground floor uh, identifies a common area where the main control activities takes place and where the scientific research area and the medical area are located. Observing the drawings, um, we note um, uh, how the internal arrangement of these rooms derives from the presence of three airlocks connecting with the other living modules arranged on 120 degrees uh, axis. The first floor um, uh, is the most private area containing the living area and the sleeping area, while the top floor is a semi-private area where leisure, reading and sports activities takes place. 
Uh, Archimarch's team uh, has also put forward a design proposal for two green systems, uh, one aimed at the production of food and the other uh, characterized by a virtual garden. Uh, both proposals are part of a more future hypothesis belonging to a future phase of expansion that sees human settlement change and grow into a colony. Uh, the first uh, green system is housed inside the Ojival Dome in Martian uh, Regolith, already used as casing of the housing inflatable module. Uh, in this case, um, uh, also, a structure is obtained that is raised on uh, three levels, uh, connected by a central core. Uh, each level identifies a, a central green um, ring, which house uh, a core wall, uh, a hydroponic cultivation system given by columns of vases. Um, uh, on all of the vases, uh, on, uh, all of the uh, vases, there is um, a protection shield. Uh, that contains the purple light, uh, grown light, uh, specially applied uh, to the bottom of each vase, and, uh, and uh, one outer green ring that houses a number of different uh, racks. <clears throat> the second uh, green system uh, has a more psychological character, uh, and everything is aimed uh, at ensuring the social and mental health, health of future inhabitants of the Red Planet. Um, bridging the distance with the earth and reducing the feeling associated with inevitable isolation conditions was the primary purpose of the Archimars team during the design phase of the second uh, uh, green system. Uh, the interior has one large common space in which holograms project uh, three-dimensional images of typical terrestrial gardens. Uh, to conclude, uh, it is possible to learn uh, from our ancestors and at the same time with the help of uh, knowledge and advanced technologies at our disposal, it is possible to inhabit an extreme place like Mars. Uh, by limiting the extreme characteristic of the environmental uh, that characterize Mars, uh, such as distance from Earth, uh, the need to build in the most standard, standard designed way possible, the need to uh, limit space and use uh, resources, men will be able to build the first human settlement, which uh, will uh, in the future characterize a protected archaeological site. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mira. Somebody asked me the other day, hey, what's the difference between um, a, a systems engineer and a space architect? <laughs> the answer is very simple. Space architects draw, draw like crazy. <laughs> yes. And uh, that brings me, thank you so much, Mira. We hope to continue thank you. this discussion. Uh, at this time, I want to introduce uh, Professor uh, Michael Fox uh, from Cal Poly, uh, Pomona. Uh, I, I was invited sometimes to review the good work that he and his group of students have done in the past. Uh, welcome, uh, Michael. Uh, the floor is yours. I'm Mario. Um, can you see that okay? Yes. Okay. Um, anyway, thanks. Um, thanks for having me. 
Um, I, I have to say I'm, I'm a terrestrial architect, um, even build a lot of buildings on earth. And, and, um, and I just want to say that, that, you know, for me, this is, this is super interesting because of, of, I suppose, looking and understanding at designs with limited resources and, and environments that are extreme leads leads us to a much higher respect of nature here um, and respect of human beings and, and generating eventually improved life on earth. And, and so really I'm interested in bringing home these, these lessons learned. And, and it's great that we do these a lot, you know, interdisciplinary projects. Uh, I think the one I'm gonna show right now, I think is our, our sixth, the one that we've done. Um, and they're all vastly different. And, and, you know, sometimes I'm kind of drinking from a fire hose. I think the good thing is that we are in LA and we have great people from JPL like um, Matthew and, um, and uh, Scott Howe and Mark Cohen and um, Brent Sherwood before he left town. Um, and all these guys are just great because they come and kind of share like their wisdom from years of doing this space architecture uh, with the students and help us kind of keep on track. So um, this this was one earlier one. This is a lot of fun that we did, which was deep space habitation model. And, um, you know, we like to build things, um, physical models and and real big kind of uh, lo-fi analog uh, projects. Um, that kind of led to another one, which was uh, designed for a hand, handhold foothold, which um, was a different type of grant where we uh, got to go and test it in zero G, which was a lot of fun um, and take the students along with me. Um, so this one I'm gonna talk about um, um, was was with this uh, XHAB program, which is for uh, student exploration of kind of specific things um, related, not always to uh, space architecture, but often. And when they do, uh, we always try and do them. Um, this proposal specifically addresses the challenge to create a habitation, habitation system that has commonality in both the in-space and then the surface habitat design. So the crew are familiar with the layout, the function, location of everything in the surface habitat when they then arrive on Mars. Um, we kind of start off with a lot of different concept designs. Um, again, kind of drinking from fire hose to, to kind of get things right. And this is when like all of our really consultants are extremely valuable. Um, Mark Cohen was like very involved in this project, came to uh, our class a lot, um, really kind of helping us keep on track. And um, Mark is in New York uh, with his granddaughter. So he says, sorry, he cannot be there. <laughs> yeah, I miss him. Um, and, and so these kind of, these, these, these sort of preliminary designs were then kind of initially compared, you know, and, and evaluated real, on the relative merits of against a, a pretty inclusive set of criteria. And this then gave us a framework for evaluation, evaluating like different design potentials and, and different engineering options. And then we kind of down selected and we went through this down selection process like three times and, and um, until we kind of had a particular design. This one we, we 
sort of went with was uh, that we, we called it the CR1. Um, and the most important aspects that need uh, resolution here were um, the transformation mechanism that would allow it, the IPV to function in zero G and the Mars uh, gravitational environment and, and the structural integrity. Um, the program layout had to be designed, allowing all the components to kind of be pre-installed with full functionality before and then also after transformation and allowing a limited mobility on the Mars surface once it's there. And, um, and of course, the transformation mechanism was, was kind of central to this. Um, the idea is that there's, there's four of these uh, sort of truncated cylinders. Um, and then, and then they essentially unroll and can connect together and make larger habitation. Um, and um, so, you know, there, there's scenarios where this becomes much kind of larger as an environment. Um, and here you kind of see a diagram of the unrolling um, and looking at kind of a lot of different variations in terms of of just the, the geometry for how this could um, unroll. Looking at um, program configuration, um, kind of interesting um, with, you know, the adjacencies, you know, before unrolling and after unrolling. And, um, and of course, this being kind of the, the Martian gravitational analog on the left. And, um, and so we, we then kind of developed the, the drawings to a, a fairly high level of resolution. Um, and we used, I think this is one of the most interesting parts is, is, you know, we used a lot of exploratory means to kind of understand the design and develop the design. So this it's not kind of show and tell of making the drawings, but it's really kind of, you know, understanding things and, and evolving the de design. So we, Kind of very early on made a pretty sophisticated BIM model and we had like great consultants from Geary Technologies, um, which is now Trimble. Um, and um, we made a full scale prototype with AR um, to understand the ergonomics and the, erg and the human scale. And then a fully detailed kind of uh, VR um, model to understand again the, the ergonomics and human scale of things. And then small scale robotics, understanding um, different um, mechanics and a physical prototype at one to 10. Um, this is just um, some images inside the VR model, which was great, you know, because it was used as a design tool for kind of, you know, understanding, you know, how you can walk around it. And it's super interesting to kind of move around in VR in the rolled position and then have the unrolled position and kind of walk around um, in a low G um, version of that. Um, and then the AR version, I think also was was pretty interesting um, where where we were using um, um, we basically a lo-fi kind of but but full scale kind of version. Um, and then, and then, you know, you get the AR version that that when you put on the glasses, you have all the furniture and, and everything within the, the context of the physical environment. So this was actually pretty interesting to explore. Um, I've done quite a few things with AR since. Um, and then looking at small scale uh, robotics um, and um, kind of looking at how the unrolling mechanisms would work and then also the mobility. Um, this 
this one was, um, it was in an exhibit at the San Francisco MoMA. There was a space exhibit. I, there were some other really cool space architecture projects there. I went up and saw it. Um, and then, um, you know, looking at some of these um, drawings in particular, um, that they were transformative drawings and, and meaning looking at, at not just static conditions, um, so how it could unroll. Um, <clears throat> and then kind of the, the full 3D like model. This, this was actually the VR model. Um, and then making a one to 10, um, one to 10 physical prototype, which was actually really valuable in a lot of respects um, in understanding the transformation of it. So this is again, one to 10, so um, pretty small, but and then we took it out to the, the desert and kind of did a little um, demonstration of it. Anyway, that's um, this project. These are all the students who uh, learned a lot. This is Mark Schulitz who worked on it a lot. Um, and um, wait a minute, I see me in there. Yeah, yeah, there you are. <laughs> because oh, and there's Ed, Ed McCullough. Um, miss Ed, don't we? We miss Ed. Yeah, we do. Um, anyway, um, so um, thanks a lot. I think that wraps it up. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Um, a fantastic presentation. And I like your screen, the way you are appearing with, uh, uh, I think, is that is that a, a technique uh, that you're using? You're coming through with your background fuzzy. Blur, blur background. Yeah. Blur background. Blur it's background. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Great. Thank you so much, Michael. We got to run to our next presenter, and that is somebody very special. Uh, zooming in late in the night from London. Uh, I'm happy to introduce to you Xavier, whom I've known many times over, over his incredible visuals. We're so happy you're, you're awake to present. Xavier, hope you had some tea. Hope you had some PG tips or something. A glass of wine, actually. Oh, yeah. oh gosh. Okay, good. <laughs> so good to see you. Go for it. Hey, thank you, Madhu. Thank you so much for inviting me. You guys all hear me well? Yeah. Very well. Oh, good. So, well, um, thanks so much for inviting me. Um, today, um, my name is Xavier, and I am an architect. I'd like to call myself an architect, not really a space architect, like what Michael said, um, because I think architecture itself, I think, really is enough to, as a profession to, to, to be in space. 
right? Um, and that's what I want to talk about today is, is the value of design, the value of architecture itself uh, when we move into space and um, in this field. And on top of that, I'm also going to talk about uh, the importance of sustainability and recycling and reusing materials in space. And I'm going to do that with one project. And the project I'm going to talk about is um, Hassel Studios' uh, proposal uh, for the NASA Centennial 3D Printed Habitat Challenge. So um, our project um, exists out of uh, two elements. It has a 3D printed shell structure and then an inflatable, unfoldable, pressurized, uh, prefabricated element underneath. Now for this one, we were actually a little bit naughty because we went against the brief that NASA put forward because they wanted us to look at a 3D printed pressurizable system. Um, we weren't quite comfortable with that because knowing from uh, our earth um, examples uh, and normal architecture, uh, like this amazing uh, Felix Candela's shell structure, that has been made in situ, the 3D printed shell structure, not with robots, with lots of people, to a certain degree of accuracy, right? It can't be super accurate. You can't. You don't have the performance that you would do with building this on Earth. And then underneath, you would get prefabricated elements, elements like facade systems made on Earth to much higher precision. So we think is that combination is really the clue in uh, building habitats on Mars. So. This is our proposal. As you see, we didn't bring a massive 3D printer. We're bringing much smaller three, uh, uh, a swarm robotic set of printers, all working together to 3D print our shell structure years before our astronauts arrive. And these are, there's four different ones that we have. I'm not gonna go into detail of them, but um, we were a little bit surprised the moment we saw this rendering, because this rendering done by our visualizer showed our robots that just done their job, they finished the, the, the shell structure on the foreground, the right-hand side, they're there. We create the first boneyard of robots that are not necessary anymore. And that was a shock to the system really. And it really started us to think much, much harder in how we should behave on Mars, how we should reuse and recycle things. Back to the drawing boards, we redesigned our robots. We made our robots now still autonomous, but now modular we could actually make different types of robots with a certain amount of um, standard set of elements. It's a bit like a Lego system for robotics, right? Having um, a few legs, having two diggers coming together, a center station coming together, and we create ourselves uh, a 3D printer again. Now, we have different elements. We have um, a scouter, which is kind of a one-wheel scouter. We have then our digger, which is uh, completely based on the diggers developed by uh, NASA in the Swampworks uh, team. And the last robot, I'll show that one, is our printing robot then that will um, use microwave technology to bring it all together. Let me just do that quickly here. There we go. Um, so, our habitat, and um, we thought, as um, most people talked about, uh, the, the idea of, a, of a, a view to Mars is actually important. So how are we going to do that? We know how important this piece is on the ISS, the cupola, and how this is actually protected with this kind of mechanical system that protect the windows. Um, 
we thought we could have a non-mechanical non way of solving this problem and more of an architectural one. So we looked at this, a beautiful courtyard in the Mediterranean. What's so great about this? Well, you can get sunlight in, uh, you can get indirect light in, but not direct light. Because of course on Mars, that would actually mean much high radiation in your habitat. And on top of that, you create a beautiful view across your habitat. Here doing some tests, using our, the tools we use in, in architecture on Earth, checking the radiation uh, from, uh, this is a tool that we normally use for uh, sun radiation, you know, see if a building not, doesn't get too hot. We did the same thing, but actually looking at the actual uh, gamma radiation. And here's our, our, our habitat. Now we bring in indirect sunlight and we are able to get still that view across the habitat. So a habitat exists out of that shell structure. Then underneath, we get these six inflatable pods with some connector, connectors in there. And if we go look a little bit in detail, we'll see that we organize them as a big donut, but then each pod is also organized in a circular way, in a radial way. And that's for a particular reason, because we looked at the ISS and we thought the, the way how we have the racks, the science racks, and how they all fitted out in all these kind of uh, cylindrical modules, we think that's actually so optimal. We thought we could do better. And uh, the way to do that was by looking at not a very high-tech solution, but looking at archives of libraries where you have these racks that are able to open up and close up. And that's a way to kind of really use space much more optimum, right? Um, so we, we maybe get away with this idea of having all these corridors in the ISS in, 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 in space habitats. And that's what we did. We have a radial system, a rack system that exists out of these movable radial racks that could be um, either a science rack, but could also be storage, or it could be um, a greenhouse. And we can see that here in each of our renderings. This is our science rack, astronaut doing some work, on uh, maybe setting up an experiment, but once he's done, he could probably even move it out of the way and go into another one. Um, and we did it the same way for our greenhouse, movable radial rack system. And the same thing, we kind of use that standardized system um, for also our gym, and this is also the, 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 the private uh, sleeping quarters of the astronauts. It's always the same system, so it becomes really interchangeable. And we even have it here in our workshop, a very important place because people are gonna have to fix stuff. You know, you can't get a spare part that we have on the background. We have a large Delta printer. We have few, some laser cutter there. And also we have a sewing machine, as you can see. You might wonder why would we have sewing machines? Why would we do that for? Well, I believe we should actually do that as well because we have to think about reusing and recycling materials. There's already fabric there. This is a, a picture, of course, taken from Perseverance rover landed with the parachutes. Why not just think about reusing those materials as well? So for this project, we collaborated with Chris Rayburn. He's a fashion designer in Hackney in London. And that's what he's been doing for the last 10 years. He actually designs clothes and makes clothes made out of already used materials. He sometimes uses blankets, use blankets, use military equipment, and also parachutes. So we used his uh, piece from his archive that we could then use in our uh, photo shoot for the renderings, right? Um, that was in our studio in London. And uh, Chris got so interested in our project that he even then 
based his new collection, his spring summer collection 2020 on our uh, design. And this is some of the pieces that, that they made for that, which was a really cool collaboration really. Um, then further, um, furniture, right? We thought, well, why not we actually make our furniture over there on Mars and reuse waste plastics from uh, food packaging or from science experiments? Again, we collaborate again for this. We collaborated with uh, Juan Manuel Jimenez Garcia here, me and him working at uh, Norman Foster Foundation just over a year ago. And we decided that he would design special furniture made out of recycled plastics. And that's actually his, his factory and his, his, his uh, design studio uh, just outside Madrid. So we worked with him to create this um, chair, this, this, this kind of uh, chaise longue for Mars made out of, this is actually made out of recycled medical equipment here. And then he designed all the furniture for Mars habitat, as you see here, all 3D printed. Now, first collaboration is really important. So for this whole project, we also collaborate with, with Cranfield University with Professor David Cullen and his students. His students do um, the students in uh, system engineering. And that was quite important because we could ask them interesting questions. Beginning of our project, we looked at creating an inflatable as a support structure for the construction process of the 3D printing. We thought it was actually a bit of a dumb idea. We went away with it. We, we, we got rid of it. And we started looking at other more known architectural examples. This is Sana's Tashima Museum. That was uh, constructed by using earth formwork. So what we then did, we said, okay, well, let's, let's do it that way. Well, let's do earth formwork and fill the whole shell structure with loose regolith and the loose regolith becomes a support structure. But we thought, well, this might take too much energy. This might be too long. So we then worked with the system engineers to kind of understand how long this would all take. And they came back, put all the spreadsheets in and because they work with spreadsheets, we work with drawings and they came out, I'll take a year longer, which was, which was fine. So, um, I'm actually saying that, and, and Madhu, I like your, your, your uh, comment earlier on about this difference between architects and system engineers. Well, we did work with system engineers. The right-hand drawing is, of course, done by us. And while the, the left-hand drawing was also done by us, but with input from all the spreadsheets of the system engineers. So this really drawing, this kind of dual drawing shows the architecture and the mission architecture and this and this imagine it together so we really kind of thought this this duality is actually really important um and then we're really lucky in the end that we were invited by uh, the design museum uh for the famous moving to mars exhibition that is now um if you go to uh, stockholm you can see it there um to actually build a full-on one-to-one and what Michael said, yeah, we're architects, we love to make mock-ups, we love to build the real thing. Um, and we thought that was important to do for us. Again, the racks were actually movables. People could come in into the exhibition, move the racks, try on the clothes even, uh, pretend they're, they're astronauts. And, um, and even that view out, as important, that was so important. So we had this massive video wall you see on the left-hand side that was all built in real time in... Um, in Unreal uh, Gaming Engine, and you can see other astronauts, digital astronauts, be walking around in the other habitats, and uh, really, and the the, the 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 light even changed from day to night, 
uh, and so forth. So really to get that real kind of immersive experience. Thank you. I kept that within the 15 minutes, didn't I? Even shorter. Well, do your on mute. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Xavier. I was just going to, <laughs> going to uh, can you slide back to that last image where you showed the microscope? <laughs> oh, this one? Uh, there, that one. Do you see a beautiful, a beautiful 19th century <laughs> microscope sitting there? Microscopes wow. don't look like that anymore. But, you know, it tells you, you know, when a child sees this drawing, she or he would want to live there because those are the kind of things that we grow up with. And uh, it's, a it's a delightful well, presentation. It's now. good. Well, we did actually check, Badu, what, what we would, would take. The microscope might be a bit, but we actually worked with uh, Sanjeev Gupta, who okay. is one of the scientists on the Curiosity rover mission. All right. And we asked him, you're going to tell us what should be in that lab. Yeah. And it was actually really nice. It has, he even gave us one of his hammers that he used as a teenager. And he said like, you know what, that hammer, I would still take that to Mars. So some of the bits that are in there and he kind of had all this kind of scientists working with us to say, so what would we really take? The microscope, maybe not, but all the other bits, they said like, well, they probably would take stuff like that. Yes, and um, talking about microscopes, I am also a fan of microscopes, Xavier, because uh, I think a geologist would be very, very, uh, it would be very helpful and now, most of our uh, spacecraft are starting to get more and more uh, magnification into their visual system. Thank you so much. Thank and you. Uh, we'll be in touch, uh, Xavier. Um, let us go on to um, Denmark now. Um, Sebastian is with us and I see him right there. Um, go for it, Sebastian. You know, we, we want you to tell us what time it is over there. Yeah. <laughs> whether you're sleepy or not, and then uh, go on with your incredible project. Um, uh, folks, Hi, thanks, now, thanks so much. You're welcome. Thanks so much. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? Okay. Um, well, it's a little spotty, but uh, we can see you. I'm going yeah. to get offline if that'll help a little bit. And um, but um, I want to mention now we are moving from uh, Moon to Mars and now to simulators. And uh, uh, Sebastian's group has done some fantastic work. I'm so happy you're with us. Go for it. Thank you so much. Um, our internet uh, today is a little bit spotty, so I hope that you can hear me. Um, I'm just gonna present, here we go. All right, so... Uh, I come from Sega Space Architects, and today I'm mostly going to talk about our lunar analog mission to Northern Greenland that I just got back from in December. My name is Sebastian. I'm one of the co-founders of Sega. We have grown from two, originally only two architects, to a uh, to a, a larger team that you can see here. I really hope you can see the screen. The internet is, is a little bit tricky on me right now. If you, if you, uh, if you um, go off... And uh, uh, this is... Uh, uh, Sebastian, if you turn off your camera now that we have seen you, um, will it help uh, our, our um, case a little bit better? Uh, I'm wondering. 
Go for it. I'm going to try. Did okay. that help a little bit? We'll know. Okay. Keep going. Um, yeah, we only have 15 minutes. We, we only have 15 minutes. So I'm going to keep it brief. Um, yeah, 15 minutes. But yeah, so we started out a couple of years ago um, doing conceptual architecture. And uh, this is uh, this is a competition proposal for the Mastoga competition. I think it was in 2018. <clears throat> and we were lucky enough to win that competition. And this was a, a shelter on Mars. Um, and we used the, the, the reason why it's so hairy is because we used the, the, the special conditions of the lunar, no, sorry, of the, of the Martian dust to uh, generate static electricity for the, for the habitat. Then we, we, uh, we uh, moved on and uh, we participated in a, another concept competition for the moon village. Uh, they had a, a competition, I think, early, early 2019 or late 2018, um, where we did a, a proposal as well. And we were lucky enough to win that competition as well. Um, and this was for a, a lunar home uh, that we named the Circadian Lunar Home. Um, and this was the first time that we really investigated the idea of expanding architecture for, 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 for space architecture. Um, and this was kind of a, this, this was at this point, it was super theoretical still. We were trying to find as much, much uh, literature as we could to, um, to learn about uh, how, how it would be possible. Um, but we, after, after winning these two competitions, we were very focused on wanting to realize our kids. We, we believe that there's a, an immense power in, in, in not just designing about the things, but actually putting them uh, out in real life and, and learning from that experience. Um, so we went, we were lucky, we were invited to, uh, to design the extension for a habitat, a simulation habitat in Israel. Uh, it's a Mars simulation mission called BMARS, and they needed extra space for their simulation astronauts. And we always start with the models. Um, so, so before we do anything in, uh, in, uh, in full scale, we like to, to work in, at a smaller scale. And then as we get confidence in the design in piece of architecture, up in scale and up in complexity. And that's something you will see later on as well. Um, I hope, I really hope these videos come through. I'm, 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 a little, I'm, a little, I'm a little unsure whether or not you'll be able to see this as well as I do. But, but here we are in the desert of Israel uh, testing our unfolding skeleton. We, we are able to see um, it's spurt, Sebastian, but it's okay. Yeah, yeah, there, there's not that many videos. So I, I, I think we'll be fine. I want some time on, on Lunark, our, our most recent project. But yeah, after coming back from the desert of Israel, we were super hungry. We, we had done conceptual work, both in our studies, in the competitions that we had won. Um, we had done a lot of theoretical work, um, but we really wanted to test the architecture because we had all these subsystems of 
uh, circadian light panels and algae reactor, all of these things. And after being in the desert of Israel, we really, we really understood how important it was for our work that, that we tested in real life. And we, uh, we looked at the, at the kind of state of the arts relation missions around the world uh, in, 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 the, in the desert. Um, and there was, it seemed like there was one big thing that was missing. So either, so, so there's a couple of, of analog missions around the world that test, uh, the, that, that does all the studies under extreme environments, right? Um, and that's super important. We think that's, that's, that's crucial if you really want to study the architecture. If the architecture is a countermeasure for all the, We lost you there for a minute. Can you hear me, Sebastian? We lost you. Ken, can you help? Yeah, I'm checking on it. Okay. Yeah, I think he, he's completely off. Uh, let me see. Oh, he's here. He's still here, but I think his internet over there. Oh, no, again. Yeah, he's All right. Back. So um, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm back now. Uh, we, we are just getting a new uh, internet in my apartment here. Okay. Uh, so it, uh, everything is we're running on a mobile hotspot here um but yeah so yeah so but we really wanted to understand if you're going to to test and do psychological studies uh, uh understanding social dynamics and all of these things that that you really want to understand about astronauts in space you have to simulate the stressors that the astronauts experience while they are on on, on the mission um so and so, and we, there was only a couple of simulated uh, missions around was simulating that. And at the same time, we also really wanted to uh, study the architecture, really understand what what parts of the architecture um, could be improved, what worked, what didn't work, how how well did it work? And it seemed like uh, in a lot of the other analog missions around the world, the architecture was secondary. Um, there was a lot of things, and, and, and it almost seemed like the, the architecture was an afterthought. Um, so we're not seeing any slides. Only the desktop. You're, I, I, are you seeing a slide now? No, it's the desktop. It's, uh, are you seeing a black slide? No, uh, we are seeing that your computer uh, Windows background. The desktop background oh, okay. with, with the folders. Let me try. Let me try. Here we go. Yeah. Are we? Can you see something now? Yes. We yes, see yes. a screen. Yes. We see, yeah. We see the words on the screen. Good. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. 
um, the, the reason why I showed this picture of the ISS is just this, this is at, at this point, this is the state of the art of space architecture, right? This is what, this is what the actual space architecture that exists look like. Um, and if, 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 you are, if you are far away uh, in one of the most hostile environments that humans can imagine, Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'm here to We we lost you again, uh, Sebastian. Yeah, I'm. I'm so sorry. I'm just trying one last desperate attempt, and we hope it works. Okay. All right. I think I think it should be a little bit better now. Um, all right. I'm I'm gonna move on a little bit. Um, this is just an image of of, of maybe the, the the most important piece of space architecture that exists right now. The image of uh, of, of the cupola on the International Space Station. That's correct. Um, yeah, and um, I'm going to move past this a little bit. Um, but so space architecture is um, you, you have the opportunity with space architecture to make a completely climate controlled environment. You can make uh, you can make uh, the perfect temperature, the perfect uh, uh, humidity. Uh, the perfect light environment. You, you can basically design everything because it's a completely controlled environment. But we don't think that's the best way to go about this. We think that, that humans really need variation. Um, without variation, you start to lose the sense of time. Um, you don't, and, and people, people, because of Corona now, a lot of people can, can actually uh, relate. Um, you cannot remember when all the days uh, look the same, you cannot remember uh, when you talked with your mom, was it two days ago? Was it five days ago? Was it was it uh, last week? Um, so so you start to lose the sense of time, and at the same time, uh, if 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 everything is monotone, uh, nothing is great, right? Uh, a, a beautiful day is, is only beautiful because there's a bad day, right? Uh, 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 so 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 you need that kind of contrast, and that was also one of the starting points for our, our habitat in Greenland. So we, so we really tackled two problems, which is also what we generally focus on. And that's the, the lack of stimulation in space uh, is an issue. Uh, and then we wanted to create an expandable structure. An expandable structure, this we talked, uh, there was a lot of presentations today about expandable structures, um, but um, there was a lot of uh, talk today about expandable structures, but we really wanted to do expandable architecture because of privacy. Um, in the in the habitat that we were designing, or was for the near future moon missions, the Artemis missions, uh, where the, the 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 volume available is extremely small. And that that finally brings me to Lunark. Um, so Lunark is is our uh, moon analog that we did in northern Greenland, where me and my co-founder was the the participants in the in the study for a uh, hundred days. Uh, 5,500 kilometers uh, from Denmark, far up in the north, uh, uh, above the polar polar line, uh, all the way up uh, at the 
at the, at the edge of the ice cap. Um, and we spent, uh, we spent nine months developing the, the unfolding origami um, that, uh, um, that makes the habitat. And it was a painful process. And we talked with a lot of experts, both from NASA and around the world. And everybody told us it cannot be done. You cannot make a closed volume expandable origami uh, structure with, with rigid, rigid shells. Um, and we almost believed them, uh, but through prototyping and some flexible seams, we were actually uh, able to do it. And as you can see here, we are moving up into scale. Uh, so it becomes larger and larger. Um, and we get more and more confidence with the, with the geometry, the materials, um, because we also needed, one thing is to make something fold, but you also need to make it fold and be durable in the tough Arctic environment. And here you can see me and my co-founder uh, 16 days before the uh, 16 hours, sorry, before departure. Uh, we finally uh, wrapped the project. We, we packed the habitat down, put it in the container, and, uh, and luckily it fit with uh, just one inch on each side uh, of, of free, free space. Here you can see me and my co-founder dragging the habitat uh, on the black sand of, of, of the northern Greenland at the beginning of the expedition where the temperatures were, were mild. Here we are just below freezing. And it was very important for us to create a habitat that could be completely deployed by a crew of two without heavy machinery. Um, and here, I hope, I really hope this translates uh, well. I'm gonna leave it running for just a, a couple more frames. Um, here you can see us over the duration of, of 10 hours in the Arctic snowy conditions, we are unfolding the habitat. The habitat is made out of carbon fiber, aluminum, and a composite, a flexible uh, seam. Um, and it's, it's super lightweight and, and that made it deployable. Um, and we were, we were very satisfied with the, with the expand, expansion. Uh, we had more than 750% uh, volume after expansion. Here's a couple of, uh, of, of images of the habitat. So the habitat is designed to be at the peak of eternal light uh, on, the, on the south pole of the moon. So, so the entire facade or the, the exterior of the habitat is covered in solar panels. These tiny, small, uh, very thin, flexible uh, solar panels. Um, so we could generate uh, energy and, and utilize the, the, the local environment of the, of the South Pole of the Moon. And at the same time, um, the North Pole uh, also has these very e extreme lighting conditions. So for the first 30 days of the expedition, uh, we had sunlight all the time, but for the last uh, 30 days of the expedition, we didn't see the sun go above the horizon once. Um, and here you can see me, um, while we were setting up camp, we had, we had some issues of, of very strong winds that we had prepared for with these uh, very long earth anchors that had to be hammered down manually into the frozen ground. Um, and of course, that's not an issue uh, on the moon, um, but, but at some point we had to uh, develop the habitat to withstand these strong winds and, and not just the lunar environment. And uh, the, the entire analog expedition was uh, very true to, uh, to what a moon expedition would be. We had uh, designed and developed these carbon fiber space helmets uh, that we wore all the time if we were going outside. 
And the great thing about being in Northern Greenland is that it was extremely cold. Um, so that meant that there was no way of cheating. We had to have our spacesuit on at all times uh, uh, after just a few weeks in the Arctic, the temperature was that cold. Um, so, so it was also, and, and, and that's really why one of the, we, we chose the Arctic uh, and Northern Greenland. It's, it's in Northern Greenland, or you, you can pick the South Pole or the, or, the, or, the, or the North Pole, right? But because we are in Denmark and it's closer to the North Pole, we, we picked the North Pole. But the reason why we picked the North Pole is because you have these interesting lighting conditions that are somewhat similar to what, what the stressors uh, astronauts would experience on the moon. With, with long periods of darkness and, and long periods of sunlight. Then it's extremely cold. So if you go outside, there's not a vacuum, but you can get frostbite, right? So there's that stress uh, and that's real. And so you're very confined. Then it's, it's isolated. So there's, uh, you know, we were far away from, from anything living um, and you need to solve all, all your problems yourself. And there was a, a tremendous challenge uh, uh, and, and a huge uh, amount of stress uh, during the expedition being that far away from everyone. And then the last thing is you have a very monotone landscape. So you have a landscape without a lot of nature and a lot of life. Um, uh, the only animals that, that, that was there was Arctic foxes and the occasional polar bear. We, we had one polar bear encounter, but, 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 uh, but luckily it was uh, just a curious polar bear and, and, and not a, an, a hungry one. Um, so here you can see us on one of our EDAs uh, climbing up one of the nearest mountains in the beginning of the expedition while we still had sunlight. And at this point, we had spent so much time inside the habitat. I think this is after a month, a month. Yeah. And, uh, and we already experienced a lot of muscle atrophy, even though we tried to work out every other day. Inside the habitat, one of the, the big interior design elements that we wanted to test because of the extreme light conditions. Um, this is a system that, that we tested for, for habitat on the moon as well, right? So we created these circadian light panels and these, they, they basically simulate sunlight um, uh, independently of what the light is outside. So, so we simulated the uh, a lighting environment, a Danish lighting environment, because we are from Denmark, um, throughout the entire expedition. So we would wake up with sunlight at our sunrise and throughout the day there would be daylight and different uh, intensities and color temperatures of daylight. And then we would have sunset and twilight. Um, and we participated in a lot of studies, uh, our own research projects, but also we were kind of the guinea pigs in a lot of other uh, research groups, uh, external studies and uh, and it, there was mostly uh, psychological studies and, and crew dynamics and, and, and sleep uh, studies. But um, one of the biggest, and all, all that data is, is, has been handed uh, in January to all the researchers and it's being uh, uh, analyzed and, and, and hopefully within the, the end of the year, all the papers will be published. But we, um, uh, but from my own intuitive understanding and, 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 and what I felt throughout the expedition, the lighting panels was one of the biggest uh, contributors to well-being throughout the expedition. And we did continuous um, cognitive tests uh, and, and we actually performed, there was no difference before the expedition, during the expedition or after the expedition in cognitive ability, in, in, uh, in uh, short-term memory, 
uh, in uh, reaction time and, and all these things, they actually stayed the same throughout, which uh, either proves that, that me and Carl, we are superhumans or the architecture uh, uh, worked really well. Um, and, uh, and I think it's the latter because we are definitely just uh, civilians. We don't have any astronaut or, or military or, or survival training. So here, here's an image of Carl during one of the more saturated, intense sunsets inside the habitat. So, so we didn't have any control on the on, on, on the programming of of the panels. They were uh, pre-programmed um, with variation, so the days wouldn't look the same. And that was one of the biggest things. So, one day would be a beautiful sunrise, another day would be a a, a boring gray uh, sun sunrise. It was very small, um, even though the habitat expanded seven hundred and and fifty percent. The footprint. The livable footprint on the first floor was only four and a half square meters. And that's incredibly, that's very small. Um, but we did, we had flexible furniture so we could fold up the tables and, and use the space to work out. And uh, we used the, the, the tall uh, uh, space of uh, the tall volume of the interior to have sleeping pods uh, uh, just beneath the, the roof. Um, to the left here, you can see an image of the taken outside on one of the last days of, of sun, sunlight um, throughout the, the airlock. Um, so the entire habitat was organized completely like a, a space habitat uh, or a lunar habitat would be organized. Uh, so we also had an airlock. In our case, the airlock was great because that would, we wouldn't lose that much heat when, whenever one of us had to do an EVA. Um, and on the right, you can see an image of the habitat during the dark period. I think this is uh, in the middle of the day, but there's basically no sunlight. We also developed uh, our own entire habitat brain. Uh, we have a couple of, of, of programmers, data scientists on our team, and uh, they developed the entire technical parts of it. I'm not going to go too much into detail for that, um, but we, we named it Odin, and it basically collected data uh, from 72 sensors around the habitat um, that we are still analyzing now. And here you can see me using the, the interface, checking the temperatures and the, uh, of the different sensors, the different spaces inside the habitat throughout the night. Um, that's something we did frequently. And this is the last image taken of the habitat. This is a uh, full moon. Um, and for the curious or the, or the the, 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 the cyber detectives out there, you can see out to the right here, I believe uh, it's either dead pixel <laughs> in the camera because of the freezing cold or it's, or it's uh, a picture of Mars glowing red. Um, and uh, so here you can see it's, it's minus, at this point it's, the wind chill is minus 41 degrees Celsius, which is also about minus 41 Fahrenheit. Uh, that's where the two, um, overlap, so, um, so that's that's easy to remember. Um, and the wind speeds uh, at this point uh, in the world is is, is incredible. Um, some days the the walls of the habitat would uh, would move, kind of breathing. Here's uh, an, a rendering on the left of of what we thought the habitat would look like uh, halfway through development, and and on the right is, is what it actually ended up looking like. Um, I think it is quite simple. Um, I'm almost at the end, um, but I just want to show you something uh, of behind the scenes. I think this is something that I wish uh, to see in a lot of other projects, but basically how is it built? 
and we built everything from scratch ourselves. There was only, I think it's about 10 welds in the aluminum that we didn't make ourselves because our equipment couldn't ha handle that amount of, 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 uh, of, of energy. Um, so, uh, so the entire habitat, all the aluminum, we machined it ourselves, uh, the carbon fiber panel, we, we, we cut it ourselves and assembled everything with a, in our workshop in Copenhagen. And we continue uh, today uh, in the same workshop space, uh, doing prototypes and developing our, our architecture. And here you can see um, some of our uh, some of our team members uh, assembling the flexible seams and all the different bolts and nuts that, that pulls this habitat together. Um, and here you can see us using very primitive techniques uh, to lift the top shell up. Uh, it, was, it was a large piece uh, to manually uh, move around, but, but uh, because it was made of aluminum and, and carbon fiber, it was actually not that hard to handle for a group of, of people. Um, and on the right, you see the entire battery box wrapped uh, in captain tape uh, before shipment. And here's an image of the team a couple of, of, of days before the, the final uh, departure. But yeah, so, so we work with expandable structures. And uh, now we're also getting into uh, 3D printing. We uh, believe that there's a huge opportunity with 3D printing on uh, uh, on, in, in space. Um, of course, uh, a lot of people have already worked with, with 3D printing, especially with the NASA 3D printing challenge, um, but we want to use it. We want to do it on Earth. So here's a project that we are doing uh, right now. This is the our, uh, project we started right when we got back, where we are developing uh, together with a, a real estate developer and a 3D print uh, printer manufacturer called Cobot. They made large construction printers in Denmark. Uh, printing with concrete, um, and we are doing uh, 30 houses um, that are going to be 3D printed this year. And this is not the house, this is just to show you the most recent project they printed with the printer. Uh, this is a foundation, 130 ton concrete foundation of a windmill tower. And here's a visualization of the architecture that we are working on right now. And uh, the reason that we are doing that is uh, we believe that there's an opportunity to really mature our design techniques and understanding the process here on Earth before uh, taking it into space. Um, we, this is our take on, on developing all these technologies. We need to have a sustainable business model around our entire company so we can keep doing R&D and keep doing these uh, research projects but do it in a financially feasible way and finding projects where we can test parts of space architecture to fund our space architecture R&D is, is super crucial for us. So um, that's what I had for you uh, today. I'm so sorry for the spotty internet. Uh, I hope that was okay here at the end. Um, the the material made up for um, that technological problem, uh, Sebastian. Uh, I mean, it's a very interesting project. Now, I have two questions. Uh, one is, uh, are you both uh, friends after after this? <laughs> this <laughs> <civil> <laughs> 
Yeah, that's a valid question. Uh, if, if, when you live next to somebody for such a long time uh, and the wall to the toilet is just uh, one and a half centimeter, you really learn to know each other uh, too well. Um, yeah. but, uh, but it was actually nice. What we learned was there was conflict, uh, but we would never go to bed, uh, you know, being uh, not friends. Um, but what happens when you're so reliant on each other for surviving these extreme conditions and, and extreme environment, you you make it work. Uh, and it was actually normally I don't like the sound of a person snoring while I'm trying to fall asleep, but listening to Carl snore uh, in the in the night was actually a pleasant sound uh, when the when the alternative was just the storm uh, outside, uh, a little bit sounder, a little bit noise from life. So. Yeah, that that was my other question. Did the storms bother you? Because I have heard horror stories about how people behave when these howling storms happen in the South Pole and so on. Um, it's unbearable that yeah. uh, you really go wacko. Um, yeah. So uh, um, that is a good point that you make. And we got to run along. Thank you so much, Sebastian, to take, for you to take the time and say hello to cons for me um, and uh, to the rest of your team. We hope to see more of you uh, in the coming uh, few events. Thank you. Thank you so much. We are now on to our friend uh, uh, from um, North Dakota. And um, you know, Professor Pablo De Leon has created a very unique program there at the, the university that uh, squarely deals with the uh, humans in space because he is a spacesuit designer of sorts. Uh, we had a hard time picking the picture for you, Pablo, on the on the flyer, and we decided we're going to put both pictures on there, one with the suit and one with your beautiful smile. Uh, Pablo, please go ahead. Madhu, thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, thank you for, for to the AIAA. Uh, I hope uh, you are all able to hear me and. The screen is being shared with the full screen with the presentation. Very clear. Okay, great. So um, I work at the Department of Space Studies at the University of North Dakota. Also very cold, but not as cold as, uh, as uh, Sebastian uh, at the place where, where Sebastian uh, was uh, stationed. Um, and uh, over the years, we built a, a number of um, habitats, some of them inflatable and some of them are rigid, and I'm going to briefly cover some of the of the things that we are doing. After seeing so so many impressive concepts of uh, of the colleagues presenting before me, I, I feel a little bit kind of humble because our project is very very um, simple if you compare with so many of the interesting concepts that we saw uh, today. Um, in any case, my uh, the name of my presentation is Planetary Habitat Analogs at the University of North Dakota, but we can also call it why you shouldn't let an engineer design a space habitat without supervision. And uh, if you bear with me, I'll, uh, I'll tell you a little bit uh, more why, why I think uh, on, on this. Thank, thank you, Pablo, that's a good one. <laughs> so um, as Madhu said, uh, my area of expertise and mainly what we do in the lab is spacesuits. We specialize in planetary spacesuits uh, through different NASA research projects, NASA grants, as opposed to microgravity suits that you'll use, for example, in the International Space Stations, uh, these are suits that are specifically developed 
to have a, a higher, lower torso mobility. So you can actually walk, something that you don't need to do in microgravity. So what we try to research is on, is on the kinematics and the reduced gravity gradients. So that's mainly what we do. And we have been doing through the years, a number of prototype spacesuits, um, some of them more uh, designed for the Mars environment and some others for the lunar environment. And you know, the differences are dust composition, gravity, and a number of other uh, thermal issues that um, pertain to the lack of atmosphere on, on the moon versus the lower atmosphere that uh, we have on Mars. So um, again, this was our area of expertise, and you'll say what these have to do with habitats. Um, if you think about uh, a spacesuit, and I think it was uh, mentioned before by uh, Phil, um, as the materials of a spacesuit and the materials of an inflatable habitat are very, very similar. So what we did was uh, in one of the designs of uh, one of our suits, the NDX-2, which is a, a rear entry <clears throat> suit similar to the Russian Orleans uh, or the new XEMU that, that will be used in Artemis, is that they have a rear entry system with what is called a suit port. And I saw that before uh, was mentioned uh, my, my friend Mark Cohen, uh, who actually he was the designer and the and the, the the inventor of the concept of the suit port. This uh, door uh, that is uh, positioned outside of this uh, in the in the back of the spacesuit, and through a mechanical seal, you can leave the um, spacecraft or the habitat um, without introducing dust into the living quarters. So <clears throat> some years ago, we we developed a prototype of a spacesuit. And while I was looking at the arm of the NDX2, I said, well, you know, if we kind of scale up this arm, which is basically a flexible um, um, structure, we can have a, uh, we can build a habitat. So we sent a proposal to NASA, which um, was called Integrated Strategies for a Human Exploration of the Moon and Mars, that basically had the idea to test three concepts the spacesuit connected to the pressurized rover and the pressurized rover connected to the habitat. And then you can disconnect all these three different components and connect them back again. So again, we'll keep the dust outside of the habitat or that was the idea. Um, so uh, we got the grant and the initial concept was this one was um, uh, uh, airtight membrane, the bladder, which uh, hypothetically we're going to pressurize um, enough so the astronauts could be in a, in a pressurized environment, and then they can build the structure with, with um, metal or composite uh, elements and build a floor, the walls, etc., to later put all the equipment inside. So that was the original idea that we had at that time. Um, and also this uh, module was going to be connected through a tunnel that will connect mechanically to the rover and then disconnect just like in the airplanes that uh, you remove the gate in order for the airplane to, to go. So something along those lines. So we started building it. <clears throat> uh, it was work of a couple of years. Uh, first the structure, uh, then the covering of the walls, uh, ceiling, all the internal uh, accommodations for the, for the habitat. Um, again, remember, we have to also design the mechanical driving system to connect with the rover. Inside, it was very, very simple. 
just a science area for sleeping quarters, very cramped ones, uh, uh, a hygiene area, which is a, a kind of a technical name for the bathroom, uh, a small kitchen and a meeting area slash dining area. Uh, so that was our original module. Um, you can see here from a top view of how it was going to be. Uh, and uh, here you can see during the first uh, mission that we did, just in one side of the university to see how everything worked. Once we put the, uh, the bladder, the membrane on the habitat, plus the pressurized rover, plus the pressurized spacesuits. You can see here a side of the rover uh, where you can see the two suits that are connected. I'll show you in another picture um, how the suits were attached to this uh, suit port system where releasing a lever, uh, you can detach the suit from the rover and then you have to walk back and connect back again, which is a maneuver that is kind of difficult to do. And uh, then we started doing a number of uh, analog missions uh, just to see, to test a number of different systems in the habitat, but also to test the spacesuits to perform uh, different EVAs with different experiments, etc. Now, the inside, it doesn't look like 2001 Space Odyssey or anything like that. It's a very, very, I can say, a simple Spartan interior of a main, and we're looking at this picture from the kind of the science air, area. And that day was specifically, was, was everything was very disorganized inside because that was the beginning of the mission when, when the crew members are setting everything ready and getting the experiments, getting the food, et cetera, in the proper places. So, uh, but as you can see inside, it doesn't look anything like some of the concepts that we saw earlier today. This is a very kind of utilitarian, and you can tell that this was, you know, built by, by, by an engineer, certainly. Um, so these are just some pictures of living in the habitat. Uh, we did um, missions of up to 30 days uh, so far. You can see, for example, here, this is the tunnel that connects with the rover. So you can, uh, you crawl from the habitat to the rover, you pass through, and then uh, through a remote control system, you detach the, the gate, we can call it, uh, so you can drive around with the rover, do your extravehicular activity, get back again, drive again to the habitat and um, have it connected again. The sleeping quarters are also very, uh, very small, just a tiny bed and that's pretty much it, but they have a shower, they have um, uh, a proper uh, kitchen, utensils, etc., etc. So, uh, not happy with the first habitat, we sent another proposal to NASA to build an upgrade of the of the of our habitat, consisting in four additional modules, and these four modules were going to be dedicated modules with uh, specific uh, uses. Uh, for example, one was going to be an EVA slash workshop uh, module to repair um, different things and to keep the maintenance and servicing of the spacesuits, and also have two suit ports in the back. Uh, in addition to the other two spacesuits that remain inside, uh, outside of the uh, of the habitat in the rover, an exercise um, and human performance module, uh, bio biology and geology lab, and a plant production module. So let me just show you some of the uh, characteristics of all these different modules here. Um, they are all interconnected by a connecting tunnel, so you I ca you can go from the 
uh, without the need of a spacesuit from the living quarters to any of the other four modules. Uh, this is just uh, the human exercise uh, with just some simple machines uh, and very basic kind of uh, medical uh, facilities with some telemedicine uh, uh, possibilities in there to transmit um, information about the health of the crew members to the outside. Uh, this is the EVA and maintenance module. Again, as I mentioned before, with two spacesuits, uh, two spacesuits mounted in the back, and some space for uh, repairs and, and uh, maintenance. Um, and this is the plants production module that I'm going to talk uh, about in a, in a few moments um, as well. So we have to build the modules, and uh, the difference between the core, what we call the core module, which is with the living quarters. To the other four is that the core module was made inflatable. Uh, but here in North Dakota, we have the problem that it's not called North Dakota for nothing. We have very high winds and also temperatures in the in the winter that goes uh, beyond minus 50. So um, the, 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 the inflatable materials suffer a lot being outside, uh, being constantly battled by, by, by the winds and the, the habitat was kept in place by full air pressure. So we decided to do the four additional modules rigid. So they are made out of aluminum. Uh, you can see here some pictures of uh, when we are moving them into the terrain, <clears throat> which in the middle of the summer doesn't look much like Mars, uh, but, uh, but regardless. Um, here we are <clears throat> doing the assembly of, uh, for example, these are the trays and the electrical system for the lights for the plant production module. Um, and, uh, here you can see some of the different pictures uh, doing some of the analog missions uh, here with some snow, etc. So um, we have been performing so far eight missions, eight analog missions with uh, between three and four crew members each. We run experiments for different NASA centers so far and universities as well, and some thesis for our students as well. Um, so we keep them pretty busy during the during the, the time that we do missions uh, do, during the year. You can see here, for example, in the plant production module, we have uh, some, um, uh, some ro uh, robotic systems to tender the, the plants. And um, this was done through uh, an agreement with the University of Hawaii that they develop a 3D uh, printed robotic system uh, that we are using here for hydroponics. So um, right now we are uh, in every mission with a percent of the food. And again, it's a small percent because this was, uh, I think, presented before by, uh, by prior speakers, uh, the amount of food that you can um, supplement the, the other food that the astronauts will be consuming during the mission. Um, but uh, we have been doing not just uh, hydroponics, but also through a technique that is uh, called vermiculture, using uh, worms to, to fertilize uh, analog Mars regolith. Uh, we have been able to turn a simulant regolith <clears throat> into a fertile um, place for the plants to grow. So that's one of the, of the other things that we have been doing uh, here and, uh, and has been very interesting. We also work with uh, Ray Wheeler as our our kind of a mentor and, and, and great uh, uh, plant genius, uh, giving us uh, great ideas and telling us exactly uh, what kind of lights do we need, et cetera, et cetera. So, so his uh, help has been, uh, has been really great. Um, 
So uh, what we do there, we uh, grow edible plants only uh, that the crews are able to enjoy, uh, some of them anyways, uh, during, the, during the missions. Um, again, at this point, the percent is very small. Uh, so we are carrying with us most of the of the food during the analog missions, um, but uh, hopefully in the future we'll be able to increase this uh, this number. And we have been also um, doing some experiments with mushrooms and and some other some other things. Um, so normally we start the plant growth uh, several weeks before the beginning of a mission. So uh, by the time that the crew gets in, because they can't go out other than in spacesuits, uh, they uh, can enjoy the the plants in the first uh, in the first few days uh, after they are in uh, in the in the in the habitat, right? So um, again, we're testing the two systems: the hydroponically uh, growth versus traditional one, and versus a Mars regolith enriched uh, with uh, vermiculture. So these are some pictures of the microbiology and geology module that we are able to do perform analysis on the plants. Uh, we can also be working with the planetary protection people at JPL to test how some of the microbes um, grow in the in the habitat uh, and what kind of issues that can bring uh, in the future to to the potential crews. And of course, we do a lot of EVAs practically. Uh, every 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 two days, the crew members have to live on uh, on simulated EVAs. That again, the landscape is not very convincing, but uh, we're doing uh, we're doing the the, the tasks uh, regardless. Um, we also perform a lot of behavioral studies um, uh, through um, another university. They develop a portable electroencephalograph that we use inside the spacesuit. So we are able to capture um, readings of the crew members while they are using the spacesuit. And they are doing very, very interesting studies on that, sleep behavior in isolation exercise, uh, artificial light uh, as well, uh, and virtual reality training. Uh, we are now preparing our mission number nine. Oh, there is a patch that is, is not here. But uh, our next mission, we have to delay it because of the pandemics. Uh, and, uh, but by the end of April, we'll do our new mission that is gonna be 21 days uh, for crew members. So not, right now we are working in the organization uh, for, for that. Um, you can see here some other uh, experiments of previous uh, crews and we keep them very, very busy during uh, we are trying to implement some of the ISS uh, mission planning uh, systems to try to uh, create routines for them. But at the same time, we give them enough uh, time if, to organize the day by themselves so they don't feel that they are constantly controlled by, 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 by someone from outside. Um, so with that, uh, I'm going to finish the presentation. I, I thank everybody again, uh, Madhu and, and everybody for, for listening to this, all right? Uh, thank you. Thank you, Pablo, for an excellent presentation. Uh, you know, when you do, when you practice what we preach, uh, you learn a lot more very, very quickly. And uh, um, uh, Pablo, I can't thank you enough. Uh, now, the student, are the students the, sim uh, the um, um, part of the sim uh, 
what do you call it, the simnotics? Yes. Well, um, you know, the thing is, the students were involved since the beginning in the planning and the development of the construction of all okay. this. All, all this was done uh, by, by students. Um, and also, uh, they are, even if we have people from outside, because in some cases we have people from Johnson Space Center or Kennedy or, or outside that want to bring some experiments from other universities, et cetera, um, we also work with our grad students. Uh, our department is a graduate only, master's and, and PhD. So um, the hands-on experience that, that they have is, is very well appreciated later by private companies or, or by NASA or other contractors they will go to work with. So, so yeah. Absolutely, mm -hmm. and I know you are a very hands-on person yourself. <laughs> and, uh, uh, tell me, I, I read that paper um, that you published with the Kavya. Yes, Kavya Manyapu, sure. Yes, absolutely. Yes, yeah. well, Kavya is now a, an adjunct professor in the, in oh. the, in the department. Oh, so I'm working with her in a number of proposals. So uh, with Dust, uh, she Dust, yes. developed yes. as part of her um, uh, dissertation, um, I think an excellent system to prevent dust. So did we are still did working. Did you get some results from that experiment, uh, Pablo? Well, uh, we have a sample now in the International Space Station. There oh. is a mission called MISI-11 uh, that is exposure to, uh, to the space environment. And we took several of the fabric samples treated with this special um, nanot carbon nanotube system. Right. Uh, we're waiting for a dragon capsule to bring it back to Earth. And uh, we're going to study how the elements of the carbon nanotubes reacted to being more than one year in space. Excellent. Thank you so much, Pablo. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Okay, uh, now we are off to our last presenter. And I want to introduce to you uh, Chris Kennedy, uh, who is not only an architect, but he's one of the one of one of the first architects I know who worked right there in the middle of the action at NASA, at, at Johnson Space Center. And um, he had an he has an accomplished um, bio uh, with a lot of inventions to it, including the Transhab, which all of us know about. Uh, and uh, Chris now has his own company and uh, uh, we would love to welcome you, Chris. Uh, thank you so much for <laughs> a little bit of delay in getting to your presentation, but glad you're here and uh, we'd love to hear from you. Well, thank you, Madhu, and thank you to all of those who are still on at this point. Can you see my slides and uh, hear me yes, okay? Yes, you're coming through very well. It's quickly. been a very exhilarating day and a glimpse of the future and a lot of really great work. I'm honored to be included among you know, this distinguished panel of space architects and engineers. As you said, um, I'm a licensed architect since 1995 and have worked as a space architect at NASA Johnson Space Center for about 30 years. Um, during our first uh, space architecture gathering, I spoke of space architecture at the tipping point. Um, today, I want to present a vision of United Space Structure's idea of built-in place architectures that I've been working on with them. Um, so, what I will present today is a sampling, a high-level overview of our efforts, not uh, by any means uh, detailed design work. Um, so, I think Carl Sagan said it best is, if our long-term survival is at stake, we have to basic responsibility to our species to venture to other worlds. 
And I feel strongly that space architecture will enable humanity to expand to multiple planets. My vision as an architect is to enable humanity to become a multi-planet species. I, and I envision that the future lunar or Mars landscape of many different and diverse architectures as you've seen today, much like a city here on Earth has many different architectures. <clears throat> so my question is, what if, what if ISRU derived structures using automated additive construction was feasible? And we've seen glimpses of that today. When I was designing space inflatable concepts at NASA in the early 80s and our late 80s, early 90s, the fabric technology was not ready for prototyping. We had to wait for stronger fibers and materials such as Kevlar and Vectrans to mature uh, those fibers and fabrics and straps in order to use them and prototype them and test them and transhab in the 2000 timeframe. So technologies and capabilities are maturing to enable these new innovations in architectures. In situ derived built in place structures using robotic construction capabilities are being prototyped all over the world. Um, waterless using sulfur binders, Lunacrete uh, as defined by Hussein um, with the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering is, is one of those um, types of uh, lunar crete that I think is going to change how we look and view the future. So our vision is, is to provide permanent self-sustaining earth independent structures and, and uh, habitats or actually much larger habitats to enable a robust interplanetary space economy. We will leverage, partner, and utilize services and capabilities such as mining, in situ manufacturing, power generation, and robotic capabilities. We'll become a forcing function. One of our goals is to utilize as much in situ mined and material and manufactured components and products as possible, eventually approaching near 100% as we build our structures. <clears throat> we have defined a number of goals and objectives but I'm not going to go into all of those today. As anybody who's taken my courses or, or listened to any of my lectures know the importance of vision, mission, goals, and objectives. <clears throat> so <clears throat> what is next after the initial Artemis small lunar research labs and habitats that house maybe four to six, eight different uh, crew members? It's a shift, a shift in Lunar Mars strategic vision and mindset a strategic vision of lunar real estate development on a large scale, much like here on Earth in architecture. Commercialization of, you know, will have a future trillion dollar space industry. It will force that function. Um, will be designed as mixed-use, multi-story facilities for prospective tenants. We'll start with uh, global international building codes and standards as a point of departure in addition to the NASA standards and will also follow master spec formats. We will adopt and tailor our traditional architecture building and construction institute master spec specifications, formatting and numbering for our use. We'll force change. I think we need to force a change of how you, the USA ITAR restrictions and regulations are forced upon planetary surface architectures. This is not done um, we are not using or we're not making missiles and weapons, we're making surface architectures. ITAR does not regulate the terrestrial architecture industry. <clears throat> so 
So what if then we think about uh, United Space Structure's strategic vision is to build facilities on the surface and within lava tubes using these built-in place structures and robotic construction capabilities. We're planning on using the same patent-pending automated additive construction robotics processes and techniques to build our structures. Our construction robots and processes drive and inform the designs that can be built in place, focusing on simplicity of construction and robustness of the structure. And in my many years as a space architect at NASA, it's always been about the internal architecture for the human health and well-being. So our lunar concrete or lunarcrete approach is based on uh, paper of performance of waterless concrete as I mentioned earlier. So my value proposition is this. Um, it's strategic thinking beyond the Artemis initial human exploration. It's about the commercialization and industrialization of space, the moon, and Mars, and moving beyond that. It's about real estate, setting up lunar real estate ventures, analogous to here on Earth, real estate ventures to design, build, and operate commercial office towers and facilities in any city. It's a forcing function of lunar capability and services. We're not going to do all of these types of needs and capabilities and services. We will, we will uh, hire or, or use and, and build them or use other people, their services. And so really it's a forcing function to get these companies um, focused and start building and thinking about building the types of things that are needed. So it's a market demand and opportunity for in-situ manufacturing on the moon. Um, we have uh, looking at uh, various collaboration and partnerships and there's many technology and architectural engineering opportunities out here. In addition to, we have tentative collaborations with two robotic companies and five universities. <clears throat> so I'm going to touch a little bit about each of our concepts and we have other ones but I'm only highlighting three here. So the USS is, is planning on using the same patent pending automated additive construction robotics processes and techniques to build our in-place architectures. So we let the, the, from the external aspect of it, the architecture looks uh, simplistic, it is not very sexy, but like I said, the focus is on the internal architecture. When I was running the Habitat Demonstration Unit project, our focus was on the internal systems, the operating systems, the, and getting the technologies working together. That's really the focus of this is really to about the internal aspects, the internal architecture. We would utilize and locate ourselves um, near in situ resources and settlement strategies. We would use class one pre-integrated habitats, small habitats as construction shacks during the initial tower construction. Our towers are scalable in architecture, they're customer driven and functionally tailored to each individual intended use and concept of operation. <clears throat> um, you can see some of the details or some of the uh, characteristics of these structures. Um, one of the unique aspects of this is the internal core of the habitat or the large facility as we like to say it. And so the other aspect is the uh, actual shell wall construction in which we are looking at dual use or dual wall design 
of reinforced tension cables and glass fiber embedded waterless lunar crete with a customized outer shell. And then the shell cavity could be filled with expandable polyethylene foam, high density polyethylene, aerogel, water, or other materials to be determined. We will pre-tension the shell while reinforcing cables, then overlay a lath and emplace the lunar concrete, building up to the required thickness and, and structural integrity of the pressure cell, given the size and diameter of our facility. <clears throat> this shows uh, some of the internal aspects of it. And a couple things I wanted to point out is what was brought up today, uh, starting with your foundation and using uh, horizontal reinforcing tension cables and glass fibers, but also uh, GeoPeer supports to make sure we have a stable foundation, given the size of our structure that we envision. We also are looking to uh, place uh, horizontal bulkheads. Think of this as a um, submarine stood on end, where you have bulkheads placed horizontally that can separate segments of the tower should you lose pressure in a certain segment, but also so that the systems can operate an independently each of these segments. So if you don't necessarily have the tenants to build out the entire facility, in which case we could make a smaller, shorter diameter or shorter, um, we can adjust accordingly. <clears throat> we also have been looking at different uh, options on our domes and how to close them out with various glazing opportunities and sunshades. The other thing I wanted to aspect that I wanted to promote is is the idea of that we are looking to take advantage of pre-manufactured components, but also to have uh, systems and the ISRU manufacturing start building components for us. And so we become a forcing function again. Um, looking for a service, looking for ISRU companies to build us various aspects of structural components or even uh, shells or, or um, uh, space frames and, and components of space frames or um, things of that nature. We're looking at a floor-to-floor -floor height that takes into account uh, plenum spaces, utilities, and lunar gravity. We're also looking at aspects of using uh, to make the lunar from lunar material to make glass fibers for fiber optics that would, could be woven into fabrics for walls and ceilings that could be used in many ways, including the diurnal cycle, um, to give the different uh, color temperatures. Um, this is a focus a little bit on that core aspect of our vertical shell, the shaft, um, which could be pre-manufactured and shipped on the first one, but we hope to manufacture those in situ in a, a uh, manufacturing, uh, ISRU manufacturing facility that would be built on the moon. Um, we're still looking at whether we would have one of these or two or three within each of the large facilities and structures. Um, the other thing is what it's not showing here is the elevator system, which would be in the middle of that, as well as the utilities that would run vertically. <clears throat> Another one of our designs is a conical tower. So that was a cylindrical concept. This is uh, more of the conical aspect, keeping in mind a pressure vessel. Um, here again, we can vary the scale, the size, and shape of the conicals to fit the need of our customers. Um, using some of the same techniques and principles, 
we would um, build it similarly and we would use a uh, construction system and crane system that would then be allow us to do 3D printing as we build our shell wall as well as we're looking at different flooring uh, techniques and flooring systems and we'll look at different trade-offs as to different ways to do that whether it's it's prefabricated or ISRU derived or lunar concrete waffle slab or some other type of flooring system. The other third one is our lunar lava tube uh, tower facility and actually it was our first concept which focused on the idea of placing uh, and building a large capability within a lava tube. Now, when, I, when you look at lava tubes, and there are 62 known lava tubes on the moon, um, the unique thing about that is you find that there's skylights or the mouth opening, and that's very difficult because that's kind of the weak spot of the whole lava tube. And so our approach is unique in that we want to drill through the good part of the lava tube down through this, through in, into the cave or the top apex of the lava tube. Um, we have identified three possible locations that we'll be sending probes to over the next few years to investigate those lava tubes. And we're working with several universities on uh, different robotic systems that could be placed into the lava tube that will map it and 3D survey it for us. Um, so we plan to utilize these lunar materials and 3D print our materials. And matter of fact, some of the 3D printing companies that uh, we had presented today are some of the ones we're interested in and further conversations with and the robotic systems to do that. So our idea is the entire facility is, is robotically constructed. Um, this gives you an overview of that in which I was talking about how we would drill uh, down through to create a shaft and then lower our system down and build from the floor up using the tension fabric cable system and the lunar concrete and building as we go up and securing it to the uh, to the top of the lava tube. And of course there's a lot of work to do to work out the details of that. Um, as shown in this picture here uh, we looked again at uh, dividing it up into segments and the different types of concept of operations and different functions and users in these different segments and it can be rack and stacked in many different ways. But the idea again is creating tower bulkheads to be able to segment off and close off areas should you need to in the future. <clears throat> Um, we've done a little bit of idea looking at uh, master planning. If anyone's seen any of my lectures on zoning and, and master planning, the idea is to locate your uh, landing pads away from the habitat at least a kilometer plus. Um, you can get a little closer if you've got berming around them and sintered landing pads. Typically um, in the equatorial regions, the uh, flights are coming in from the east and landing um, and so going the east to west so your landing pads are a little bit more oval shape. Um, the habitat, or in this case the lava tube, is down at the bottom um, in which case we have a, a rover port at the surface that gives us access to it. Uh, we would look at using nuclear 
uh, power system because we want to create uh, data storage systems and large data capability in the base of the tower. Um, and then you have your ISRU processing plants, manufacturing, and so on. <clears throat> so the one unique aspect of this is the idea of how do you get to the surface if you have are living or have this facility in a lava tube. Well, you need to create a shaft that puts then a rover port or an architecture on top of the surface, on top of the surface. So it's kind of a almost a uh, a low impact, minimal uh, footprint as far as on the surface, and then everything else is down below where you have your radiation protection in a constant thermal environment. You also have access to the lava tube in which you can then explore that lava tube cave and continue to build more of these and link them together underground. So it is a unique lava tube architecture and requires these transition spaces between both the in the lava tube and to the surface. <clears throat> As I mentioned earlier, uh, we looked at different ways and different uh, occupants within the tower structure. And so we looked at um, a data center capability, which we have a lot of interest in. Uh, obviously, mining operations to set up uh, teleoperation and mining operations, as well as uh, lunar exploration and research capabilities, food production and processing. A large amount of area would be devoted to that and recycling because we want to become uh, independent and self-sufficient. And then you have the crew uh, human habitability, medical operations, everything up near the top of the tower close to the surface. Um, we're still doing studies or will be doing studies looking at a variety of different aspects of this. The psychology of the internal architecture is paramount for human uh, psychological well-being and eventually you know we want uh, companies to make structural shapes, tubes, truss trusses, and space frame components a robotic factory, if you will, that would, can turn out these ISRU components for us to use and others. So we're really a forcing function of really trying to get an industry stood on its feet and moving forward in a new, a new era of architecture, of, of planetary architecture. So in summary, what if? What if all this was possible? And, and really it's a paradigm shift looking toward lunar real estate and, and development and operations. It's a forcing function to pull technologies and capabilities into service, into being. It's a market-driven market approach. So we have plans to prototype a two-story full diameter structural unit should we get the funding and proceed forward. Um, and use that, use that for testing, use it for evaluations, and maybe even move our offices into it and, and work out of it. Um, so the lunar and Mars architecture should not fall under ITAR, I don't think. You know, it does it here on Earth. I think it would allow U.S. companies to hire international talent, which is at this point is to struggle for our international space architects and, and engineers to get jobs in the U.S working on these great projects. I think change is needed. Our, um, you know, and there's many collaboration and partnership opportunities here. And we're gonna be starting a crowdfunding um, activity with Net Capital soon. 
Um, so this is a glimpse of architecture beyond Earth. So these uh, three initial patent pending concepts promote simplicity, robustness, and are designed with a construction method in mind. I would like to thank Bill Kemp and James Wolfe, who are co-founders <coughs> of United Space Structures, and Spencer Stanford, uh, CEO of Precursor Technologies, who's been a part of this team and will be in our future. So we have lots more work to do in the future and ahead of us. So thank you for hanging in there today and listening to my uh, short presentation. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Chris. Your cadence, your delivery, and and the things you said uh, reflect on the practice of the entire profession. And I can't thank you, thank you enough. Uh, you said a few things that are uh, not only pertinent but are are central and core to uh, showing concepts and designs. I put some stuff on chat. Uh, so uh, thank you again. Uh, now we have a little time to do a bit of discussion. But before uh, we do that discussion, I want to leave some thoughts in your minds and then go on to discussion. So let me share the screen. <laughs> Our drop-off rate is pretty high. We started at about 100 participants. We are down to half as many, Chris, but uh, such is life. Um, let me go here and pull up. Uh... OK, let's see. <clears throat> Conclusion, uh, I want to be sure I have the right conclusion here. I'm going to go pick another one. <clears throat> Give me one minute. Okay, what do we have on screen, uh, Ken? Ken uh, Chris, can you see the screen? No, I only see your folder. Oh. Uh, I, no? True, I no? see your folder. Now? Fill the folder? Yeah, you need to share screen. Okay, hold on, hold on. Let me, let me, let me do this. You share. Give me one minute. What do you see now, guys? Still the same screen? Yeah, still just a folder. Folder, OK, let me see. Where yeah, we... you need to click the green button and the select. Yeah, I can't see the green button right now, but oh. <laughs> I'll get to it. One well, minute. You have to shrink. Yeah, that's what I got to do, OK. 
What came up now? No. Still on folder? Still folder, yeah. Maybe you have a second screen or something you need to pull your Yeah, let me let me let me let me see what's okay. I got the screen here. Sharing has done. Okay. You have to select the slide. Yeah, let me let me. Am I on camera now? Yes. Okay, hold on just a minute. <clears throat> Okay, what do we have now? Yes. It's okay, okay. Good. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm so glad some of you stuck with us uh, <laughs> till the end. Um, I just wanted to let you know how some of us think about space and space activities. Um, um, all of you may know um, uh, this particular person. If you don't, I would recommend, uh, let me get on the screen here and Is that a full slide now? Ken? Yes. Okay, good. So uh, Simon Sinek uh, is a uh, is an inspirational figure in the corporate world. He goes around saying why we do something uh, is a precursor to how and what you do. It couldn't be true uh, in the space uh, profession. Uh, and in the space architects profession. Many of us start because it's a very beautiful thing to do. Um, yeah, it's very stylish and uh, so on. But at the end of the day, uh, you think about uh, humanity and how the work we do affects um, everything. And uh, that is why we think it's important to think about why we do things. Now, um, you know, on the left corner, you see two of the richest people in the world, uh, Elon Musk and um, Jeff Bezos. And they both have interesting views. Uh, we like to think they are uh, separate and different, but if you reason it down to the ground, it, they're all talking the same thing. Uh, Musk is talking about settling other planets uh, to, for human survival of, of species. Bezos wants to protect our Earth from all the wanton uh, industrial rampage and the destroying of our forests and so on. John Marburger, in an address at the Goddard Memorial, uh, which is a cherished um, lectern for, for space architects, uh, he talks about going out into space to become, to make solar, the solar system part of our uh, economic sphere. And Joseph Campbell, as you know, the person who, uh, who um, enlightened uh, George Lucas with Star Wars, says that many times when these very special people go out and come back, they become en enlightened. And astronauts have a different feeling about planet Earth. And so it's about the return of the hero. Uh, Freeman Dyson said, we've been looking out into the skies for so long, it's black. Nothing is happening. Everything is cold and still. Our job, perhaps, is to beautify the universe in the way we know. And Frank White says the same thing about the overview effect. You go out, look at planet Earth, and you go, my goodness, what a, what a, what a place that we live in. We should take care of it. And finally, in the past few years, 
um, a group called um, For All Moonkind, led by Michelle and, uh, and Tim, they've been saying that we have to preserve our uh, species heritage wherever we go. I mean, all great civilizations preserve their cultural heritage, and we should preserve our cultural heritage extraterrestrially. So first thing, preserve all the Apollo and other spacecraft that we have put down there on the moon. So these are the ideas that we have been talking about in the school. Of course, we all have a, a father figure that we look up to, and that is Buckminster Fuller. And when he saw the images come down from the early Apollo missions, everybody started talking about, look at how beautiful the Earth looks from the moon. And Buckminster Fuller, in that year, 1968, before Apollo 11 put Buzz, Neil and Buzz on the moon, put out a book called Operation Manual for Spaceship Earth. It's a free resource. You must all take a look at how far-reaching his thoughts are in that tiny little book. NASA is already doing some incredible work to, to make that happen with, the, with vehicles. And I happened to tour it while it was at, um, you know, doing their work at DRATS. I remember meeting Ken, uh, Chris and Scott and the whole group there working on uh, uh, deep space habitats. Now, you know, if you look at the history and literature, you'll come across some very interesting slides. There was a person by the name of Esko von Putkamer. And there was an office called the Office of Long Range Planning at NASA in the 60s. These are slides from around, around that time. And, and I think it was John Mankins who mentioned it to me. Madhu, the way things are going, at the end of the day, when you get things built, they'll still look like somebody mentioned it 40 or 50 years ago. So uh, here we go. When do you think we'll have a, a, a manned um, uh, lunar base? When will we have a manned Mars base? Take a look at it and you'll see. We've not changed very much. So what are the things to watch out for currently in the new, new things that are happening? I think, as I mentioned before, you have to closely watch what is happening in the Earth orbital regime. I think LEO is the next site for action, not only for the, for the number of satellites we are flinging out there, but also for humanity to build large structures. Watch out for SpaceX, Starship Evolution, and the cadence, the rate at which you, you, you execute the test missions to gain hard data. Lunar missions are getting underway. Uh, parts of Gateway have been assigned. The Artemis project is being thought about and uh, is bound to happen because the new administration uh, has come in uh, full force and said they are going to follow what the previous administration uh, did in a fantastic way. Government private partnership is something that Chris mentioned. And now NASA has um, changed their philosophy to one of uh, being a customer, which means what it really means is that some of the intellectual property that belongs in the private sector cannot be accessed by NASA, including reusable rockets. So, so they need to buy things. And that's a good thing. 
uh, I think it's welcome. And what will happen uh, in the near future in orbit? I think space tourism, because as you know, commerce and private sector runs on a principle which is very simple, which says that profit equal to cost, um, or revenue minus cost. So that's coming up. So there is a battle between institutional culture, which is 50 or 60 years old for NASA, 70 years old for NASA, and the societal and public inspired desires. What do we want in space? And that is a good balance because we are going to get there. We are getting there very fast. My own pet peeves, I, while Chris was talking, I put them on chat room. Um, you know, whenever I sit in a new uh, discussion, the first thing that is coming up is, hey, what is the impact, the environmental impact in space and extraterrestrial surfaces, which are pristine and have some qualities that we can mess up very, very quickly. Debris is another big problem in orbit. Extraterrestrial habitat, I kept saying, please, 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 space architects, draw foundations, draw dusty platforms in your beautiful pictures. You guys do magical jobs, we need more of it. And all of these um, regular things, micrometeor protection, radiation, thermal, dust, entry, design, and landing is an area that you need to study. And triple point of water, you will see that there is no water lakes on Mars. Why? Because of triple point of water. You will see there is no ice um, uh, liquids on the moon, again, because triple point of water. You need to study that. And guess what? End of December, end of the last administration, a report came out saying that the way to go to Mars is go quickly and the power source to use for flight and for energy requirements, thermal and so on, is nuclear. So there is a push there. Go to spacearchitect.org where Chris and I and Mark and uh, Scott and all of those, Brent Sherwood have all written so many beautiful documents. Take a look at it. This is my pet peeve. <laughs> and Chris said it right. He's nailed it. He said, underground is a place to go. And and guess what? Nature has given us lava tubes on Earth to, to simulate and then execute in extraterrestrial uh, bodies. Can go very fast to Mars. Right now, the consumables for three to six people, just that alone makes a spacecraft so unwieldy that I don't think we're going to do that. So we need to go very quickly. And 1960s drawing shows you that. Because in the 1960s, we built nuclear rockets. Of course, regulation clamped us down very quickly, but we can go very, very fast. You can wear radiation belts while you're flying because you may have solar events, uh, um, coronal mass ejections. And uh, so we are working on nice protection. This is what it used to look like. Guess what? In December, this is how our nuclear rocket ships look like. So we can have one week Mars tours, go around, see the planet and come back. Usually people have one or two week holidays. They don't have three week vacations. Here you go, my own posing. I think Chris remembers this one. And my own, our own design for uh, 
a Mars rover. Everybody needs to know what you go to do on Mars. Setting up civilization is great, but it requires a great deal of preparation. Elon thinks he'll be flying 100 ships to Mars before we send people out there. Now, what does it all mean for humanity? You know, there is a institute out there in Sweden that talks about planetary boundaries. We are messing planet Earth up very, very badly. And in my opinion, space activities set an example of how we can have a minimal footprint civilization. Sometimes I think we don't, we don't, we don't respect nature so much. Of course, the native people say about it all the time, but you know what? We are all astronauts, as uh, the guru says. How, so the question to all the space architects today is, how does space architecture fit into this whole thing where we want to look after planet Earth and do all the other great things around our solar system and beyond? Look at the UN Sustainable Goals, look at the World Economic Forum. They put out regular ideas and new developments. So I gave you philosophy. We had some visions and architectures today and some concepts and engineering input. This is what I would say. I agree with uh, T.S. Eliot. And with that, we will now open to discussion for those who are with us. I would love for, um, you, know, for you all to engage each other. And um, um, uh, Ken, shall we open up with the first questions that came up uh, uh, that I recall we had somewhere? Let's take a look. Uh, yeah. Can you pull up those questions? Uh, stop share. There you go. Okay. Oh, can I open Q and A? Yeah, we are open to Q and A, and we still got a few people here. So let me okay, ask. Okay. The first question came from Vitali. I hope you're you're with us, Vitali. Are you here? Yeah, he is. Okay. The question um, about nuclear. It's the same old question from 50 years ago. How to be safe when you launch uh, a nuclear material uh, into orbit or to another planet? Did somebody else want to say before I <laughs> before I start rambling again? Uh, uh, let, me, let me jump in it, real quick. Yeah, so when I was at NASA and we were contemplating, this was, gosh, in the, like I said, the late 80s, early 90s, we were on the idea that, you know, for some of the facilities, uh, some of the future ones, we needed more power, especially if we were thinking ISRU, because that's going to take a lot of power to do all that activity and the manufacturing. So we were pushing nuclear way back then, and, you know, it came into a lot of discussion, you know, uh, launching it, you know, so on and so forth. But some of the techniques or the stuff that came was that uh, Los Alamos came up with, as well as Glenn Research Center, is it's it's launched inert for the most part, and you can basically blow it up and it will not contaminate. So it, there's a lot of work done to until you um, activate it, is it hot, so to speak, from a radiation perspective or contamination perspective. So the aspect of um, a rocket failing and falling into the ocean, then contaminating the ocean, 
was pretty well uh, dealt with and minimized, at least from what I remember. That is true. That is what I remember too. Uh, let's go to the next question. It seems to me we need to wait to design lunar until we get some data on life at partial gravity in Leo. Whoa, that's from Jim and Nitz Martin. They are still here. Who, was, who wants to answer that? I don't know. You know, my understanding is that the quick way to get partial gravity is to go to the moon. You know, there, there is a, there's a fundamental um, misinterpretation of what we call artificial gravity. Gravity is not artificial gravity. The thing we call artificial gravity is a centrifugal force that is generated by spinning, a simulated force. And gravity pulls you inward. You drop something, it comes back to Mother Earth. Or you drop something on the moon, it comes back to the moon. In a centrifugal case, if you drop something, whoosh, it rushes out and probably um, you know, litters up the orbital regime. The space station has a bunch of litter following it from lost tools and so on. So uh, uh, I don't think um, uh, we need to think more about this, Chris. Yeah. So um, when we were at, when I first started at NASA and I did a lot of research and studies and talked with a lot of the Apollo astronauts and the ones that were on the surface, their um, their uh, physiological uh, degradation was not as, as severe as the ones that were left in the command module circling. And so they did see some benefit, um, actually even of the one-sixth of Earth's gravity on the moon. And we also did uh, research and studies about locomotion and, you know, different uh, one-sixth G type of um, aspects. Uh, uh, and even, you know, how that might affect the internal architecture and designing it. But, um, yeah, I tend to agree with you. I think uh, the best thing is really, and, and we shouldn't be afraid of it. We should be going there. We should be there. We should have never stopped going there. But, however, um, you know, I think our future is lying, waiting for us, and the, we should not be afraid of the one-sixth gravity. As a matter of fact, I, I also have a paradigm shift that I think that the systems, the fluid systems, obviously the electrical systems and so on in, uh, for use on the moon would not be so different because there is a partial gravity than what we're doing here on Earth and it will not be like ISS hardware. That's so I, I challenge us to think a little differently in that, re that regard as well. Yeah, absolutely right. And uh, to give you a difference between artificial gravity and you know, the simulated gravity, and uh, and um, a real gravity, uh, you know, when uh, you put um, this big spacecraft that we are testing now, Starship, um, uh, into uh, into a flight profile, um, it, it's kind of parabolic trajectory. But but when the vehicle is in motion, uh, the acting forces are not just gravity; uh, it's centrifugal forces, <clears throat> and it's messing up liquids inside the vehicle. And hopefully uh, we'll see SN11 fly uh, rectifying that. But that's just a thought. Third question comes, oh, it's a congratulatory note for Vittorio uh, from Kim. So I won't even ask the question, but you did a great job 
did a great job. <laughs> okay. And uh, thank you very much. Okay. And uh, one for one for Jim. Uh, Jim Roney is right there. Yes. How was your Mars habitat project on Earth? I don't see it anymore in your website. I know why. It's proprietary. Go for it, Jim. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, no, the reason the reason why it's not well, we're actually focusing on the biopod uh, uh, development right now. But um, okay. you know, building stations uh, first on Earth and uh, then for Mars is uh, definitely uh, one of our main targets. So no, no, still uh, still up and running, I would say. Okay, thank you. Is uh, uh, is Sebastian still with us? Sebastian, are you here? I don't see him on the screen. So uh, I won't even ask the question. We got to move along. I, I don't think he's here. Okay. So there 